Hello, everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 310. Yes. <laughs> Almost six complete years of the show coming up in two weeks. Amazing. I'm your host, Chris Zellner. Join as always with my host, David Bix, this man and Bix. We have a Patreon-requested show this week in 2004, for 2004 by Casual Wayne, and this is a slam-packed show. Yes, indeed. And uh, he also had a guest suggestion, and that person was able to finagle it in spite of our massive uh, time zone difference, so should be interesting. But for anyone who skips the Japan section, just know that it might be like four or five hours this week. So. <laughs> Don't skip anything on this I show. Know. That's what I always say. But Jeez, Bix, don't sound too excited about it. Come on. <laughs> Get into it. We're talking big stories here. Yes, and I'm sure a lot of you, I hope a lot of you recognize that voice as he's been on this show quite a few times. We've uh, done other podcasts with him. He's got his own podcast he's done over the years and just one of the greats in the in the wrestling internet fandom. We're joined by our dear, close personal friend, Alan Forrell, Alan Cunningham. Alan, welcome to the show again. Oh, well, thank you guys for having me. Thank you, Casual Wayne, for the the suggestion. And uh, I think as good a week as I can think of to to come on here with the two big stories we've got uh, in terms of Japanese wrestling. So uh, I'm really excited to be on it. And um, yeah, you'll get to hear my thoughts on some other random stuff from 2004 as as well uh, at various points in the show. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm very excited. Yes, the Japanese section this week is uh, 12 pages and a little tad in the 13th. So it's a pretty long section this week, just page wise. So, but you know, we're gonna have the discussion too, and that's good. You know, that's gonna step it up a little bit. So let's go to the, our week here of July 7th through the 13th of 2004. And we begin not normally where we begin in Japan, in all Japan. We'll have that in a minute. We're going to start in Pro Wrestling Noah. And we go to Dave Meltzer. In many ways, Pro Wrestling Noah is considered the final remnant of the old days of Japanese pro wrestling. While a little more opened up than the straight wrestling with a few angles of Giant Papa's All Japan Pro Wrestling glory days in the 90s, where most of its wrestlers were spawned from, it's still considered the last surviving child of old school wrestling. All Japan itself has been dying since Matoko Baba left the company in Akira Kejimuto and is deeply in debt. New Japan has been constantly trying to reinvent itself due to Antonio Noki's vision of pro wrestling, which has badly hurt the company, which has been losing money, and even more so, popularity in recent years. Noah, under Mitsuha Masawa, presents a sports version of pro wrestling that has its own identity, as opposed to trying to be a fake copy of Pride. It's all about winning and losing, which is hard to sell when people have a more popular product where they know winners and losers, well, usually, are not predetermined. Noah has its major issues, like all Japanese wrestling. Its TV time slot is such that only hardcore fans who stay up or set their VCRs will watch it. It's not as entertaining to the masses, nor has the star power as WWE, K1, or Pride. This makes it hard to capture a new fan base, and ultimately you need that for survival. Nor revolves so much around presenting dramatic great matches, which are probably just better than any other company, at least when it comes to big shows. With 30 minutes of television, usually showing one or two matches, everyone's TV time is limited. Noah's very popular with his core fans, a lot of whom are the old All Japan fans from the 90s, which explains the Budokan Hall success. 
Second, while most fans nowadays are only interested in the big shows, you need a small show to give the young wrestlers the experience to improve, which is a major issue with NOAA and WWE. At least WWE's house shows are still profitable with small crowds because of the high ticket prices. NOAA's number of dates have been cut back, and their economics are more based on doing very well at big shows and using that to make up for the losses suffered at the regular house shows. The four-year-old company had its biggest undertaking ever, booking the Tokyo Dome on July 10th for a show that went through many changes since first planned late last year. The original idea was to try and go with a mainstream dream match, with Kenta Kabachi defending the GHC heavyweight title against Bob Sapp. Considering all that has happened, it was quite fortunate the idea was dropped, although it was intriguing because it would be Kabachi's ultimate test as a worker. This company's built on work rate. And while Kabashi and Sap, because of Kabashi's talents, probably would have been a good, if not clumsy, match. Man, it meant Noah Tokyo Dome had to be a match of the year. Had they planned it for months, it would have been a disaster now, since he probably would have dropped out. The company was hopeful of working with WWE at another point. But with WWE running the Japanese market on, on its own a few times per year, it's not in the company's interest to send its talent to other shows. The end result was the one match they've avoided doing for years. With Kenta Kabashi retaining the title against Junakiyama in 35-34 in a match where they pulled out all the spots, as everyone knew they would. Kabashi has held the GAC anyway title since March 1st, 2003, with a win over Misawa an eternity by modern standards. At first, he was figuring he wouldn't lose the title. First, for such a big show, you almost had to give the people something special. Second, after running through every major star in the company, there was nobody internally to give the belt to, nor any major opponent for Kabashi even face after his recent pinfall in Yoshiro Takayama. The negative is that Kabashi, bad knees and all, really is something special, as he's the last world champion in pro wrestling who has the aura of the old-time world champions, partially so because of how this company has put the title. All clean finishes, lots of classic matches, and mostly because of who he is. The title wouldn't be the same with Akiyama's champ. Akiyama's a good wrestler. But it's pretty clear he's never going to be what they hoped he would be four years ago. When the decision was made when Noah started that due to Masao and Kabashi's physical condition that he would be the company's top star. Kabashi Nakayama made a home run with newspapers next day calling the match of the year candidate. Talking with three different people live, all described it the same way. It was described as match of the year. Can we ever top this type of match? Great live. But leaving everyone in the audience was exhausted when it's over. But at 37, with knees twice as old based on wear and tear, you wonder how long it'll be before Kabashi winds up like Mudo and Masawa. Those have come very quickly, considering he has that style where he does everything he can in a big match. It was the 13th singles match between the two men. But the first since December 23, 2000. The first on September 17, 1992, was won by Kabashi. It was also Akiyama's pro debut at the Fellow the Japanese Olympic team that year. It was as good a pro debut as nearly anyone in the modern times has had, since Akiyama really had it from the start. But like with U.S. wrestlers, there's a desire difference. Kabashi at least appears to live and die for the business, who believes in giving fans everything he has. Whenever he's in a big match, he's the kind of wrestler who ends up in terrible physical shape when he gets older. But the wrestlers themselves talk about with reverence. Akiyama's more like a guy who is a talented veteran wrestler who wind up healthier in the long run but won't be able to carry a company. All right, we'll stop here before we talk about more on the show. Um, let's talk about Kabashi and Bob Sapp first, Alan. I mean, Bob Sapp, in, when they started planning this Dome show in late 2003... I mean, he is the guy. He is the the it guy in Japan. He's all over network television. He's getting huge run in K1. And, of course, it's probably in in their minds, hey, we got this dome show. We're, 
we're going to need somebody like him to be the guy that we can have to be our ace in the hole to draw tickets. Then, of course, they change plans. Bob Sapp goes to New Japan, fools around there, wins IWGP title, does some stuff there. And by this time, is just, you know, flirting with pro wrestling more than anything else. And Noah decided to, you know, go to the more predictable type of plan and go with Kabashi Okuyama. What do you think about them even thinking about using Bob Sapp? It's uh, on the surface so unnoah-like, but then when you when you think of some of the things they did, like the Akabono stuff that they brought in the year after, I guess. So like when Kunkabashi dropped the title, like one of the first things they had him doing was working with Akibono. And yeah, it's like it for a company that had momentum at the time doing a certain thing and an audience that was really into that certain thing although as dave kind of says there was limits in terms of how much they could grow that audience but the audience they had were like you judge by how they're reacting to shows and i mean these guys are getting budokan hall just blowing the roof off every every month every two months whenever they're running it and like all their big matches were getting over that the crowd were eating up what they were giving them so it seems like it would have been Maybe something that that Noah fan base, the hardcore Noah fan base, would have been disappointed by. Um, and also, at the same time, it could have been something that would have drawn in non-Noah fans. So it's about kind of weighing that up and how much of a success it is in terms of draw, non, drawing non-Noah fans is going to mitigate how much you might be displeasing your current fans. But I think for a first big show like that, to me, you gotta you gotta reward the fans that have been with you on the journey and give them something to be excited about and put your trust in the fact that it will that it will draw. And this did really well. I think it worked out. I think they made the right decision. If they went with Bob Sapp, I just like. Can you imagine? So this clip uh, surfaced earlier. Um, this year maybe it was last year i i initially actually tweeted it out but did a video last year when i saw it um because i was so taken aback by it and i don't think people really noticed and then uh, someone else probably someone a lot more followers than me did the same thing a few months ago and it got huge traction and kobashi was retweeting and everything it was the clip from the uh April 2005 Budokan show where one match ends and before the main event the lights go out and they literally just put up on the the little uh, scoreboard deal that they have in Budokan Hall they put up on the scoreboard for the Tokyo Dome 2005 and they just put Kent Kobashi comes up and the crowd go oh and then they put up Ken's Kazaki and the crowd go oh and it's just the biggest reaction for literally just two names going up on a scoreboard and i feel if you did that in budokan hall in april 2004 and it was kenta kobashi and then bob sap i feel like there'd be a reaction but i don't know maybe, you know why maybe, there would be a big there'd be a big reaction because he was iwgp champion at that time yeah that well that's true but <laughs> if before before new japan takes yeah, before New Japan had taken him, I just, I don't know, I just think, yes, it has the star power, but I, I don't know if the Noah fans 
wanted or would have wanted a Bob Sapp. But maybe I'm viewing Bob Sapp through, more through the lens of having seen what he became too much and the cartoon character, the joke. And in 2003, coming off, say, the Noguera fight in 2002, maybe he was treated more seriously. So I might be just, I, I might be a little uh, biased because of that. But I don't know. I think they went with the right move. What are your thoughts? So I was looking up his MMA and kickboxing record and his pro wrestling results while Alan was talking to kind of refresh my memory on where exactly he, he being Sap, was at this point. He is also kind of past his peak because, okay, you look at like, hold on, I closed the... Excuse me. Actually. Well, he had beat Nakamura. He had beaten. He beat Nakamura, and then they stripped him of the belt. And that was his last pro wrestling match before this period. Well, he yeah. Well, he forfeited the belt. That's right. He forfeited the belt because he lost the uh, fight to Kazuki Fujita. That oh, I completely forgot. That was how it went. The K one. The K one match. Yes. Um. Okay. So looking at. His okay, so kick. Uh, wait, let me make sure I'm looking at the right record. That would have been May twenty second. That he was stripped. The, the, that he was stripped. Or that he forfeited the four. The fight was May twenty second. So he forfeited it after that. So okay. June. So as of when we're talking about, so spring and summer, his like famous fights are pretty far removed. Like if you like kickboxing wise. At this point, his most recent fights in kickboxing were three-fight win streak with wins over Akimono, Seth Petrozelli, and whoever Tommy Glanville is, who doesn't have a Wikipedia profile. In MMA, his most recent fights, besides the Fujita loss on May 22nd, were a win over uh, Blue Wolf's brother in March, the, and then before that, the Stefan uh, Excuse Gamble. me, that's Blue Wolf. Roof's brother, yes. Um, and before that, the Stefan Gamlin fight in, two th- in September 2003, which for those who don't remember, he was the guy who came in billing himself as the white Bob Sapp. Yeah, I remember that. And before that was the Takayama fight. And that was New Year's Eve 2002. And then wrestling-wise, yeah, he had just, you know, vacated the IWGP title and not wrestled since. So... You look at it like he's still a big star, but I don't think even if you were going to do it, I don't think this is even the right time. No, and I, and as Dave mentions, I mean they've held off Kobashi Nakayama um, since Kobashi's come back as far as a singles match. Last one December twenty third two thousand. So I mean, I mean you're put looking, so much time into those guys four and a half in years. Tags. Yeah, and, and and yeah, they've met in tags. Numerous times. Oh my know. God! Yeah, it's non stop di- burning. The diamond versus... head. The diamond head was in a match. You know, in a match with Akiyama's in it, but it was Kanemaru that took the shot. But I mean, yeah, I mean, they they had worked each other so many times in tags, but still they had kept them away. So I mean, that was a perfect way for them to do it. Four and a half years, Alan. So yeah, that, yeah, it's another. You know, um, was it three and a half? Two thousand, two thousand. Yeah, three and a half. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Like Noah didn't have a huge like early Noah didn't have a huge amount of storyline running through it, but one of the constants was sternness versus burning. 
and Akiyama and his guys versus Kobashi and his guys. And yeah, that in terms of what the company had been doing from obviously Kobashi missed some time, but in terms of what they've been doing since they started, this was the match. Um, like this, this was the match that everything they had done up to that point had built to. So I think it worked. And we think about Dave's uh, assessment here about the legacies of Kobashi Nakayama. It's what, how he thought it would be in 2005 compared to what it is now. In in terms of uh, their their health and how they'd be viewed, like where he, because yeah. I think he got that nailed on in terms of Kobashi breaking his body down and giving his all and retiring uh, a, a legend, but retiring a very hurt legend and Akiyama never being able to carry a company um but also being like extremely uh, still wrestling still wrestling at an extremely high level he's going to be main eventing uh um is it kawasaki stadium i believe uh that um ddt are running peter pan in this year they just takashita won takeshita people will give out to me you guys will give out to me um takeshita uh will be main eventing um against him uh on that show, he just won the tournament to challenge Akiyama. So Akiyama's in a pretty big spot now with DDT, and he's well into his 50s. Um, he's about to enter his 30th year of wrestling. <laughs> it's incredible. It's so incredible. Like, he's still so good. He, he seems so durable. Like, he had that period after Misawa died where he had to take time off, and I'm sure that was mental as much as physical. And, like, God, I'm sure there was so much running through that guy's head at that point, and um, yeah, he like he, but he's been outside of that. He's been just a workhorse, and he, he whether it was his decision or whether it was all Japan's decision, he kind of moved into the background a little bit in his last couple of years there. But yeah, he still clearly could go when it was needed, and um, he's but yeah, maybe he he never could really be a top guy in a company. And Kobashi, you know, to his credit, is get you know, gets around. He's you know he's able to live his life. You know he's not completely you know broke down like some wrestlers that could have been that worked like he did. He's not in a wheelchair or you know stuff like that. I mean he's still able to do stuff. You know, yeah, it's like Kobashi kind of got to a certain point of just absolutely effed in terms of his body. And, and, then, and let's not forget the cancer too. Forgot. Yeah, right. absolutely. But then, um, yeah, once he rested up, he took yeah. long injury layoffs. Like his his knees and an el- his elbows are not what the knees, elbows, well, and shoulder too, right? Because the chop stuff was elbows and shoulder, I believe. And the the lariats, I'm sure, because uh, Goshi right. Ozaki inherited the lariats and the chops, and he's he's having a lot of the same issues and has had them for the last, geez, the better part of the last decade. He's been, that guy has always got his shoulder and arm taped up, um, and he's now taken his time off after his epic uh, Noah GAT title run last year. Um, it's uh, throwing your arm around like that with that amount of forces that with that regularity is going to screw up those things. But it, it, it just really looks like with, with Kobashi just being able to take the time, rest it up, step away. He was able to prevent it getting like, who knows, maybe like, you know, as you get older, things kick in arthritis, these kind of things, like maybe that will compl- complicate things and make things worse for him in his, his later, later years. But I don't know. I think he's probably having a better 
50s uh, than he, a lot of people might have predicted when he was in his early 40s. So you know, it's, it's very nice to see. And he's so he's so much fun on social media. He's such a, a positive kind of guy and like always like, just kind of putting interesting things up there. Uh, he put a really nice tweet up about uh, Del Wilkes the other day. Um, yeah, he's and he, he is really he's really um uh, a great supporter of the young wrestlers, like guys like Daisuke Sakamoto and Yuji Kobayashi, like they're clearly so influenced by Kobashi and, and he's been such a big supporter of them. He's just a, a real positive kind of guy in pro wrestling. And it, it's nice to see how he's that he has held up probably better than we would have expected. But at the same time, you really don't want to see him back in the ring, like yeah, for oh, anything. No. Like it's like doing like what Mudo's doing now. You just you feel like if Kobashi was to try anything like that, it would be bad news. Like he should not push his luck in terms of where he is right now. Oh no 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 no! I think he knows better. It's I hope he does. But it, it, I mean, in a way, it's kind of sad when you look at how the others from the Big Five are actually shockingly well preserved. It really shows just how much, how badly Masawa just needed time off. I think with Masawa, it's like, like I always say this about Dynamite Kid. Like, it's the overall pushing yourself um, as much as, as much as the bumps or the drugs. It's the combination of everything. Obviously, I don't know the drugs were a, a thing for Masawa, but um, like the punishment. But then the mental duress of, of running that company and not exactly. like you, you know you know that he like he didn't delegate in terms of what we saw on camera. He put the GHC title back on himself in two thousand seven when they when they took it off Marafuji. Um, it, it went back to him. He put the workload back on him. I'm sure in behind the scenes in the office he was equally as poor at delegating and. I would say it was a lot of long hours into the night, huddled over a, a desk with um, all kinds of injuries, going onto the road, taking bumps, going back into the office and going to the pub and just having a few drinks with uh, Ogawa and smoking a bunch of cigarettes and then uh, g- going home and, you know, not taking care of yourself like that's like uh, giving yourself time and space and just like just resting is the body needs that you know and not giving yourself that is it's going to amplify so many things and that's why i think like at least i don't know maybe i'm being too um uh positive um but i think when we see like a lot of the crazy things that wrestlers have done in the last 10 15 years like the the, the modern style so to speak like i'm hopeful that that won't just destroy guys like you and you instinctively think it would because it's such a progression from what people were doing that saw the older generation like the hulk hogan's leg drop being the um screwing up his hip being the obvious example um like it the fact that the modern performer takes such better care of themselves for the most part on average is the thing i cling to and hoping that you know your guys like your el genericos your young bucks people like that will pop people like that will will be in good shape when they're older because you know they're not going around running around like dynamite kid putting their body through insane levels of, of strain pushing it to the brink and then they're not just 
never giving themselves a chance to rest like uh, Mitsuhara Masawa. So, um, yeah, that's what I'm hoping for anyway. Yeah, and Masawa also had the whole, we need the spot shows to draw, I'm the biggest star, I need to be on the spot shows thing. And also, we talked about this before, so I'm not going to belabor it, but that if you really think about it, he took a lot more of the head drops than everyone else. He is the common denominator in most of that. He, he also did more diving earlier in his career, which, you know, came back on him as well. And, you know, his tiger mask and well, even that. more his knees than his neck. Yeah, well, <laughs> that takes a toll on you, too. Well, Remember, that means he missed a full year of action. He, I mean, he was out the entire year, 1989. You know, because of because of his knee. So I mean, I mean, and and I mean, he should have looked at what happened to Hashimoto. I mean, that was the example right there of this is what you don't do, and he didn't he didn't learn. And so, yeah, it's and those guys not clear ex- too that Hashimoto was one of his best friends. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there was many late night sessions in the pub with those two after hard days of, of looking at the books and then struggling in the office with a, with a bad back. And then just, oh, look, I'll go meet Hashimoto for a pint in the pub and we'll we'll have smoke a few cigarettes and then go home at two in the morning. You know, like that's it may seem innocent enough on the surface, but when you're doing that like all the time or whatever, it's, it's not a whereas like with Kobashi. Don't get me wrong. Kobashi was probably putting stuff into his body that overall wasn't good for him. The man, as Bix has pointed out a few times, does sweat an abnormally large amount. But um, at least with Kobashi, you know he was putting time in the gym, just training his body, maintaining his body. Like I don't want to say taking care of his body, but he was building his body up in a way that, you know, like look at what Masawa looked like. In his last few years at Noah, like he didn't look like a fit athlete, you know, he looked tired, he looked broken and like looks can be deceiving. We've seen many a UFC fighter high level who doesn't necessarily look like um, uh, George St. Pierre, but um, yeah, I I don't get the impression that guys like Misawa and Hashimoto were were taking care of their body in terms of fitness in the way that a Kenta Kobashi would have. And I think that's probably a, a big thing because, you know, even if it is just like lifting ridiculously heavy weights, it is training your body and building up kind of a physical tolerance to things. And, and it helps with endorphins and all this kind of stuff that's that's good for you. So Right. And Kobashi also had what I assume was a wake-up call to him relative to the timing which was the way people reacted to how physically bad he looked at the tsunami benefit years ago. Which, I mean, that's one of his last high-profile matches before his retirement, right? Oh, no, excuse me. It's his next-to-last match. That's yeah. the tag where him and Mudo do moonsaults, I think, right? Right. In, In 2011, February, yeah. Uh, well, February 2012. But that's okay. the one where Mel... Yeah. Was it Meltzer or someone else who said he looked like like end-stage Andre the Giant walking to the ring? I forget if it was Dave or someone else, but... It, it, it was, he was a dangerously unhealthy he looking. Was, he, he was shaking walking to the ring. He looked bad, and whatever was going on, he got himself healthy, did the one last match the following year, looked great in it, and did what he needed to do to get healthy overall, and seems to be doing fine. Yeah. 
All right, well, let's go back to the dome. Reports were four and a half. It was a four and a half hour live pay per view, and it was strong, very strong. Crowd loved it. The time was actually sped up as they had no intermission. And the minute the wrestlers left the ring, the music started playing for the next match. They had the illusion of being a great success with a totally packed dome announced to 58,100 fans. Several live sources paid it at 50,000. Several sources have given the feeble number, freebie number, excuse me, at 13,000. But we have one figure suggesting only 33,651 were in the building and 24,440 were paid. And several others are saying it was the biggest dome crowd in wrestling for years. In years, with about 37,000 paid. Internal business sources both claimed the latter. The crowd was easy as they were hot for the opening match, and everyone on the show as stars. In the event, it was something special, similar when WWE came to Japan. The access section was blocked off, but used a less elaborate stage than Pride, K1, or New Japan would use, so the sight lines were much better. From a PR standpoint, when it's over, everyone's talking about Noah's a big deal promotion, at least for this week which hasn't been said in a long time. New Japan has legitimately packed the dome since Misawa Chono more than two years ago, and with papering, have been hovering between thirty-five and 40,000 for recent shows. And that was even with Hulk Hogan and Bob Sapp. The fear we were given were 22,000 tickets sold for $2.5 million advance for a few days before, and then they went to papering. They did very little papering in advance. As VIPs, we know who get tons of tickets to big shows. They didn't get any for this one. But there was definitely significant papering in the last few days. Most of the freebies are in upper deck, aside from a lot of major celebrities in the 30,000 yen to the $180 U.S. section, who were obviously given the free tickets. They were said they've also had a huge walk-up day of the show because there was a tremendous buzz in Tokyo, and also a lot of all Japan New Japan fans came. The company was ha- going to be happy if they had 35,000 total in the building. So from a business standpoint, uh, I mean, from what we know, what the Tokyo Dome really is, numbers-wise, and not the blown-up numbers that we've been given all these years. I mean, I said they did fairly well, Bix. Yeah, although there is one thing, though. So, they claimed 50000 for this one. They clearly did well. I mean, relatively well. I mean, it's hard, you know, it's hard to extrapolate from this Dave number. But, how do I put this? The fact that the following year, they make a point of turning the lights on across the whole stadium so you can see that it's a legit sellout makes me think this was nowhere near close to a full dome, though. Like, I I highly doubt there's only a difference of, like, two, three thousand people between those two shows. As it was was as solids. Yeah, the dome, the dome in attendance is always going to be a funky deal because of the configuration, the, you know, the, the pumped-up claims, all that stuff. Well, right, because also Dave at this point is not necessarily talking about the um, the like con- the past exaggerations or anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so he's not doing that yet. So I, these days, the consensus is what? Right around 40,000 with a big stage? Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. And they had a stage here. It wasn't as big as, like, the New Japan ones or the All Japan Women one, but decent-sized stage. So even the following year, because I think they had a similar stage, probably not much more than thirty-eight to 40,000 in the building, so... 
I, I, I feel like these numbers that Dave is giving, the more specific ones, feel accurate. Yeah. Because that means you have a good five to 7,000 empty seats. That's why you have the lights off. Still a big enough crowd that, relative to other dome shows, that you're able to make a claim of 50,000 and not embarrass yourselves. Kind of all tracks, I think. I, I have a question for you guys. Was it known when this show happened that they were going to run it again the following year? Or did that come months later? I don't remember, Chris. Um, I think it was all depending on what this one did, ended up That's doing. That's exactly where I was going with it, because I was going to say, like, if if that wasn't something that was agreed beforehand or whatever, that they would run another show, then the fact that they did, um, I think, tells you that whatever it drew, they were happy with it. But again, uh, uh, pro wrestling in the Tokyo Dome in the past two or three years or so has not been doing good. So, yeah, I mean, you kind of also are grading on a curve as well compared to when New Japan had been doing at Tokyo Dome in recent times. And so. what, it would, what it would do in the years following this, the first ever uh, New Japan Dome show I saw was the first Wrestle Kingdom and there was, I don't know, probably, what, 10,000 fans in that place, I'd say. Yeah. All right. Until the fifth match, which had a little bit of spark that you wouldn't expect from a Hamayone, Daisuke Ikeda versus Akira Tawe and Takuma Sano match, the prelim matches felt like a Budokan Hall show. They really didn't get the feeling this was bigger than meaning the company's top shows until the interest of Keiji Muto and Mitsuhara Masawa for their match. While the match of Dave wasn't as good as he'd been led to believe, both wrestlers came out to huge ovations. Even the usually stoic Masawa cracked the remnants of a smile, with 50,000 fans screaming his name like he was a Noki or something. The main event was reminiscent of WWE mentality from a few years back, where they were caught in the dangerous game of, can you top this? WWE had to stop because all the neck injuries. Dave remember being told a couple months back when discussing Kabashi Nakayama being on top, being told by people with the group that it would be the la- best match on the show and that they would put on a match nobody could top. That was reminiscent of Keiji Muno's big match in 2001, where halfway into the match you'd think this is a disappointment, but when it's over you'd think nobody else could have a match like this. But this went a step farther, using more dangerous moves. It was this company's version of WrestleMania, and when the show was over from a wrestling standpoint, there were maybe one or two manias even in the league of this. There was nothing but wrestling. No angles, promos, or anything else. When one match ended, the next bout immediately started. Now, besides the main event, the biggest thing on the show was the first ever meeting in the ring of two of Japan's biggest 90s legends, Masawa and Muda. Muda had wanted to do the match for nearly 10 years, as he considered Masawa the best wrestler in the business when both were in their prime. He had talked about putting Masawa over at the time in a match that would have sold out the dome with ease until maybe the past year or so when both men lost their luster and business got cold. Politics got in the way of it. And since both ran their own companies, neither had run a Tokyo Dome show and had been wasted to do the match anywhere else. And no surprise, Masao and Yoshinara Gawa kept the GAC tag titles, beating Muto and Taiokea in 2146, when Masao pinned Kea after the Emerald Frozen, similar to Nova's Nova Kane or the old ECW Dreamer Driver. It was the second most heated match on the show. As noted here, the original plan was for Muto and Kea to win and have a rematch on uh, the All Japan Sumo Hall show on July 18th. But a few weeks back, Masawa decided against a predictable home-and-home deal. One would have thought in the high-profile match of All Japan versus No for the first time that the weaker promotion would win to set future business. 
But Japan does have a history that often the company promoting the show wants to look strong on its big show, and usually the one promoting it is the one with the leverage. Also, there's now talk again of putting together the ultimate tag match with IWGP tag champions Yoshiro Takayama and Minoru Suzuki versus Masao Nagawa. And if that's the direction they're going, it makes sense for Masao Nagawa to retain. It appears all Japan and Noah are going to work together some more, and I've talked about Akiyama versus Toshiya Kawada for a Triple Crown in All Japan later this year. Masao is All Japan Sumo Hall show on the 18th against Satoshi Kojima, which seems built for a singles match with Mudo, which unfortunately is many years too late. Okay, first of all, the Novocaine is the flatliner. <laughs> the Dreamer Driver, though, is the Emerald Frozen, if I remember. Right. I don't know where I don't know where Dave was coming from with that, <laughs> but this. Yeah, this is Masao returning to all Japan, and that was a big deal um, at the time. And, you know, there was a lot of interesting feelings on that from uh, from people, the all Japan hardcore fans and stuff. And uh, yeah, I mean, you got everybody's working together here, and, and it's like it's crazy to think about this now. But you know, God knows I w- was doing all this stuff back then. I mean, it was wild to, to see all these promotions that are all working together in some form or fashion by this time in 2004. I mean, yeah, you had... I mean, it's the big promotions. It's not smaller yeah. promotions working together. Like, it's the big ones working together, whereas now you just really have one kind of the big one, and or especially a couple in the last couple of years. So, um, yeah, it's it's hard to kind of envision because they were all kind of like all Japan, New Japan... Noah, and even to an extent, zero one probably losing steam at this point. But early two thousand zero one was pretty big deal. They were running big shows, so like those. Anytime those companies were working together, I'm sure it was very exciting. I mean, and you look at that that one show, that July eighteenth Sumo Hall show, All Japan did. You have two wrestlers New Japan. You got Masawa, and you got Takao Mori. You know, working that show in the main event against Kawada. I mean, that's. <laughs> Who and he Amori had been in zero one, so I mean, you got all of them there in one in one show. All the promotions basically represented there. You know, I mean, it's it's crazy to think about that because Japan was so isolationist, you know, for so long. You know, and now we're in that era where everybody's mixing and matching, and the friendships are you know coming through and everything. And yeah, it's it's pretty crazy times for sure. That is one thing. Misao and Hashimoto is a great example that we talked about earlier. But Japan at times can the promotions can seem so isolationist that you that you might not expect that some of these guys who you never see working together are actually like really close and hang out all the time. Like um, a recent example, obviously like Shingo and Naito, which led to Shingo coming into to New Japan. Like that relationship and. Um, uh, apparently, like yeah, Yamato and uh, Shinsuke Nakamura for years uh, were were real good close buddies in in Japan, um, and you you do get a lot of that kind of cross promotional because I mean like they're all a lot of these guys are based in Tokyo they all know each other it's probably like if you're in a competitive situation in your own company and um, maybe you're not super close with some of the guys who you're competing with in terms of looking for spots in, in the company then maybe you you do kind of you know compare notes and event with someone who's in a similar situation in, in another company and then you become really good buddies so like it's it's 
it seems unnatural, but when you think about it, it is it is quite natural. And yeah, Misawa and Hashimoto were were famous friends, and uh, the Kobashi, I guess Kobashi and Muto were were good pals. So they certainly are now, I guess. But uh, yeah, the Kobashi, I'm sure everyone was kind of friendly with because he's such a uh, seemingly nice guy. And Masao, well, Muto Masao. Well, go ahead. Muto Masao, I mean, that was a thing uh, they mentioned here. I mean, they had talked that up in 97. And, in fact, even in the PWI 500 that year, the magazine, the little blurb on Muto and Masao, each was talking about how they both wanted to wrestle each other at the Tokyo Dome. Hmm. I mean, that was something that was talked about in that era. You know, they wanted to do it. And Baba's still in charge of all Japan. Anoki it's still, you know, has his power in New Japan, but it wasn't, you know, the, always in charge. But still, I mean, yeah, that would have been the time to have that match. Although Muto was in worse shape in 97 than uh, Masao was. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, this, that suddenly had been talked about for years. And uh, here it is, finally taking place. Really, I think the interesting part of it is that it seems like Misawa was much closer to the New Japan Three Musketeers than he was to the rest of the Big Four slash Big Five in all Japan. Well, of course, yes. Well, I think with, with Akiyama and Kobashi, like he probably had that kind of older brother relationship where I was kind of like, you know, your older brother who's, you know, maybe a bit intimidating, not not your buddy. He's, he's your older brother. He's your senior. And with Kawada, there is the direct competitiveness and dare I say hatred that they probably had for each other at times and yeah so I, and with, with Masawa having so much with him kind of being even when Baba was there Masawa had a lot of responsibility in, in the running of the, the company and uh, you know it, it's it makes sense that he wouldn't kind of be chummy chummy with the, the other main eventers on, on the roster yeah all right the show also featured a retirement ceremony for 70s and 80s star Russia Kimura. Kimura, 63, was the world's oldest full-time wrestler until it disappeared pretty much without mention after the March 1st, 2003 Budokan Hall show due to suffering a brain tumor. He wrestled full-time for 38 years. Kimura had been immobile for years and strictly worked comedy matches. Must be in very bad health because he didn't even come to the show. He just did a taped interview on the big screen telling the fans, thank you. He looked frail and lost a ton of weight over the past year. He showed his career highlights, which included being the top star of the old IWE promotion in the 70s, where he worked most of the AWA top guys of the era, like Vern Gagne, Billy Robinson, Nick Botwinkle, Superstar Billy Graham, Mad Dog Bashan. He was the pioneer of cage match in Japan. He had a hot 80s feud with Antonio Noki after IWE folded, as they did the top star from different motions deal. Later, he jumped to All Japan, as Giant Baba wanted to use him to feud with. And eventually, the two became comedy rivals, working mid-card every night, and then joined forces as a comedy tag team in the 90s. Let me talk about Russia Kimura. I've been watching every week of New Japan TV, starting with uh, January 1982. And now I'm into, uh, I just finished watching 1st of March 83. That motherfucker was so over in that in that promotion, in that feud. Oh my God. Yeah, everybody tells us about the Choshu deal. And that was huge when it happened. But the Anoki IWE feud was fucking smoking. Russia Kimura, Adam Hamaguchi, 
and Asamo Tiranishi. Those three together against Hinoki and, you know, Saguchi, Fujinami, whoever would be involved as well. Holy shit. I mean, amazing heat. Amazing heat. It's just insane. And Russia was so fucking over. And Russia wasn't the Russia that everybody remembers, you know, the comedy guy, the guy, you know, cutting the promos and stuff like that. In fact, he hardly ever talked. I mean, he hardly ever talked on a microphone. It was Hamaguchi that did all the talking in that feud. And also and, he had a completely different look back then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he, had, he didn't have the, no facial hair. He had like a uh, perm and shit like that. I would but, say more God. of a pompadour than a perm. Oh, it was a, it was a curly perm. He looked like Mike Brady from uh, the Brady Bunch. But uh, I mean, God. more about the original Japan run then. You thought you're thinking about seventies Russia, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. But um, but man, God, it was uh, he. I mean, Anoki wrestled a handicap match against all three of them, you know, at, at, at Sumo Hall. I mean, it's fucking heat, man. Anoki got hurt in an angle with them. Um, they did a deal where Anoki was supposed to shave Rusher's head, and Russian and IW guys left the building before it happened. And God, talk about some heat. They got suspended by New Japan because of that, and then they just showed up. And then when Shoshu uh, and his crew, did they start doing their thing? Their feud with them too. It's a three-way faction feud. The first you ever see that in Japan, where when they would have these wild brawls where the New Japan guys are brawling with Russia's guys who are brawling with Choshu's guys, and it, it what a great fucking feud. And then you had like Mike George, who was the t- top foreigner for IW at the end. He's coming to New Japan, and Hogan's there. Hogan's the top foreigner in New Japan, and they're involved in the feud and doing wild and crazy shit. Hogan just going nuts, you know, hitting Max Bombers on Russia and the guys. I mean, God, I mean, it's amazing television. And, and then you watch Russia and IWE, and IWE is a totally different thing. Yes. You know, totally different thing. And it's cool as shit just to see how different IWE is. And he was a top guy there. Love, love his theme music. And, um, then he goes all Japan. Well, he goes to UWF with my Ada and them, which was, you know, he was out of place there. Then he goes all Japan and just has this well, rebirth there. We should note he quickly became out of place. The reason he's there at the beginning is that initially UWF was really just supposed to be a New Japan style promotion. But they didn't push him. I mean, he was working mid car. But then he goes all Japan and gets revitalized there and. Feuds with Baba and then eventually, you know, teens with Baba and has that great run in 89, the real world tag league. And then, of course, settles into the comedy role and, of course, you know, feuding with Fuchi and Haruka Egan and that crew. And Russia matches an early Noah shows is always some of my favorite highlights because he doesn't do, I mean, he, he doesn't do nothing hardly at all. He can barely move, but he's so fucking over and the crowd loves him they love whatever he does they pop for it you know hitting Agan in the chest Agan spitting the crowd i mean it's it's that's pro wrestling stuff like that's pro wrestling to me you know it pops the fans they they come they come to be entertained they get what they want out of the match they work you know tens of minutes whatever they do their thing and the fans are happy so god bless russia kamura alan I, I just, when you were describing those 80s brawls, and those oh. guys just going after each other in the wild, chaotic scenes, and I've seen, I, I don't know if I've specifically seen the stuff you were talking about, but I've seen plenty of things 
like that from 80s Japan, 90s Japan. It's so great. And honestly, like a lot of people, when they talk about New Japan's great run of, of the last decade, they'll talk about different things that it was missing in terms of like, say, um, some a lot of people will say, oh, the tag division isn't good enough and there wasn't booked well enough. That's very true. Um, and other kind of, you know, too much um, of the same kind of pattern booking. And yeah, that's true, too. But to me, the biggest thing that I would have loved to have seen in this last decade of New Japan is that kind of wild, chaotic, hate-filled brawling. It's like, what does Ghetto have against that, that he never booked anything like that? It's so... <sighs> It's so cool when it's done. And the last time I can really think of that in New Japan was when Shibata and Sakuraba came in in 2012 at that G1, which was Okada's first G1. It was really kind of around the start of that period. And it was like this thing that was thrown in amongst there where you had these guys going in and just wiping out young lions and Makabe would be stepping up to them. And it was, it was some, there were some crazy scenes and I was like, Oh, this is just, this is amazing. And you'd think you'd get more of that, but they never, you know, those guys just kind of became parts of the roster and they were obviously, Shibata was obviously great and very valuable, but I don't know. It just seems like those kind of wild chaotic scenes were never really something ghetto wanted to, to do wild brawl matches were never really like they do brawls in new japan but it would be very just you know half-hearted brawling like you didn't there was no intensity to the brawling trios um like you had down as it starts trios match breaks down after it ends that kind and, of thing. And, and, yeah in new japan was the master at this because you had the stuff with Rusher and his crew. Then you had the Choshu crew. Then you had the UWF feud. Then you had the... The 1995 TV with oh, Masashito Bull of the God. Woods. <laughs> the Isolation Gun stuff. And then the Chono, I mean, the early Ch- Murder, Inc. And then NWO Japan. I mean, God, I watched Mor- some... Murakami, Murakami and his pals coming in, in in the early 2000s. And like guys like Azuka having to basically fight for their lives or die you know it was it was crazy stuff like you know you know actually when we got a glimpse of it not to that degree but it was a little bit it got a little bit crazy for a second and they uh well that was that was cool but that was its own unique thing but i was gonna say when they brought in they did a little noah feud in 2016 and they had uh they had nakajima and Oh God, who was it? Nakajima and Marafuji did the G1 and they had Shiyazaki and a bunch of other guys come in, I think, on the on the final night of the G1. They did a big tag and Shibata was on the New Japan side. Shibata was just like opportunity for chaos. I'm in. And him and him and I think Nakajima was were like shoot headbutting each other, which obviously not the not the best thing in the world, but it was it was pretty gnarly. <laughs> they were like <laughs> bleeding from the headbutts immediately, and this wide brawl, wild brawl erupts, and they just kill the dead like straight away. I know there was like stuff with the New Japan um, ownership stake in Noah and everything that was kind of was happening around them in the background. That was really probably what stopped it. But yeah, it would have been. But there's no reason New Japan can't have. They, you don't need an outside promotion to be involved to book that kind of stuff. And Ghetto has never really 
shown much of an interest in doing this and um god like a I, I know you can't have crowds reacting properly but in the last year of new japan during this pandemic it would have been a lot of fun to just kind of create some wild chaotic thing that you build off just to throw something different into the mix but uh yeah well here's what it comes down to and then we'll move on to the actual results and stuff i guess for some reason ghetto seems to have an aversion to booking the stuff that he thrived in and that was happening in promotions that he thrived in even if it goes against the history of new japan Bad tag team division, you know, for the main heavyweight tag team division, you know, badly booked. There are very few native tag teams, you know, that whole thing. Um, you know, brawling, etc. Like, he, for some reason, he doesn't seem to like borrowing from his experience as a wrestler in his booking. Or, but or to be, to be fair to him, on probably the more important, like, if we're being honest, in terms of the more important end of things what he was able to book in terms of long, meaningful programs. When yes, you yes. talk about Okada's rise, Okada Tanahashi, Omega Okada, what he was able to do there is also unlike anything he was ever involved in. The, because a lot of the times in the promotions he was in and during his career, like during the 2000s New Japan, like the big problem was there was no focus. Like there'd be crazy stuff, but nothing ever really built well. There was no payoffs. There was you know nothing what, though, like what see- we... I, I don't think that's necessarily what it is because, okay, I mean, I granted maybe it might have been Liger's idea, who knows, but, like, the fact that the Suzuki-Liger blow-off was them doing a very technical match and not doing the one-on-one brawl everyone had been waiting for, I feel like does go with all that, though. Uh, who knows? All right, well, let's get to the show. Opener, Mitsumoto over Ruka Egan in 803. Mostly a comedy match between Egan spitting. He spit far after an early chop. They even showed it on replay like it was a great high spot. Another time, Omoto chopped Egan, and Egan spit in his face. That happened a lot. Egan did a 20-rep giant swing. After seven near falls, Omoto got the pin with the Pat O'Connor roll reverse cradle. A lot better than you'd expect from two guys at that age, star and three-quarter. Okay. One of the things I loved about Noah and thought it did much better than All Japan, and it's very interesting to me because you would think Baba would be more likely to do this than an unencovered Masawa. Masawa seemed to see the old guys as having something to offer much more than Baba did. Well, yeah, well, it, here's the thing. Uh, he pretty much had no choice. <laughs> um, he's not bringing in um, a lot of foreigners. True. I mean, and the mid card of Noah is not what the mid-card of all Japan was in the 90s. So, I mean, those guys have to do, th- you know, have to do more than what, you know, they had been doing. Helmamoto was the fucking junior champion well, in this era. All, well, it was, but that was kind of a gimmick reign. That said... It's still the champion. <laughs> also Kikuchi, though, because until Noah launched and they launched the junior heavyweight division... Kikuchi had been basically either in prelim, regular prelims, or kind of mixed into the old man comedy matches, going back to the 93 match where people kind of assumed he got brain damage. I'm not sure if that anyone actually has ever said that for a fact, 
but that was always the assumption. And then, which match did you say was the one? The, that... the Fuji match from 93. Oh, he takes oh, all yeah. those backdrops on his head. Gotcha. Yeah. So, but then he comes back here, you know, and having a real run and he looks great. Albeit eventually doing AI have a hard head gimmick and doing the thumping headbutts. But, but still, like, he's bringing in foreigners and he's bringing in a lot of them are mostly unknown foreigners. So I can't be, think there's that much of an expense, especially when you have Nippon TV footing the bill for so much. Yeah, but uh, these guys are all, and these two in particular, ending a rusher. I mean, these three, those three guys, you know, have been there for so long. They're cult heroes, especially Agen. And I mean, yeah, of course they're going to be over, and 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 they go out and and they have a really good little match here, and and it's this it's the perfect like Noah opener to do is have these two in a singles match against each other, and Agen and Agen and Agen doing his, his spinning spots, which was so over. I mean, for those you've never seen it, it, it it's it, the fans would have newspapers. In the crowd, it was like a Gallagher show, and he's bashing a watermelon with Sledgematic. So, so if if Agen spit out in the crowd, which he would always do, hopefully it would be, get on somebody's newspaper. And uh, I mean, it was a top spot. I mean, they, the crowd popped for that, but they would pop for any major high spot in the match. It was crazy. What uh, what promotion um, that wants to. Uh... You know, it doesn't buys into the COVID as a hoax kind of stuff that isn't all that kind of way of thinking. Uh, which promotion like that is going to bring back the spit spot uh, as soon as they can? Well, well you got to condition it. You got to condition your crowd. You know, <laughs> well, that's something that they can do. with though. vaccines. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking earlier, though, when you think about it, it is actually surprising that Japan is the country where someone did this as a routine comedy spot <laughs> relative to all of their thoughts about masks and spitting and spreading illness my favorite time they would times they would do it is when the fans weren't prepared because usually especially rusher he would get Agen over the ropes and he would hold them and he would pound his chest yeah there was those times when they would shotgun it and, and all of a sudden Agen spit and nobody was prepared for it and <laughs> get on top of them. <laughs> It's Class. like it's like Bix. Like I get what you're saying there, but it's it's like when um whenever it becomes like a fan interaction kind of a thing, all that hygiene stuff kind of goes out the window. Like I think of like stuff I saw live when I went there with the Brahmin brothers. It's like oh my god, I want to be nowhere near this. Um, when you see uh like Tanahashi at the end of his big title matches when he's he's going back up the ramp and. And all the people are uh, handing him like t- towels or whatever, Wipe and he's wiping his yeah. sweat and then handing it back to them, and they're like clutching it to their face. And I'm like, oh no, <laughs> well, I don't want and to. Yes, do that this at is all. the country where fans <laughs> routinely lined up to get assaulted by heels. So, and this is also the country where they would so use women's underwear in vending machines. So. <laughs> Japan's an interesting place. <laughs> and there's some different uh different types used. of used. I don't think I don't think they were sold as unwashed, were they? They were sold as no I don't know, used. Would it, you know take take that for what it's what it is. But anyway, enough of that. All right, uh second match. Timon Honda, Juno Zamina, and Shosh Kikuchi beat Kishin Kawabata, Masashi Ayagi, and Masao Inoue in ten fifty eight. It seems these guys are just filling time. Gee, you think? 
is a meet up in Calabata after a fireman's carry into a diamond cutter, the old Mark Mero TKO one star. That's just standard, no undercard six man. Then we get to this Michael Modest and Donovan Morgan over Ricky Marvin and Kodoro Suzuki in 11.55. Morgan shaved his head bald, so he and Modest look like partners. It came across like a good undercard tag team, like maybe La Resistance, but without Sylvain Grenier. Suzuki did a tornado dive on Morgan. Lots of cool moves here on both sides. They badly missed the spots. Modest has a unique version of the Samoan drop he did on Marvin. Eminem did a 3D on Suzuki. After a couple of blown spots, Eminem did a reverse of the La Resistance all, all revoir. Marvin and Suzuki did double 619s. Marvin did a Silver King dive to the floor and a moonsault. Finished as good as Marvin whipped on two attempted 619s. Modest gave Marvin a reality check. Nova King. No. <laughs> and they use their day after tomorrow, which is their double press slam on Marvin, dropped to a power bomb, three stars. Okay, the the reality check was the air raid crash, right? Yes. But what, what now Nova did use it, but I don't remember what he called it. So Davis called two different moves the Nova Kane, and both were wrong. <laughs> no, he he did often basically say oh, was that. No, but, was Nova's the Kryptonite Crunch? Yes. Kryptonite Crunch. But exactly. He, he did often, if someone was doing an Emerald Frosian or Air Raid Crash type move, he did consider them kind of interchangeable, which I, I mean, I get, which I get, but still seems kind of weird. Um, But still, no, yeah, that's the Kryptonite Crunch. That's that's what that was best known as in the U.S. at the time. Uh, well, because, well, Crash Holly had done it as the Crash Course, but... I think that was towards the end of his run in WWF and only on B shows. And of course, this is the Schwein. It's the same the sh- move. Well, the, sh- the Schwein is all over this, all with the person all on the same side, right? With the person taking it instead of the legs on one side and the head on the other. Oh, okay. There's a, that's a, a subtle, a subtle difference I never picked up on Bix. Good eye. Yes. Oh, I should also mention too. Um, I was watching the newest Botchamania earlier. In the reading series this time was reading from, I guess because the match had shown up on YouTube recently, reading from Dave Meltzer's report on the infamous heavy metal Jerry Estrada hair match. And it was the one of the guys from OSW Review doing the reading, and he seemed surprised and laughed out loud at seeing Dave use the term Japanese rolling crotch hold, which I thought was funny because... Anyway... Let's move on. Now, Alan, about the, I mean, this is the juniors here, and... See, I thought you'd like that, but whatever. Ricky Marvin and Coder... I, I, I liked it, Vic. Sorry, I just had nothing to say about it. <laughs> I'm, I was, I'm, I had something that's going on. I wasn't even really paying attention. Uh, Ricky Marvin and Coderow, that's a tag team. They were really good, Alan. And Modest and Morgan were good, too. So this is, I remember this being a really good little match. Yeah, like... It, Ricky Marvin and Code, and it, it was a, a real, it was a real fun little match. I don't think the botches took away. We're going to talk about a match later on the show with some botches. Let me tell you that really took away from a match. This I didn't think was near as bad in terms of that. To be honest, when they came to the ring, I was maybe it was because uh, I've probably seen this match a couple of times before, and maybe I just remembered that it had a couple of botches in. So I was like, okay, geared up for a messy match. And by the time it finished, I was like, that was a fun little match, and. The thing is, with, with Marvin and Kataro, I came to really like their stuff when I when I was 
getting big into into Noah, and, and I'll kind of later on touch on this show in terms of my overall Noah fandom and kind of how it came into it. But um, 06, 07 were like probably my peak years of kind of Noah fandom. And especially in 07, Marvin and Suzuki were off the charts great. Like their match at the Briscoes at Budokan Hall, a, a bunch of stuff they did. Marvin, um, Marvin's 2007 was unreal because Ricky Marvin, whilst being super talented and extremely impressive and um innovative early in his career in the early 2000s when he was doing Tor Yuman and um in his early years in Noah he was he could be a little bit ropey you know things could go a little awry with Ricky Marvin but by the time 2007 came around he had gotten he had really refined his work and he had kind of got some veteran smarts to him which we saw he'd have an abundance of later in his career. He's still a, a great veteran worker. But 2007, he was awesome. And Kataro was someone who just needed those couple of years to mature as well. And he was starting to get really good by that point too. But here in, in 2004, they were still, they were getting there, but they weren't quite there yet. But with two good solid veterans, particularly Mike Modest, who had been working in Noah for so many years and was used to working with the Noah guys and uh, knew how to work with the flashy guys, knew how to work with the more straight ahead types like a Takashi Sugira. It, it just it was it was a real it was a real good piece of booking to put these two teams out there with each other. I, I can't think of a better thing they could have done with these four guys. I think this was the exact right match at the right exact right time in the card because it really did need to kick up a little gear just to kind of, you know, make the crowd feel like they were they were at a show that was going to have some quality to it. Um, so I think it came at the at the right time. Uh, I think Mike Modest is supremely underrated and unheralded guy who I think a lot of newer fans probably don't know a whole hell of a lot about because. You know, after his Noah run, he kind of really did nothing in the wrestling business. So, you know, if he had had if he had had that kind of veteran U.S. indie run in the, the late 2000s or maybe a stint in ROH later in his career, obviously he had the early ROH stuff, which didn't work out. Him and Gabe seemed to come up, have a lot of issues together. Um, but, yeah, he just I think. If people were to go back and watch some of his stuff, I think they'd be really impressed. I, I watched the match where he um, goes against Sugira in, I think it's a junior title match. Yeah, I think Sugira wins the junior title um, from Modest in this match uh, from 2002. And it's brilliant. It's really good. And it's a lot of it is down to Modest. And he's got this weird charisma. He'd do this thumbs up thing that the crowd always really liked. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Oh, he he gave interviews, I think, about that, where he talked about, oh, who was it that gave him the advice that was just, you need one comedy, big comedy spot, and then you'll be golden? I'm trying to remember who it was that told him this. Uh, I'm guessing it's one of, like, the veteran foreigners. So maybe, like, a Vader or a Scorpio? I don't know. Scorpio, yeah. Maybe some, but, someone like that. It would be that he'd hit the ropes while the opponent's on the mat, like kind of like half speed go off the ropes, stop, look at the hard cam and give a big thumbs up and smile and then do an elbow. Huge Cheshire cat smile. And the thing where the crowd loved that they'd always laugh. And I think the reason why was 
Mike Modest looks like this angry gremlin. No offense, Mike Modest. He just had a What's he just he had a real head? yeah. Yeah, he just had this real mean look about him. Like, he's a guy, like, you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of. And then all of a sudden, he'd break out this huge beaming smile, the thumbs up, and that whole facade would come down, and the crowd would just erupt with laughter. And Sometimes it would be done at weird moments in the match, but I don't know. Overall, I thought it was I thought it was good. You talked about matches being in the right place on the car. Well, here comes in this match in the wrong place. Scorpio and Richard Slinger beat Makoto Hashi and Akatsuki Saito in 16:44. Way too long. Slinger's offense looked weak for a guy who's been around as long as he has. Scorpio did some flying moves that didn't really, didn't, didn't really look good. Hashi did three of them headbutts off the apron on the Slinger. Even though the Japanese team carried a match, Slinger pinned Hashi after his Chattanooga Choo Choo, which the fireman's carrier turned into a power slam star and a quarter. Yeah, <laughs> not the right placement for this one. This probably should have yeah. been for the juniors. <laughs> so. is, is it, does it seem strange that um, Scorpio was, I don't know, for this would have been his first time in the Tokyo Dome since when? Early 90s? Like, it seems like he might have been a bit more excited about like Scorpio does shows now in front of <laughs> a lot smaller crowds than this that he seems more enthusiastic for than he did here. Scorpio and Noah could be tricky. I mean, there'd be those times where he looked really, really good. And there'd be those times where he looked like he'd just rather be anywhere else but there. So, I mean... I mean isn't that pretty much Scorpio's entire run in wrestling from, like, 1997 uh, to the last five... till like, five years ago? There were spurs where he was more motivated than others, but as as we know from Dark Side of the Ring recently, he's a pretty volatile guy. <laughs> yeah, he he's that. But uh, I mean, yeah, you would think so, but yeah, they 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 gave these guys way too much time, way too much time. So they screwed up in that regard. They could have gave some of that time to this match. Akira Tawa and Takuma Sano beat Daisuke Ikeda and Muhammad Yone in ten forty nine. It opened fast with Suplex going back and forth, and Tawi even using his Norawa Toshi, the choke slam, on Yone for, in the first 90 seconds. Thankfully, Tawi's time in was limited. Oh, Sano looked, fuck off. Sano looked better than Dave Seam in a while, including a wicked missile drop kick. He did a Northern Lights bomb on Yone, followed by a double fist up off the top for near fall. He finally got the pin with a Northern Lights bomb off the middle ropes. This match felt like something above and beyond what you'd figure from this position on the show. Three and a half stars. So Olakeda came uh, unlike Scorpio. He seemed pretty amped to be in the in the dome. Because again, Akeda in Noah could be hit and miss, just like Scorpio. But he was he was a hit here. He was he seemed excited to be wrestling Tawei as well. Like and the crowd were excited to see those two guys against each other. You know, we talk about the the you know the big five of all Japan and how they are now. Of course, Masawa. You know, sadly passed away. Akayama still wrestling. Kawada now a businessman with his restaurants and stuff. And uh, Kabashi, you know, we talk about him. Tawe looks like he's your insurance broker. <laughs> if you look at a picture of Kira Tawe now with the gray hair, the glasses, he lost the weight and stuff. He looks like a guy you would see hanging out at the at the country club or selling you insurance. He's got the grandchildren. Yes. Remember when he had the grandchild recently? Yes. And the pictures of that was adorable. It's, it's it's crazy to see him like that, because you remember Tawei being this you know large man, you know, the Kawada. Bastard. 
Yeah, Kawhi and everything, and now he looks like a grandfather. So, props to Talway. But yeah, I remember this match, and it was a really good match. So, um, and those guys could work. All four of them could work. Uh, I think one thing that we haven't mentioned that we probably need to mention and all this is, you know, Dave was talking about the TV situation. The Noah TV Dave is watching basically is only that show, only the 30-minute the, the show. He's not really watching the Samurai TVs or the D. Coliseos on well, G+. Well, he, he was the getting the G-plus version of the big shows, like this. The big shows, but he's not watching the regular TVs. He's not watching Other Samurai than the TV. Yeah, he's not watching the non-Budokan D. Coliseos. So, yeah. so Dave, Dave's not seeing the undercarders much at all, so... I mean, talk about Sano. Sano was always good, you know? I mean, it's just it's, it's what Dave is seeing, you know? He's not seeing these guys work in, in the normal situations, so... Right, and also, if you were seeing them show to show, you would realize that, maybe more so than Akeda, that Yone had become a really strong mid-card tag team wrestler. Yeah, so... And he would stay as such for several years after this. Like, and again, that sort of 07, 08, 09 era, uh, Yone was a integral guy in a, a lot of tag teams that they that they put out there. He, he had some really strong matches. Um, just a, a quick one there when you mentioned the TV situation. Um, with Samurai TV, would you have gotten like sort of full Cork and Hall shows yes. around that time? Okay, Absolutely. That's, that's cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, we got, I mean, I was buying everything. And uh, at this time, I'm kind of slacking on. I'm starting to get out of that as much. But uh, in 2000, 2002, 2002, 2003, I'm buying everything. And, uh, yeah, you get all the complete shows. You know, basically the, the TVs, uh, the Noah, I mean, the Samurai TV, G+, whatever. Would so. Samurai specifically do certain venues? Like, would it just be Cork and then maybe one or two others? Or oh, no. Kind of no, it was just whatever... It was basically whatever Nippon TV wasn't shooting. That yeah, they get on TV, and like for example, the the uh, Kabashi and Kenta versus uh, Emblem match from January '03 at KBS Hall. That's Samurai TV. Yeah, I'm looking right now. They would like just pick out a random tour. They would get like maybe one one to two tapings a tour, you know. The three sixteen oh three Diffyariaki show, which was the uh, two out of three falls with Kanemaru Hashi Segura against Marafuji Kenton Kozaro was that that went thirty seven minutes. That was Samurai TV. It uh, seemed it seemed like anything of note that you'd want to watch made tape because when I was like when I was online and going across like DVD or DVR or a place like that and in the later part of the two thousands, like I never remember seeing discussion of people being like oh we never got to see this match in full or we only have a few minutes of this or this one never surfaced like you'd get it with like say 90s all japan where there was a bunch of things where well they there's a reason because they did a lot of that for commercial video yeah yeah and then samurai tv obviously didn't exist until what 96 so um, yeah yeah all japan had, had yeah all japan had their own commercial video thing where they would do shows just for the commercial video well, and also well, wasn't uh, wasn't VAP also tied in with Nippon TV too? Yes, and New Japan, God knows, New Japan did that too with Alice, where they would have sh- 
you know, stuff that were on the on the uh, Valis commercial videos. God knows I've watched all of them lately. Well, if I remember <laughs> right, the Valis branded stuff was all exclusive, and then the stuff that overlapped with TV tapings was video pack nip on. Yes. Yeah, there's stuff that there's some great New Japan stuff that only was on commercial on commercial tapes with no commentary. So yeah, really need I mean to, to arrange to get access to a Google Drive that has all of that. Because I've been wanting to watch it. Well, with New Japan, it's not even just that. There's also stuff that never existed on video until it aired on Samurai Classics, too, from the mid-90s. Yeah. So there, yeah, but there's a lot. But yes, by, the, by like the mid-2000s, at least with the big four promotions, you're pretty much getting everything if you want, want it. Yeah. All right. Now we get to the big gun matches. Kenta Namichimaro Fuji kept the GAC Junior Tag Titles over Kendo Kashin and Takashi Segura in 22-26. Wait, is it, Great I just up- realized, wait, wasn't uh, the Dragon Soldier B thing a few months before this? No, that was 05. That was 05? I thought it was 04. Okay, carry on. Uh, first big spot saw Segura throw in Marafuji with a side salt off the apron. Marafuji's about to be counted out, which in Japan means a title change. When Kashin, whose gimmick is he acts weird... Threw Marafuji back in the ring to save him. Sakura was mad. Sakura went to spear Marafuji, who moved, and he speared Kashin. Kashin went to slap Marafuji, who moved, but he stopped, thought, and slapped Sakura anyway. Kashin did Sakura's finisher, the angle slam on Marafuji, but Sakura was the one who broke up the pin. About midway through the match, they stopped the comedy spots. Marafuji powerbombed Sakura off the apron when Sakura was holding on to Kashin to keep him going over, but Kenta hit Kashin, who let go. Match got awesome after this. Marafuji went for a sure noai, but Sagiri blocked it and hit a two-star pile driver. Sagiri did a German suplex and floated over with a dragon suplex. Lots of great near falls ending with Marafuji pinning Sagiri after the sure noai off the top rope. Four and a quarter stars. Yeah, Alan, I mean, they had the cushion, you know, stuff at the start, but they settled into the, to the match, and yeah, it was a tremendous little match here. This might have been the first Kenta and Marafuji match I ever saw. I oh, always wow. I always try to it, it's hazy for me, but I remember I I remember the first time I saw them as a team because I had it was probably the 2003 PS50 Paris Slam Top 50 wrestlers um uh, at the end of 2003 that both of them finished very high and it was my first time seeing their names. And I was like, who are these guys? And I was like, I can't pronounce this one guy's name. And this other guy's name is in all caps. What's that about? Just real complete ignorance. But back in those days, you know, you see something like that that's intriguing to you. And and you don't just say, I don't know that. That's stupid. You go, oh, I'm going to find out what this is all about. And I'm excited to learn about, you know, that was more the attitude back then. And um, yeah, I I. I this was the first time they uh, that I got a chance to see them, and um, I was blown away. I couldn't believe it. it. Just the it was it was the stuff towards the end of the match with like the the top rope assisted Shira Nui and and um, just a, a bunch of the different things they were doing, and and it would be very soon after this I would see some of the matches they had in '03, and uh, which were a lot of them were definitely better than this one and yeah they just they were incredible the run they had was so good um i have i have a lot of thoughts on this and kind of questions for you guys as well so um 
I'll try to be as quick as I can with it. Um, cash in. Uh, <laughs> so, like, Kenta Marfuji, they had had such a big 0-3. And I'm sure for you guys who are following it live at the time, Kenta Marfuji were, like, one of the it things, one of the big, exciting things in Japanese wrestling. Absolutely, yes. And seeing this big show coming up, you probably had all kinds of thoughts and ideas of, of who might make for great opponents for them. You get Sugira and Kashin. Is that a disappointment or when it's announced? Yes. Uh, well, I don't even remember specifically, but if you're looking at how this show is being booked, and yeah, we'll get to that more in the next match, I think the biggest expectation, and re- because the Kentamura Fuji team was not a, really a big part of the New Japan feud at all, I would say that the expectation would have been them facing a New Japan team if they were going to team up here. You know? Yeah, but no one New Japan's kind of on ice at this time in a lot of ways. Yeah. No one all read... Japan, no one all Japan are, well, you know, is it on ice? A New Japan you, guy was holding you got the titles. <laughs> yeah, but you're you're closing it off with that and yeah. if you were to do if you were to do something with Kenta Marufuji would almost be kind of keeping it alive whereas they wanted to clearly kind of close it off with the Kanemaru Ligerman. But I don't know, maybe you could do see Kanemoto and Minoru were I guess on different sides of the tracks in New Japan. So you, and Minoru was already heat, so you couldn't do those two as a team. Um, like Ghetto and Jado, maybe um, might have been, and they could beat Ghetto and Jado. So, or at least I think they could beat Ghetto and Jado, um, unless they were holding IWGP Junior Tag Titles at the time. I don't know how well that could have been really good um, in 2004. Um, I, I just don't see an obvious... Well, with, your IWGP junior tag champs at that time are Gato and Jada. Okay, so... so yeah, they had just beat uh, Dragon and Curry Man the month earlier. That would have been some match, Dragon and Curry Man versus Kenta Marafuji. That would have ruled. But, yeah, I like to me, like the cash-in thing is kind of like... Because I wasn't following at the time like it's all i viewed him through everything that came afterwards and dragon soldier b and just what a lunatic he, he is and you know yeah if you were going to do a new japan team at the time real quick i would have done uh kanemoto and wataru in a way they were the regular yeah. they were the baby faced tag team at the time so, so Kanemoto was gone. He wasn't teaming with CTU, not CTU, um, New Japan Black. That was all. It would have been CTU already at this point in 04. So, yeah, Kanemoto would have been babyface. Yeah, would in a way. Yeah, and you can beat in a way. So, yeah, that would have that would have been that would have been amazing. Yeah, for sure. Um, if you were going New Japan, yeah. Yeah, but, but Kashin, like, Kashin was one of those guys who he had this appeal about him. Uh, to, the, to crowd, the crowd were reacting to him. He they treated him like, and maybe that goes against my Bob Sapp argument earlier. Like this crowd were reacting to him like a star. Although you did have more, uh, more non Noah fans in this crowd, as Dave talked about with the walk up of New Japan fans and stuff. So there was more of a mix, and that crowd was responding to the guy. But if you're going to use all Japan guys, I mean Kazuyoshi, 
would have been better in, in the role. So, I mean, there's a lot there's a lot that, you know, you could have done. But, I mean, it worked. It was a hell of a match. So I, I didn't, like, some of the, the comedy stuff I didn't like, and it, it, it did get a little bit ridiculous um, at, at points. Um, I think when Cashin and Segura are actively fighting each other, I think that's kind of, it's, it's cutesy if it was happening on, like, I don't know, earlier on the card in one of the other matches, it would have been fine. In a big match like this, I didn't really care for that. Um, I thought Sugira's reactions to Cashin were kind of fun because he was just like, it's like, what are you doing? He just seemed confounded by this Egypt that he had to team with. And um, they obviously had the connection of both having the legit MMA experience and they did the the Gracie Train style entrance coming out. And um, uh, uh, Sugira was awesome here when when they did kick things into the high gear and even before that like but especially when they kicked things into the high gear it was you really got to see just how incredible Sugira was and was becoming like there's a moment where um it the match is really heating up and they're coming into that closing stretch and Marufuji goes for the Shirinui and uh, Sugira successfully completes the counter that they tried with Misawa and Marfuji uh, three months earlier at Budokan that ended up with a bot um, where he's halfway through the Shiranui and you, you kind of stop his momentum and you have him in essentially tombstone position. Misawa was Emerald Frosian position and they fell over. Um, but Sugira holds him tight for that tombstone and plants him and the dome comes unglued. And then he grabs Kenta and hits an insane German, holds on, does the roll through into the next German, like not the Benoit roll through, the Super Delphin style uh, Osaka German suplex roll through and hits a second one. And the dome is going nuts. It was maybe... Like outside of the pops for Mudo and Misawa, and then some of the reactions to the main event, it was probably one of the biggest pops of the night um, for that sequence from Sugira. And yeah, they Kanta Marafuji shine in a big way. Even Kashin starts to look really good towards the end of the match. Um, he uh, he does an unbelievably sweet, fast paced run up the ropes, flying armbar. Uh, the the old Rocky Romero Diablo armbar style move that looked incredible um, the match ends on a weird note uh, with what looks to be a botch but you can kind of explain it away um, Marufuji uh, Sugira's done a big kick out and then Marufuji goes to the top and it's looking like he's going to do the shooting star press and he jumps up for the shooting star and he just doesn't rotate. And it's really strange. And he's like, he's in senton position. And then he just, it's like he realizes if I try to rotate, I'm going to Hayabusa myself or Brock Lesnar myself. So I'm just going to bail on this and just drop back first into a senton. And it just doesn't look like he was trying to do a senton at all. So, it's so the, I, uh... I do think this was a botch. Like his form looked like he was taking off for shooting star. He lands the weirdest looking senton ever. Um, there seems to be a little kind of like moment of communication there. Sagira kicks out. 
Okay, so from how you're describing it and also kind of how I remember it, it's basically, oh, I forget, I think it was maybe Pete Stein called it in, like, Death Valley Driver Video Review 100, the German air show sent on when Hector Garza did something similar in the rematch the week after the Santo heel turn in 96, except that was to the floor. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was just out of control, and... It just really didn't seem like something he was intending to do. And, and when they landed, there was, uh, it seems like there was a bit of communication of, yeah, you know, uh, don't, or do kick out of this. Uh, this is a bad way to end it. It's not how we wanted it. So Sagira kicks out and then Marafuji picks him up, puts him on the top rope and goes up for a, a super Shiranoi. And, uh, yeah, it was. Was there a name for this since this has become the Moves show? Uh, what was, wasn't there a name for a Super Shiranui or am I? Uh, I think uh, it was just it was... Avalanche or whatever. Avalanche style. Yeah, you know, okay. Nadar, well, Nadar um, Chiquino. Yeah. Oh, when he did the when he did the one man Spanish Fly, I think that had a that, that definitely had a name other than Spanish Fly, but I don't remember it. Yeah, but anyway, he 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 took him up and. He did that, and then it still got a big reaction on the finish. It was, I think, it would have been nice if it ended with the, the shooting star. I think that would have just worked a little bit better. But this was at least uh, something you've never seen before in terms of a move looking like this senton. So worth uh, worth checking out for that alone. Absolutely. And, and right. Kenta, Kenta and Marfuji were that like they kind of sort of broke up the following year, but geez, they were. They were at one hell of a big deal. Like for me, someone coming in and discovering Noah, they were a huge part of the draw to me. And then for you guys, I'm sure many others who had been watching all along, like they were a key ingredient. So a hell of a run. Next match is for the junior heavyweight title singles version. Yoshinobu Konamaru pinned Juice Dunalanger to win the title in 1736. Konamaru had a brain bust in the first minute and people thought it was a finish. In the sixth by the match, Liger powerbomb Kanemaru on the floor. Kanemaru barely beat the 20 count. Liger did a hard powerbomb in the ring. It was the best Dave seen on Liger in a long time. He looked great. Had one of the best matches of the year. Finished off Liger Uishote in a brand buster for near falls. Kanemaru reversed the superplex to a DDT up the middle of the rope into, into the ring. He got a near fall with a moonsault and second one a brain burst for hitting the spinning brain buster to win the title. Four and a half stars. Yeah, Liger's best matches, you could say, in this era were against Noah guys. Uh, yes. That said, how much of that stuff is Dave watching that he made that comment here? Because the Noah feud ended what? Like, less than a year before this? I mean, the tag team feud, I mean. Yeah. So, okay, yeah, the, the final tag title change was January 03. So yeah, this is very recent, so I don't know what he considers a long time, because not to take away from the other performers in those matches, but Liger is, Liger is the best guy in all those matches. It's his heel work that holds those matches together. Yeah. Yeah, Liger was just a an absolute charisma machine, great dickhead in in those bouts and just kind of riling up, riling up the uh, Noah wrestlers, riling up the fans. It was, he was fantastic. There's that after one of the tags, there's that backstage confrontation. I don't know if you know the one I'm talking about, but there's this backstage confrontation between him and the Noah guys where 
he's just like oh, he's he's really creating a scene. It, it's oh, oh, is it the match where he was spitting on the young boys at ringside? Might have been, might have been. I'm I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, different kind of spit spot, uh, a little more heinous. But um, uh, yeah, he was he was great in this feud. I didn't actually rewatch this match this week because. I had watched it fairly recently for um, WH Park's uh, Liger podcast when he was uh, when Liger was retiring, and uh, we did a show on this match and I think one other, and uh, so it was still fairly fresh in my mind as just being an awesome match and an awesome performance from Kanemaru. Gotta give him his props. Like, I took me a while um, of being a, a Japanese wrestling fan and Noah fan to appreciate Kanemaru because I don't know he's just he's not the he's not the flashiest guy he's not the visually he's not the most eye-catching guy I think that's a big part of it um and you know what he is he's like I mean I would say less so in this era he's I'd say he's flashier in this era he's got the diving DDT and stuff but I'd say overall he's like He's a cha- when he's less flashy, he's like a Chase Owens type, type, but better. Where he's not necessarily flashy, but he's always in the exact right place at the exact right time. Oh yeah, and you could tell um, uh, watching English commentary on on New Japan since he's been there. Um, whether it's other wrestlers that do the commentary or just Kevin Kelly himself, they'll put over like how Kanemaru is just like the ultimate wrestler's wrestler and they'll use it to kind of put over his heel tactics like he's got all the tricks in the book but they also you can tell her are talking about just in terms of knowing how to be a good worker he's got all the tricks in the book um he's he's great and he's um it's amazing how his career has had the longevity he's had and the the staying power he's had and the knack for being in the right place at the right time to land himself with this comfortable gig in New Japan because he was in Noah for the longest time and then he made the jump with the Burning Crew in 2013 to, to go to All Japan and he was in All Japan for a while and then that started to go sour. He went back to Noah and then New Japan took ownership of Noah. They were doing the Suzuki Goon angle. He joined Suzuki Goon as a traitor to Noah and then Suzuki Goon come back to New Japan after that business relationship is done, and Kanemaru just comes with them. And now he's a very much a valued member of the New Japan roster. So yeah, good on him. He's but he was so good here. And like at the time, I I would have seen this match on paper in two thousand four, even in the years after it, and I would have been like, why is Kanemaru getting the Liger? title match you know and he, and he gets the the kenta title match the following year so like, why is kanemaru getting the slot like just just seemed strange to me but in hindsight now it, it makes all the sense in the world and he deserved it and yeah. now we know that you have a motorola cell phone <laughs> a lot of, i have people that i work with that have that have that and uh when they're message thing and yeah <laughs> I hear it all the time, so this is new for me. It's a it's a Samsung. I Samsung, Samsung. Yes. Yeah, yes. Samsung Galaxy. Yeah, I'm not a phone guy. My mom's phone. 
Um, but I do think Liger and Connemara also just had really good chemistry in particular. Oh, yeah. On top of everything else. And also, just before we move on, I find it funny that as much as there's so much less Japanese wrestling bullshit politics these days, still, if someone is leaving somewhere for New Japan, they have to backdoor it. it yeah. They do the Suzuki-gun thing like Hanamaru did. They come in, they become a regular after working Super Juniors like uh, Shingo and... Um, why well, I'm forgetting his name all of a sudden again. Oh, Shing, Shing, Ishimori. Oh, is the one that I think... Ishimori. Ish, Ishimori, yeah. Sonata, absolutely. Shingo is the one that kind of went straight... Like, Shingo did do a bit of freelance... Uh, not freelance stuff, but he, he... Shingo worked other promotions towards the end of his Dragon Gate run, but he was still a Dragon Gate guy. He, he finished up in Dragon Gate two days before... No, one day before his um, New Japan debut, he went straight from one to the other, very much with Dragon Gate's blessing. Um, uh, because it was all it all happened over the course of a a weekend. I was over in Germany for WXW Tag League and um, 2018. So it was like I remember on the Sunday morning eating breakfast and reading about Shingo's last match in Dragon Gate, and then the Monday morning. Um, when we were checking out of the hotel, I was like down reception trying to get a stream of of the New Japan pay per view to see who was going to be the Lij guy. And uh, Shingo comes out, and I'm like, "Whoa, holy crap!" So yeah, Shingo did go straight from one to the other. But Kanemaru Ishimori, Sonata, like, oh my god, like those guys totally took the the roundabout backdoor way into getting into New Japan for sure. Yeah. All right, and speaking about guys who started the same thing, Yoshiro Takayama and Minoru Suzuki kept the IWGP tag titles over Wild 2, Takeshi Morishima and Takeshi Rikio in 1255. Suzuki uses quickness to dart away from all the Takeshi's offense. Suzuki is great in making himself look good, but his negative here is he made his opponents look bad. Oh, wait a second. Is that why Jack Arnold kept calling him and Takayama the backyarders? <laughs> he did that. It was they almost were, like... they were the backyarders, and uh, Suzuki and Marafuji he referred to as the trampolining backyarders. <laughs> it was almost like the little shooter was so good he was embarrassing a pro wrestler with twice his size. Actually, it worked. That's when Rikio finally cornered Suzuki and slapped him. The place came unglued. It's like a young work the physical style with both, and he's a great worker. Late in the match, the two hundred eighty pound Takeshi's did the old rock and roll express double drop kick spot on Takayama. Takayama ended up pinning Morishima with a high German suplex. Three and a half stars. Yeah. Takayama and Suzuki were such a great tag team. And, you know, they were bouncing around from promotion to promotion. And, yeah, this is the... 2004 is the beginning of the Suzuki renaissance in a lot of ways. Because he's working everywhere, basically. And he's back in pro wrestling and yeah, this is, this is really fun shit. Uh, this was the time where, and for a couple of years till after this, Suzuki had the aura. Suzuki still has the aura now for sure. But for like, I don't know, for about 10 years now, everyone likes Suzuki. Like, even though you know he's like, he's like Suzuki and he's a magnificent bastard and total heel sometimes when he wants to be. But everyone really does at their heart of hearts. They really like Suzuki and they love watching him wrestle. Whereas in the mid to late 2000s, 
there was and, and Dave has talked about this. Dave talked about how he used to think Suzuki was this super uncooperative guy, and then it was wrestlers that wrestled him and um that would tell Dave, no, 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 he's like the best worker. He's a dream to wrestle with, and um and it, it's all just part of the act. And uh, that that kind of what turned Dave around. And I don't know how much that kind of changed other people's perception, or if it was just. Suzuki's performances themselves getting so good and so refined around like the, I, I think of the 2012 Tanahashi King of Pro Wrestling matches a real turning point to kind of move Suzuki into almost legendary status uh, but in 0405 he was like you just thought he was the most uncooperative just uh, didn't know how to work with people refused to work with people just a, a mean, nasty guy. That's the perception. That's the vibe he had. And was, I loved him for it, too. It was you know great. When the perception really started to change, I think, when he wins the Triple Crown in 06, and he does the gimmick where he's disrespecting the belt, the belts, by coming out with, instead of the actual belts, he comes out with the action figure belts wrapped around his fingers. <laughs> oh, wow, I, I don't remember. Oh, That's it cool. was great. And I think that was when people, re at least, you know, in the West, really started to understand, okay, this is a gimmick, he's pulling it off very well, etc. Or, you know, as I said a couple of years ago, Minoru Suzuki is an utmost professional whose gimmick is that he's wildland professional. Loki is someone yeah. whose gimmick is that he's an utmost professional who is actually wildly unprofessional. <laughs> <laughs> Tremendous. I love it. And see, I love Suzuki forever. You know, I, was, I remember, remember when he was a young lion watching him and stuff and then following him in through PWFG and Pancrase. So he was a real fucking badass at Pancrase before he started losing a lot of his fights and stuff. But man, he's still Suzuki. So he had this aura about him and, uh, you add that on top with Takayama and their perfect fit as a tag team in this era and uh, great chemistry together. Yeah, and, you could and tell th they were just boys as well. Like they just were best pals. Yeah. So, all right, that's not even the biggest tag match on the show. As Masao and Yoshinari got kept the GAC tag titles over Keiji Muno and Taya Kei in twenty one forty six. Cloud crowd blew the roof off for Muno and Masao, and again when they tagged in together for the first time. Masao immediately hit a tiger driver. Muto hit a Shiner Wizard. They were very careful to only do big spots back and forth. Muto then did Masao's Emerald Frosia, but Masao responded by doing a Shining Wizard. Masao did his Tope Elbow Smash, Tope Elbow Suicina, and Muto used a Missile Drop Kick. Kei nearly knocked Masao's teeth down his throat with a Super Kick. Masao didn't seem happy at all about that. Match fell apart at the end as Masao and Muto got tired. Muto used Shining Wizards on both and used Moonsault on Nagawa and sold his knee. Kei did a sleeper suplex on Masawa, followed by a Hawaiian smasher. Masawa finally pinned Kei, but the miss spots at the end took it down a tad, three and a quarter stars. It was still cool as shit to see Masawa Muto in the ring together. No. Yeah. Could have been better, yeah. But it's still, it's it's, it's the seeing them, you know? It, it's amazing what we've been through with the last, uh, I know, the last uh, six months or so of Muto's GHC title reign, and and how awkward that was at times to think this was 17 years ago that he was there. <laughs> there is the legend and, and you know, the match was kind of going a bit awry. Spots were getting botched. Imagine if you told someone then and there that, hey, yeah, in 17 years, he's going to have a, a 
multi-defense GAT title reign. And he is going to still be getting tired and botching spots. And uh, yeah, you'd be you'd be wondering about that. Um, but uh, this was yeah, this was rough. Um, the the early stages of the match kind of have those kind of especially I can imagine if you were there, like you'd have goosebumps up in the in your arm for um, Masawa and, and Mudo and just the charisma they had the. The hold they had over the audience it was there was a palpable buzz as they say in the crowd but the match just never really got going for me and then as they got into the final stretch where maybe they could have saved it and, and done something uh, had a, a, ended on a high note they just ended on a read like the worst stuff in the match was towards the end there's one botch where Masao and Ogawa go for this double team I, I forget what what the double team was they were going for but it, it falls apart in just awful fashion, like really, really bad. They just drop Kea, like no impact. There, there was, it was just kind of like they just let him down or he fell down. And you can see Ogawa's thinking, should we go for this again? And Sawa just gives this look of, nah, fuck it, just, I don't know, go for a pin. And Ogawa has to go for a, he just goes for a jackknife cradle on Kea, who essentially hasn't had a move done to him in like a minute. And he's like having to sell doing this, like Kea, like probably should have just kicked out a one or whatever and just had it not look so stupid. But he, he lets it go like right to a near fall, like a 2.9, even though he had no move done to him. Just really awkward stuff. Um, and the match just ends on a, on a kind of really flat note, unfortunately. Dex, any thoughts? I don't know if I really have much to add to that. Um, I, yeah, that, just the unfortunate thing is that once all of these dream matches opened up, it was past the point that most of them could have been anything close to what people wanted out of them. You know, I think you can say yeah. that about all of these, you know, New Japan versus, you know, King's Road guys, for lack of a better term. But still, it's awesome seeing it, though. Well, not just New Japan. You know what I mean. The former New Japan guys. Yeah, it was awesome seeing it, though. So, Yeah, it wasn't them at their peak as work, as, as you know, in-ring workers. But still, they had the charisma and everything to pull it off. So Yeah, but you also had stuff like... I found the Kabashi-Chono match uncomfortable, oh. for example. Because we already knew Chono had a bad neck for years. And it seemed like he felt he had to take all these head drops and stuff, and I don't know. Yeah, the, 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 the junior stuff really carried most of this interpromotional stuff. Anyway. And Takayama, pretty much. In the ring, they yes. carried it. Absolutely. Yes. Main event! Kanakabashi pinned Junakiyama in 35-34. First 10 minutes was a slow filling out process. Akiyama did a DT on the apron, did a knee to Kabashi's neck, and drove him to the guardrail. Which is the old Adrian Adonis Dick Murdoch Cap Bradley move. Akiyama did a knee drop off the middle road to the back of Kabashi's neck as he was face first on the apron. Akiyama did a flying forearm off the top, locked on the guillotine. Kabashi made the ropes. At one point, Kabashi made a comeback of 75 rapid fire chops and three more spinning chops. Kabashi did a vertical suplex on Akiyama off the apron and both crashed to the floor. That spot was nuts. Kabashi was beating from the mouth after his landing. That couldn't be good. Kabashi used a half Nelson German suplex, suplex to a powerbomb and a lariat. Akiyama came back with a German suplex and a shining wizard. Kabashi teased doing a German suplex off the apron. It wound up with a Kabashi with Kabashi in the middle rows, but Akiyama from the apron gave him an exploder to the floor. It teased a double count out. Akiyama gained in about 17. Kabashi just beat 20. 
couple exploders for Border Falls. Nakayama tried a second guillotine and went for the pin. Nakayama did a wrist clutch exploder, exploder 98 for near fall. Kabashi's selling was unreal. Kabashi reversed a fisherman suplex to a brain buster. Then came the big finish as Kabashi and Nakayama traded half nestling German suplexes and exploders until Kabashi's a lariat for a near fall, moonsault for a near fall, and then the burning hammer for the pin. Both guys saw like they were dead for a long time. Some of this stuff was just too dangerous. But this match was on a different level from anything Dave has seen all year. Five stars. Alan, I go to you. It's it's so good. Um, so for for record, I had this at number eight of my best of two thousands pro ballot uh, that Dave Ditch organized um, a good number of years ago. Uh, it's I'm like the seeing the other matches in the top ten. Like it's amongst some great matches. This is like my number one was Masao Kobashi from the year earlier. So I do think that is of that kind of style of match at around this period. I do think that is better than this, but this is still incredible. Um, totally uh, the the exact right way that these guys, maybe not for their health, but in terms of what people would have wanted out of this match in the spot for the building they were in. This was the exact type of match um, because all the, the, the pacing was perfect. First of all, the, the playing to the crowd with the, the mannerisms, everything was, was done so, so perfectly for like the, the fan at the, the back of the dome and the, the highest spot of the, the dome that was, you know, you, you could feel what was going on in the ring, no matter how far away you were. And then building around some tentpole big spots that you could do and then spend a few minutes, like the old Triple H Undertaker thing, where you could do your big spot and sell for a few minutes as the crowd is just kind of getting kind of back, getting their breath back after what they've just seen. Like, it was, it was, this is big match wrestling to me. Um this kind of style, if in a, in a big building like the dome, this is this is how you do it. If if you want to really click in that in that kind of building and and create something legendary, and and they absolutely did. Uh, from the the moment they come out there and just the the way they start to match off and um, when they're doing the the chop and, and forearm exchanges, the the place is electric. It's it, the atmosphere is is great for the whole match. The the wrestlers make uh, everything they're doing like it's thirty five minutes, but there's not a a minute in it where you like lose interest or get bored because they're just so charismatic, um, they're just so captivating in everything they're doing that they just keep your eyes glued to them and then they give you those big memorable moments. And for me, I I was listening to Wrestling Observer Live in. July of 2004 on Sports Byline. I know a lot of people have been talking about uh, Observer Live on IATA and Byline in the last couple of days with Dave doing that IATA memory show uh, over the weekend. Um, and uh, I, I was listening to an episode there and, and I was not overly familiar yet with these guys with Japanese wrestling. I had dipped my toe in the water. It had far from clicked for me yet. And Dave talked about it was like some point in the show Dave was like so Brian we had this big match this big Kobashi versus Akiyama match that happened at the weekend in, in Tokyo Dome it, well, it was a, they went they went to the next level with it there was a exploder off the top rope to the floor 
And I heard this and I was like, oh, a, a what to the what now? I was trying to visualize this in my head. And it was funny because like I, yeah, you have to kind of think that I'd seen so little Japanese wrestling that when I was like visualizing anything, like I was visualizing a WWE ring and a WWE setup. So I was picturing, you know, like the, the end of a WWE ring at the, the where the ramp is and a guy up on that top rope like i was picturing a wwe setup um not that this was any a particularly different to that but in my head i was just visualizing like a wwe arena for some reason but i just i was just like this is the the maddest thing i've ever heard like i need to see this match somehow um and i didn't really know about how to get japanese tapes or anything like that but the wrestling channel was um really starting to come into its uh it's four around this point and and for the first nine months or so of the wrestling channel um it wasn't on the the digital service that i had it was on sky digital i had ntl digital and um so i didn't have but my best friend in school um he had it and he would i'd go over to his house and watch some of the things that were interesting to me ring of honor um shoot interviews that kind of stuff And, and he'd occasionally record stuff for me and and give me a tape of like a, a bunch of random stuff that had been on and I'd watch some of it, skip other things and, and whatnot. But uh, I was, I was like, I wonder when this is going to be on the wrestling channel. So I hadn't really been paying attention to Noah. I knew it was the one with the green ring. Like I was basically all I knew about it. And, and I was trying to figure out in my head, I was like, is this the biggest promotion? Is, is new Japan the biggest promotion? wrestling channel didn't have all japan so i was like oh maybe all japan's the biggest promotion because obviously i knew of like the history there um so i i just really didn't understand and and i was i was thinking i was like earlier this week i was thinking you know i'm i feel like i saw this pretty soon after it happened so i wonder it would have been the wrestling channel I saw it on because it was definitely 04 I, I saw it so I reached out to um, Sean Herbert who I've had on my show doing retro things about how the wrestling channel all started and everything that went behind into how that all kind of got set up it's an incredible story just uh, check it out if you're a PW Torch member the two shows they did with Sean it's it's so fascinating but um yeah, he, within minutes of me sending a message, I sent a message to him and Mo, Mo Chatra, because Mo, Mo, Mo would have done the voiceovers for all the, um, like, at the start of every match, he'd be like, and then our next match here on Pro Wrestling Noah, we have uh, Kenta Kobashi taking on Jun Akiyama. And, uh, it, yeah, it, Mo Chatra was a huge Noah online supporter yeah. uh, at this time. And, it you know, even back then, <laughs> there was always little heat between the fans of certain promotions and Mo Chatra had heat with the New Japan fanboys of the, of the era. <laughs> Stewart and, and his uh and his uh you know people that was supporting him and yeah it was it was interesting to uh go on the internet in those times of the old IRC chat rooms and message boards and uh yeah, there was a little little friction there between the New Japan fans and the Noah fans because Mo should have Mo should have snuck in some digs when he'd do like because New Japan would be on the wrestling channel too. So when he was doing the intros, he'd be like, In our next match, we've got the average wrestler, uh, 
Masahiro Chono, who's clearly not as good as Noah Star is. Uh, yeah, that's stuff like that. Yeah. Because <laughs> the, the, the two biggest heels to Western New Japan fans were, were Mo Chatra and Dave. Think about that, folks. Because Dave, Dave would shit on New Japan all the time for, you know, not, not being like Noah. And he, you know, he wouldn't cover New Japan like you would cover Noah. And yeah, there was there was a lot of heat on Dave for the New, for oh, the, the oh. Western New Japan fans. I just found when I was trying to look up Zach Arnold's site because um, there was a big gap. So I looked up like the last one before this on Wayback, and I didn't click to read it. But one of one of the headlines, or no, it was one of the analysis pieces, I guess, was why New Japan, not Noah, is still Japan's number one promotion by Ditch. Oh, well, Ditch became. When Ditch went over to um, Japan in 06, I think, he he raved about the Noah he saw. Yes. No, he turned around on that, but it was, I, I was amused by that when I saw that earlier. And, of course, before we move on, too, we, we'd be remiss in not mentioning what the New Japan, the West, well, I would say Western, the English-speaking, because it included Australians, uh, New Japan fans called NOAH, which was all caps N-O-W-A because they felt the NOAH fans were whiners, as in NOAH. Yes, that's what it, that's the acronym they use. <laughs> and they'd make fun of the green ring, and it was just ridiculous. Yeah. It was hilarious. I wish I saved all the... I have all those IRC chat logs on my Oh, there computer. was one time I remember where Stewart had to be, like, kick-banned from... Oh, was it Death Valley Driver or Happy Wrestling Land where Happy Wrestling just, Land. It, right. It was it was there where he just kept going off just typing Noah and stuff like that over and over. You, you see, it's funny because like I I just like all I knew of Stuart was I just would go on to Pressofan.com and I'd just read what he'd put up at New Japan. So like I wasn't seeing any of the arguments or anything like that. I was just following his New Japan site. So but that's how I lost like... my website was was through the whole Stewart HWL war of two thousand and six. He had a <laughs> Noah. Wasn't there like a Noah.proesufan.com? Like so he had a Noah thing he, on his He covered server, Noah. Right? Yeah, he covered Noah. I mean he 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 did that because he wanted to expand his universe. Yeah, because so, Jay was on there initially, dusa.proesufan.com. Yeah. And uh, Irving, that's about blast in the past, had his All Japan uh, page on there. So, uh, yeah, he I had... I think he's still around. Yeah, I think Irving is still around. But, yeah, there, there was a... Uh, it was an interesting time. Interesting time. But so, I, I, now, real, I, real quick, real quick... Um, did you know about the uh, Adam Swift thing that was going on? The subscription service that people were having in the, the UK? Did you ever know about that at the time? Before? No, no idea. Yeah, Adam Swift, um, who went on to do big things. And I get, in, in, a in lawyer and executive at Access TV, yes. Yeah, he had a Noah subscription service where people would send money and they would, he would send them stuff every month. By so, mail or like yes, okay. mail. Oh, we talk. Oh, yeah. They, they say it's for the digital era. <laughs> yeah, so this would be it, it, it was DVDs though. I think at one point I, I think it was VHS at the start, but then became DVDs. But yeah, yeah, that was a Noah subscription service around in that in that time period. 
Well, uh, I, I sent Sean and, and Mo this message this morning, and, and within like less than five minutes, Sean had gotten back to me with um, scans of, uh, it's incredible, scans of like tape IDs and editing marks and all this that they had done on the show. So it was like they got it in a batch of, of tapes in, in September. And, and he talked on my show about all had they how the tapes would come in from Noah and who he dealt with over there and, and all this kind of stuff. But they got the tape in September of 04. They edited on the 17th of September and then it aired over the course of two shows. So the first show aired on the 7th of October, um, 2004 and the second show aired on the 14th of October, which to be honest, like that's a, that's a reasonable turnaround, like three months for it to go from happening in Japan to being on TV in in the UK and Ireland is is pretty cool. And um, yeah, I remember going over to my friend's house and, and watching this and being excited to see what this match. And I, like I always say that the the show the where Japanese wrestling clicked for me was a couple of months later where there was a Noah block that aired the um also from 2004, the Kenta versus Takayama and uh, Takayama versus Kobashi match in the one hour. And I watched that and I was like, that was when it clicked. And like this one I watched and I was like, it's amazing. But I don't know, I just didn't really understand the drama and what they were going for. Um, my eyes weren't really trained for it the first time I saw it. But once I went back and watched it again a couple of years later and then uh, multiple times after that, like I, I just right up until watching it again today, I always come away from it. It's absolutely blown away. Uh, you, you'll you'll get a kick out of this, Chris, um, on on the uh, what Sean sent me with the the different stuffs that were on the wrestling channel, I guess probably that week. And he's got kind of show codes and, and tapes used and you've got three PW 032 CZW 041, um, mm. FWA, a Gaia, a bunch of different Gaia, MLW 031, new Japan, uh, different new Japan things. Um, or FV, I don't know what that might be. Oh, or F shoot interview. Probably. Shoot interview uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, um, ROH 038 SCS. So that Can was I just super say, by hard. The way that, I love that sometimes you say it as ROH. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you know, I don't always say it as ROH. You actually, we were earlier you said it twice in the same sentence, and one was ROH and one was ROH. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I mean, we were jealous. I mean, we were jealous that there was a wrestling channel over there and we couldn't get none over here. I mean, well, this yeah. is this one's going to pop you at the last two on here, Chris. Uh, Wild Side. 013 and okay. Memphis 009, the, the classic Memphis. Oh, yeah, great. They had Wildside on there. I remembered opening the vault being on there, but not. Uh, not yeah, Wildside. opening the vault. That's how, you know, open the vault. A lot of this stuff got out there. It's because of that, too. So TN, TNA was on there, but like, yeah, it was. It was an amazing thing, but uh, uh, one of my just again, just a little a side funny thing was um, when I was watching this. In, in my friend's house, uh, his his granny walked. His granny lived with him at the time, and and she uh, she walked into the room, and like it was. I think it was during the the spot. It was around the brainbuster or the crazy exchange of suplexes. I remember, and she says to my friend, "Doing." She goes, "This is what you're doing," and I was like, and he was he just kind of no sold her, and then I was like. 
huh what does she mean and then like like a couple days later i I, he reveals to me that he's been wrestling training and he's he's training with fergal devitt uh this is before fergal devitt was like i knew who that was like i just (laughs) thought he like i literally just thought it was some like bozo hustler guy that was training wrestlers (laughs) in in bray i was i didn't know it was this young prospect that was going to take over the world but yeah my friend was was training with him and uh um yeah like his grand he was was very disturbed that this was what he was doing when she was watching a Kobashi deliver the gnarliest brain buster of all time to Junakiyama. Yeah. All right, so that's the Dome Show. Let's talk about the aftermath. Harley Reigns returned to the U.S. after the Dome Show and was raving about like crazy. He stated it was the single greatest pro wrestling event he'd ever seen. You can imagine the ground that covers. It's pretty high praise. <laughs> Pretty high praise, man. Yeah. And for the record, by the way, uh, Devitt at least does not start working shows with New Japan until April 06. So I guess he starts in the dojo, what, about six months to a year before that? Oh, yeah. He, uh, he went over, um, well, he did some LA dojo stuff in oh, late 05, I think. Yeah, he was around before. That, yeah. That's that's when he went over and did his little tour because he, he went over to America twice. And it was true. Oh, Shelton Goldberg, I think, with the Shelton Goldberg. Yes. Yeah, it was true. Him. Um, yeah. But Devin made it connections. And it was like he, that guy had to really like he had to really be motivated. And it wasn't like there was a clear open door. Like it wasn't like you could go and, and do well in Rev Pro and like you'd be on the same show with like a Okada and you'd get it. Not oh, like, no, so not then. It's not like how Will Ospreay had it, say, for example, like it was. Like, Devitt had to really, it was a roundabout way of getting into New Japan. And once he got there, it was hard times grafting in the dojo and battling through injuries for for years. And, and sitting sitting at the, the kitchen table opposite Naito with you not knowing a word of Japanese and Naito not knowing a word of English. And then, like, passing their, their translate over on their phones to each other so they'd see what each other were thinking and stuff like just crazy stuff to to try and to try and make it and um good on him for for doing it yeah absolutely and he the his kitchen. first match in the u.s was at the nwa 55th anniversary show against drew onyx yeah and drew onyx would come to ireland they drew onyx loved those guys so much and they loved him so much it, he'd that come wasn't the first one it, it was uh second that was the fifth of 57th it was a few u.s matches and i misread the profile go ahead <laughs> They would bring Drew Onyx over and he would be trained. Like my friend trained with Drew Onyx like a bunch um, around that time. And he would tell me about this guy. And I used to get it. I thought it was the Onyx that was in Wildside because there was an Onyx in Wildside. Right, Chris? Oh, absolutely. Yes. So I was seeing that guy on like the wrestling channel and reading about him on the Internet. And I thought that was the guy that was like over in, in training in, in the NWA Ireland. But no, I was like, oh, it's this other Drew Onyx. I have no idea who that is. But then when Kevin Owens was going for his or Kevin Steen was going for his tryout in WWE, um, he was he had become close with um, Devitt, who was already there at that point or i can't remember which of them went there first but anyway devitt told him um steen wanted to get in shape for his tryout and just kind of be ready for it and devitt told him you know this guy drew onyx i think he's near you in canada give him a shout he will get you ready 
and Steen gave him a shout and Steen said it was like the best decision he ever made. It was, it was, he credits Drew Onyx hugely in terms of him being able to do what he needed to do to get in the door with WWE. All right, so Kishin Morshima blood his right knee and will be undergoing surgery this week. He's off for at least three months. Guy had terrible luck with injuries. Terrible luck. Rick Steiner will debut his on the next tour with his big match on August the 1st to challenge Dice Kata for the WLW title at the company's next week's show, Nagoya. They're doing an angle where Kata wanted to defend the title in Nagoya against his usual tag partner, Muhammad Yone, but they're making it like Harley Race, who controls the belt, ordered Rick Steiner to get the shot. Steiner, 43, had been working for New Japan, but they stopped booking him. Worked a few matches in Missouri a few months back, trading the WLW title with Takeshi Morishima. Harley Race got Steiner to Noah base because his career was just about over at this point. Steiner's were a huge tag team in Japan a decade ago, but time has long passed, Rick, by when it comes to being able to work at the level they expect stars to compete in this group. Yeah, but he's Rick Steiner. You know, he's got the cachet, and he could he could still do stuff that would get over there. But and he's yeah, a I mean, champion. Yeah, so it, it it gives it gives like I said the cachet there and the uh, gravitas to that belt. He's a better. He's a better guy to challenge for the belt than some of the other guys that they had involved there. John <laughs> well, I'm just I'm talking about guys that were just like no names, you know. Oh, you so, mean Bullschmitz and the not Bullschmidt. Wade Chisholm. Wow, Wade Chisholm. Absolutely. He, he's the one who got Kabashi's first ever U.S. match. It's not Joe. Exactly. It was Wade yep. Chisholm a week earlier. Which is yeah. also probably one of the reasons that Kabashi was worried he was going to be taken as a heel by people who didn't know him at the ROA shows. Mm-hmm. All right, now let's go to All Japan. Satoshi Kojima went to the Tokyo Nose Tokyo Dome show. When Masao Nogawa in interview room in the press were there, he came up and challenged Masao for a Sumo Hall show on July 18th. Masao accepted. They're banking on Masao returning to All Japan for the first time in four years of being a big ticket seller. It's a very tough week to run a big show because they're just coming up the Dome show, plus there are two WWE events at the Budokan on the 16th and the 17th. Well, they announced 11,500. I don't remember what the legit number was, but that's what they announced, so there's that. But, uh, yeah. That, that's what we were talking about a while ago with the, you know, the guys working the uh, the different shows. So, there you go. Well, 11,500 Sumo Hall would basically be a sellout, wouldn't it? That's what that was. What was claimed again? I don't know but what I'm the. If you're claiming a sellout, it's going to look at least credible, I would think. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure that they they pretty much sold it out. You know what I'm saying? I don't Even remember. if they didn't sell it out, I don't think they'd claim sellout if it didn't draw. Yeah. All right. Results. They had a show on July 13th at a soccer professional gym number two for 1,150 fans. We have Masafuchi over Shiroya Sai. Nobukazu Arai and Grant Hamada over Ebison Hansen. Ebison Kikutaro doing a Stan Hansen gimmick. And Yuji Hino. Kazayashi, Taichi Shikari, and I-69 over uh, Nosawa, Mazada, and Katsushi Takamura by disqualification. Tokyo Gurantai. Kojima and Tomoki Homa over Taiokea and Blue K. Takamura and Shiro Koshinaka over Toshikawa and Nobutaku Araya. And your main event... R-O-N-D's Takamichinoku Jamal Umaga and Bull Buchanan defeated Keiji Muno, Arashi, and Ryuji Hijikata. 
and he's just Buchanan here because Bull Buchanan is a WWE. Well, of course, but yeah. So he has to be Buchanan or Barry Buchanan or whatever. Um, in, in 2004, would you have looked at that trios match and ever guessed that the two most important people in that match 17 years later would be Nosawa and Taichi Ishikari? <laughs> yeah. For those who don't know, Taichi Ishikari is Taichi. And Nasawa, of course, is the booker of Pro Wrestling Noah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alan, any thoughts on the results we have here? I, mean, I just, there's a lot of K-Dojo presence there. And guys Taka. who, yeah. yeah, guys who just, you wouldn't have thought, like, like, Shiori Asahi has had, like, a youthful vibe to him, like, within recent years. So to think of him wrestling back in... 2004 is crazy. Yuji Hino is someone who, um, he's had a good career. He's had some flashes of, of doing really well in, in when he's been given opportunities, but like, like he's got a good chance for himself now in DDT to hopefully settle down and and be a top guy. It's amazing considering how long he's been around and how talented he is and the charisma he has and how popular he is with, with crowds that he hasn't ever caught on as as a main guy anywhere. I don't know if it's him, his own decisions kind of making him bounce between promotions or whatever, or if it's promotions failing to kind of capitalize on him and doing bad by him. But yeah, it's like he's had a long career now, and and I, I, he did a champion carnival for all Japan in 2018. He was outstanding in it. His matches with Miyahara and Shingo were were just tremendous. Like the guy can go with anyone, and yeah, I just like I said, he's got so much charisma, and it's it's a shame that he never really. And Kengo Mishima is another. A lot of those K-Dojo guys, like, they were, they were so good, and you just really Shingo's, feel like... I'm not as familiar with him, I'll, I'll be honest, so... Um, he was Makai Mask number two. Okay. He was, uh, yeah, he was team... Him and Harada were the tag team at the beginning. The first two Makai Mask. Yeah. Um, was, was Taka, like... Was he pretty much booking All Japan at this point? Because, like, you know Muda, even if Muda is, like, in charge like he's not going to be doing the like mudo seems like a jerry lawler type who'd be bored by actually doing that like day-to-day uh, booking uh, kasayashi i know is booking um a lot in this era just with how pushed or so maybe yeah, Kaz, yeah, I could certainly and see. Taka, and Taka had, I mean, I'm sure Taka had his, his influence. Absolutely. I'm sure Nosawa probably was, you know, with how much of a Mudo disciple he still is. He probably was forming the, the seeds of that at this point and probably kind of, you know, learning from sitting around the table with those guys. And, um, yeah, it's a interesting promotion around those times a lot of a lot of wild names that would uh, appear in, in all japan absolutely dr dfc williams got to return on the july 22nd cork and hall show for the first time in this promotion in years doc got a really good last checkup from his doctor and has gained 19 pounds back in the past few weeks which those close situations say is a borderline miracle he's still hoarse but can talk better 
Doc and Tenugarichiro will face Arashi and Nobukatsu Arai when the main event has Toshikawali against Masuya Nagai of New Japan. The guy's former All Japan wrestler. Hiroshi Tanahashi of New Japan will also work the Cork and Hall show against Tamaki Honma. The plan is to be the build to Mudo versus Tanahashi. Tanahashi was a Mudo protege originally, and when Mudo came here from New Japan, he tried to get Tanahashi to come with him. But Tanahashi decided against it. As bad as New Japan has become, Dave sure Tanahashi has no regrets, since things here are far worse. Also, Nobutaka Raya and Gran Hamada will face Shiro Kushidaka Takalabori. This show's going to be a tough one, since Keiji Muno, Stushkojima, Kazuyashi, and Taiokea will be in Hawaii. Yes, the HCW deal here. But uh, the key thing in all this, how different is Japanese wrestling in the last 20 years if Hiroshi Tanahashi goes to All Japan with Keiji Muno in 2002? Have you guys read Tanahashi's English uh, translation of his blogs that they've been putting up on New Japan's website over the last like year or so? No. I mean, I've seen some of them, but not all of them. They are... You particularly, you guys would love them for the inside info you get to this era and the era of Tanahashi's first couple of years, the early 2000s. Like he, he doesn't hide stuff. Like it's all out in the open, and um, he talks specifically. There's one blog specifically. Um, they're short. They're short reads. Like they don't it's um they like if you if you read them all together it would be one big little probably a book length but each one individually is quite short so they're nice easy reads but one of them is pretty much dedicated to mudo's jump and um, mudo trying to bring him with them and he basically says that mudo just he was he was mudo's um protege mudo's ring attendant and mudo would would bring him out on dinner and stuff like that and then they had a real good relationship and uh um there was the the rumors going around of of mudo jumping and mudo just one night just took tanahashi out with him and just said matter of fact look i want to bring you with me Are, are you in and uh tanahashi just like oh i'll need to think about this and um mudo's like take your time and and tanahashi came back to him was just like no i think i'm i'm gonna stay where i am and mudo did not tanahashi says he really respects mudo that he he didn't push him any further on it and kept their relationship totally amical mudo was like that's that's cool um i totally respect your decision and i wish nothing but, for, but the best for you and uh um yeah i think it i think it worked out in the end for tanahashi yeah, and for what think, it's worth, since I hadn't seen these before, they're they're referred to. They're in the column section of njpw1972.com, and they're aces high is what they're called. And I think a part of the, the reason why Tanahashi stayed was, even though he was Buddha's attendant, he was extremely loyal to Tatsumi Fujinami, which is another whole thing. I mean, and that's part of the dragon lineage because Muda was Fujinami's guy. Right. So, Publicly, it was presented more as here is the latest in the Tatsumi Fujinami dragon lineage than he was Mudo's protege. Yeah, he was. Yeah, it was like the grandson. Mudo was a son, and Tanahashi was the grandson in a way. So, uh, yeah. But yeah, great decision on his part. <laughs> he toughed it out, and uh, I'd say it worked. Alan, is it now, a class of the two column? Um, it is Aces High number 22, 
and it's called Should I Stay or Should I Muto? He named that, I'm guessing. <laughs> All right, speaking of New Japan. It, it, was, it was in a Denny's, by the way. Uh, he, he goes into the details here. It was in a Denny's that Muto, uh, that Muto made the approach. <laughs> well, a great place to have a Grand Slam breakfast. All right, Antonio Noki was in North Korea this past week trying to put together another peace festival similar to his two-day deal in 1995 that drew the two largest crowds in history of pro wrestling. They're looking at doing a New Year's Eve for the annual Indoki Festival. Because of how totally screwed up New Year's Eve show was last year, really came to it in Japan. Plus, in Japan, he'd be competing with both Pride and K1. Anoki will be back in Japan for the July 19th show in Sapporo. The company is also working on touring China in March. Oh, Anoki. <laughs> doing Anoki things. So, what can you do? All right, now we go to Figure Four Weekly. July 9th in Mie, before 1,800 fans, Anoki was at this show dressed up like a ninja, which confused everyone. So he cut a promo explaining it. You see, he explained he was a ninja today. Then he said, Ich, Ni, San, Da, and everyone went, Yay! So anyway, Masuda Kakuhara beat Toriyano by DQ when Yano threw salt. This sounds like the greatest New Japan show of all time. Chris, you got it. You got to mention it's through salt, all caps, three tilde bangs. Three tilde bangs. Yes. <laughs> That's how you know it's F four W. I don't know. Yes. If, was was it Brian or Vince? Or this is this Brian. Part? This is Brian. Yeah, because Stewart's sending Brian the stuff, and Brian, Brian was more adept at being descriptive than Dave was at the time. Hiroshi Tanahashi and Masuki Naruse beat Manama Nakanishi and Hiroshi Nagao in eleven forty five when Tanahashi made Nagao submit to the Dragon Sleeper. Main was elimination match. They saw Masahiro Chono and Kazunara Murakami before he got hurt. And Makai Mask number one, Junji Arata. That group's still around. Team up with Mitsuyu Nagai and Katsura Shibata. Not in mask here. Uh, beating Yuji Nagata, Roshi Tenzan, Osama Nishimura, Togi Makabe, and Yutaka Yoshie in 23-42. Shibata, who's getting a huge push since he's the next challenger to Fujita's IWGP title, seriously, won the match for his team in 23-42 by pinning Nagata with his sleeper hole kick. Oh, yes. And the rest of the results in this car. We have Heat over Yusuke Taguchi in your opener. Hiroki Goto over Akiya Anzawa. Kagehara over Yanobe Q. Jado and Gato over Takamas 4 No Samurai. Koji Kanamoto, Kanamoto over Taro Inoue over Shinsuke Nakamura and Naofumi Yamamoto. Hirosaida and Taisoshi Goto over Kensuke Sasaki and Katsuko Nakajima. Tanahashi and Naruse over Nakanishi Nagao. And then the big elimination match. So that's July 9th. We'll go talk. We'll do all the results and talk about New Japan as a whole after that. July 10th in Shiga before 2,000 fans. So I'm in the Shimura Vittoriano by DQ when Yano threw alcohol at the referee. Brian was entertained to hear how, that Yano was outraged after being DQ'd as if this came as a surprise to him. Kensuke and Nakajima beat Nakamura and Taguchi when Kensuke pinned Taguchi. Nagata over Koji Kanemoto with a wrist clutch exploder. And Chono and Shibata beat Tenzan and Yoshie in 1622. Shibata's new finishers, he puts a guy in a sleeper hold, and when they're almost unconscious, he runs and punts them in the head with a hard kick. We have Makabe over Tatsushi Goto in your opener, Jado and Gato over Samurai Kakihara, Heat, Hito, and Wataru Inoue over Takamas 4 and Naruse, Makai Mas 1 and Nagai over Nakanishi and Nagao. Young Lion credit matches here Tanahashi over Anzawa, Tanahashi over Nefumi Yamoto, and Hiroki Goto and Tanahashi went to a five-minute draw. Then Tanahashi beat Goto in 47 seconds. 
Then we have Nishimura Yano by DQ, Kensuke Nakajima over Nakamura Takuchi, Nagato Okamoto and Shono Shibata over Tenzan and Yoshie. July 11th, in Gifu, before 2,800 fans, we have Chono over Yano by DQ. Yes, Toru Yano with the DQ gimmick is not working superstars. Three matches from the top of the car. Yano tried to throw alcohol at Chono during the match, but Chono thwarted it with an umbrella. Brian cannot believe the things he writes about this company sometimes. Hiroshi Tanahashi beat Katsuhiko Nakajima in the semi-main event, which has been one of Nakajima's biggest matches ever. He's still only 16 years old. And Kensuke and Liger be Nagata and Hito in the main event when Kensuke pinned Hito with a lariat. Liger has turned himself heel for the first time ever in New Japan, working toward a world tag title shot with Sasaki. His new deal is that he wears all black because that's what bad guys do. And actually, they're real subtle build to this. He had a show in Osaka Pro, and instead of bringing his old friends Kanemoto, Samurai, and Wataru in him, he brought the dashly trio of Jado, Gato, and Takushi Takamura. Betrayal! The results of this card... Kakihara and Inoue went to a time limit draw, 15 minutes. Minoru Suzuki and Tiger Mask 4 defeated Osama Nishimura and Chinya Makabe. Kanemoto and Samurai with Jada and Gato, Shibata and Goto over Narusi and Taguchi. Tenzan Yoshio over Makai Mask 1 and Misuya Nagai in 70 seconds. Nakanishi Nagao over Nakamura and Yamamoto. Chono Ryano by Niku, Tanahashi over Nakajima, and Kensuke and Liger over Nagata Hito. So that's the lay of the land at 2004 New Japan, Alan. What are your thoughts? A couple of things jump out to me. Um, Nakajima, 16, barely 16 at this point. Um, I'd have to double check, but I think he might have been 15 even in the summer. No, actually, I think he's a March birthday. Don't ask me how I know that. But um, uh, yes, uh, March 11th. So yeah, so he he, he was he was 16 just, then. Yes, he would have just turned 16 a few months. Yeah, before. but. It, it's crazy um the opportunities he was getting the legends he was he was putting the ring with but here he was wrestling a, a, a definitely a young still but a, a very much a made Hiroshi Tanahashi in 2004 like he was he was a proper guy on the roster an up and coming star and they had these singles matches and I don't know if they had any more this year that Nakajima was doing bits in New Japan, but they never would have a singles match or even to my knowledge be opposite each other in a tag. Because when Nakajima did that G1, he was in the other block to Tanahashi. So I was like, wow, if you think of like current Nakajima and all the charisma he has, like or any time from the last couple of years, like what him and Tanahashi could do together, it would have been so special. I don't know if we'll I don't know if we'll ever see that, but it's um it will be one of those kind of dream matches that got away, I think, if Tanahashi kind of moves into the senior years of his career and and we never we never get to see it while he's still somewhat uh, able to perform at a main event level. Um, there, a big problem for me with, with New Japan at this time is um, it seems like every match, and I, I can see this because uh, a couple of months back, I was looking at, at downloading a bunch of 2004 in New Japan and sort of early 05 as well. And I was going through these shows and like looking to see like what shows I'd want and, it seems like every match on every show has at least one guy in it that I find really uninspiring. And it's like every match I'd be like reading the listings. I'm like, oh, I like him. I like him. I like him. Ugh. okay. And and it was like a combination of guys who like you would have liked maybe at some point earlier in their career. But and now they were kind of older and like like a Fujinami like maybe who like you know in 04 like your 05 is he 
you know, he's only able to do so much. And then, um, yeah, just different guys who I just wasn't really a big fan of. Like, you got the Yano stuff, which, okay, it is what it is, but he's all over these shows. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know, it's, uh, they, they had a great G1 that year. I mean, the the month following this, they had one hell of a G1. Uh, Adam Summers would always call it, like, the most underrated uh, best G1 but that nobody knows about. Um, but Outside of that, I thought 2004 was a, a kind of a rough year for New Japan. Yeah, Yana, this is Yana really getting pushed hard with the with the gimmick at this point in time, and uh, it's very prevalent <laughs> on New Japan shows, and the fans are into it. I mean, and again, this is 2004. <laughs> he's doing he, he so he's been doing you know a version of this tour, Yano. For 17 years. That's <laughs> amazing. And all because amazing. he was entertaining he when imbibing at wrestler weddings. Yeah. So, yeah. Bix, any other thoughts on uh, 2020 Japan here? Uh, mainly with Nakajima just wanting to throw in, like, you know, on t- for, for all of what Alan talked about with how m- much more well-rounded he's gotten over the years. He's... D- He's still like an underage teenager when he he's a major part of the match of the year the following year. You know, when it with him oh, and yeah. Sasaki against Kabashi and I forget was it was Kabashi and Kenta, right? No, Kabashi and Shizaki. No, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yes. I always get that one wrong for some reason. But that's like his big breakout like as a worker. And he does not look remotely out of place in that match. Yeah, and it's 2008. They do all the uh, the matches with Kenta, um, and they would do the. Uh, I think for me, it's the 2008 match of the year, the survival. Uh, what's the? Yeah, survival match, basically like the gimmick where it's it's always a tag. It's a four on four, but it's a tag continuously. And when someone is pinned, a new guy comes in um, until you run out of having two people. Um, like it's an hour long match. It's it's burning versus Kensuke office. It's it's one of my favorite matches of all time. And they were also doing the Nakajima versus Kenta singles matches, building to their Budokan two thousand March two thousand nine match. Um so like Nakajima basically goes on a run in two thousand five onwards of having like match of the year level matches every year, like up until I don't know, like maybe 2012 or so might be the first year you could probably say he like he goes i've talked about this on some of my greatest wrestler ever shows with with case low and mike spears nakajima kind of goes on this uh, there's a period where he's still like awesome but he's kind of he kind of plateaus for a couple of years between 2012 and maybe 2016 and then grows his hair out and just becomes this big weirdo in 2017 18 and yeah he uh he just finds all this charisma and is like a totally different guy nowadays he's someone who's very comfortable with themselves and who they are as a pro wrestler and it's that's usually where you find guys entering their peak and speaking of people who took a long time to find their charisma chad collier debuts next month against tiger mass 44 tv match at cork and hall Collier has done some Noki Dojo shows in the U.S. Seems to be the best way foreigners can get the doors open for them in this company. Which we'll talk more about that when we get to a Noki Dojo. But, uh, this, yeah. I'm guessing, is not long after his WWE deal doesn't happen. Yeah. 
which was not a thing that people really knew about until Colt Cabana randomly mentioned it around when Art of Wrestling started. Yeah, um, Metal Mask. Yeah, but he had, because remember, the idea was he was supposed to be the team angle cruiserweight. And I'm not sure it was ever explained why he doesn't get signed or anything, but. He would have been so perfect for it. And, and as well, like if he played it like a little on edge, like you'd have Haas and Benjamin, kind of the the cool customers of the team, just, you know, like really good talented confident guys you'd have angled the the leader slightly kind of crazy leader and then you could have collier be the junior who's the undersized kind of full-blown like lunatic crash holly yeah crash holly is what i was thinking like you know that just pure like just off kilter kind of like what chad was in oh five oh six ring of honor basically yeah Cousin Murakami blew out his name out for about a month at least. He's questionable at this point for the G1. Well, he's in the G1. So there you go. All right, zero one. The All Steel Cage match show on July 9th, Cork and Hall was a disappointment, drawing only about 1,200 fans, even with three title matches. Koei Sato pinned the Predator, Sylvester K to win the U.S. title with a German suplex at 51. Shin Yashimoto and Yoshiki Fujiwara kept the Intercontinental Tag Titles over Masato Tanaka and Tetsuya Kuroda when Hashimoto beat Tanaka with an arm lock at 1448. Tetsuya Takeiwa kept the junior title over Minoru Fujita with his death ballot bomb at 1523. Fujita, during the match, did the Jimmy Snooker frog splash off the top of the cage. For the magazine photos, which are, of course, misleading, they had a cage that looked to be about 8 to 10 feet high. Takeiwa powerbombed Fujita off the top of the cage. Fujita came off the top of the cage with a splash. Takiwa also superplexed Fujita off the top of the cage, which reminds Dave of the Hogan Big Boss Man cage match from 89. They best those of you younger readers are laughing, except they actually did that spot twice, once at a house show in Chicago that Dave was at, and another on Saturday Night's main event. He'd never seen Hogan attempt to move anything close to that level of, and he doesn't want to say danger, but taking a bump at such a great height in his entire career. All right, well, it was at result. least three times because MSG. Yeah. And I, they didn't do it in Boston, but they were using the old cage, not the blue bars. So that's probably why. But it, should I save my thoughts on Takiyu until you, after you read the results? Well, let's read the, yeah. Yeah, let's read the results. Because oh, we had not one, but two shows with all cage matches. Akashi Tiger and Shinsuke Z Yamagasa over Yoshida Sasaki and Kirogi Waguda in your opener. Tommy Wilson over Ricky Landell. More him in a few minutes. Oh, I wonder why he's here. Well, we're talking about that in a few minutes. Leonardo Spanky, Joel, and Jose Maximo defeated Nuri Hoshikawa, Junkasai, and Osama Namaguchi. Steve Carino over Jason the Legend, Psycho Simpson, and Tom Howard in a four-way. International Junior Way title, Takiwa over Vegeta, and then Hashimoto Fujiwara over Tanaka and Kuroda, Sato over Predator, and then our main event, Run for the Fire Festival, Shinjiro Otani and Watara Sakata over Hirotaka Yakoi and Ryuji Sai. Rowdy. Now, the next show was All Cages on July 10th in Niigata, which drew saw 3,000 fans. With Hashimoto and Hirotaka Yakoi over Predator and Tom Howard. Spanky did the snooker splash up the cage and team with Kataro Kanamura and Jason the Legend to beat Riki Choshu, Tomohiro Ishii, and Takashi Yuano. Yes, World Japan. <laughs> World Japan folks on this one. Opener, Tommy Wilson, Ricky Landell were for Yuki Takahashi and Shinsuke Z. Yamagasa. Minoru Fujita teamed up with the Maximos and Kiroga Raguda to beat 
Tetsuya Takiwa, Neryo Shikawa, Osama Nemaguchi, and Akashi Tiger. Psycho to Death meet Jun Kasai by referee stoppage. Koei Sato, Ryuji Sai, Takao Mori with Steve Carino, Jason Kanemura, Jason Legend, Leonardo Spankyo, Riki Choshu, Tomihiro Ishii, and Takashi Yuano. Atani and Sakata over Masato Tanaka and Yoshito Saki and Hashimoto and Yokoi over the Predator and Tom Howard. I wanted this time with something else. Go ahead, Bix. Okay. It's hard to read the description. I know Fujita was fine, but it's hard to read the description of the Takiwa Fujita match and not think of uh, Hoshikawa. Because wasn't it basically the same spots that gave him the brain injury? Beyond the cage. No, that was a cage match. Was it a cage match? I don't remember being the cage. cage matches, yes. Yeah, I don't think I've seen it before. For whatever reason, I associate it with it being in a cage as well. It was like power bomb off the top of the cage, like all the same stuff described here. I don't remember being a cage match. I can so. double check. I mean, it'll be the last thing on his cage match. Um... But Chris, but, you're gonna well, Bix is checking that you're gonna tell me who is Tommy Wilson. I want to tell you some other things. George King was Jason the Legend. Uh, Psycho the Dev Psycho Simpson was um, Skull Manson. Who's that? It's a Texas guy. But he had been uh, around for a while as Psycho Simpson. Yeah, Tommy Wilson was. Um, Wasn't that a SoCal guy? He was um, he was a SoCal guy. He he worked for like a Empire Wrestling Federation, SoCal Pro. He teamed with Ricky Mandel, not Ricky Landell, but Ricky Mandel. Okay. He's a Tom Howard. He's a Tom Howard trainee. He's a Tom Howard trainee. So that's why he's here. Did he do PWG? I feel like there was a Tommy in early uh, early. I'm PWG. sure he probably did work on the early shows. He probably yeah. did. But who's doing the? Is is a Carino? I assume doing all the Carino booking. Carino and Tom Howard are probably doing doing it. Carino's getting his guys. Tom Howard's getting his guys. Yeah, it seems like guys are coming coming from all different places. And I suppose if Carino Carino's working in different places, if he's seeing people he likes, he can probably be like, "Hey, guy, I've just met in Texas. You you do well in zero one. Here's how you get over there, or whatever." Um, so yeah, it's. It's a wild cast of characters and guys who they probably didn't have to pay a ton of money to. And Landell, 18 years old, is a protege Carino, just graduated high school about a month ago. And he's starting full-time in the Zero One Dojo as a student in October. Hmm. Okay, so... I, I, I used to... Th- sorry, go okay. ahead, Bix. I was just going to say, yes, it was a cage match. It, it's the okay. next run of all cage match shows uh, in October. Okay. Had uh, TNA done a lockdown... I don't think TNA had done the lockdown at this point. So the zero the first one, yeah, yeah. Did zero one come up with the or all cage yes. show idea? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Uh, I used to think when he'd appear on Ring of Honor, and he'd have his his young boys, Ricky Landell and whoever else, and he'd have his uh, his personal ring announcer, Bobby Cruz, and he had um, Guillotine Legrand, and he'd come out to the come into his entrance music but we would have like the big match version with the intro into the in- entrance music and he'd have the streamers and it'd just be this full-blown japanese wrestling aesthetic that chris hero had like i don't know if that was him like how much that was him 
just wanting to be a have the image of a cool Japanese wrestler or how much of him was trying to be ironic shtick I'm doing a Japanese main eventer gimmick and being over the top with it like I think it was a balance of the two but for me at the time I just thought it was amazing like I I just loved the Carino presentation back then oh yeah it was it was entertaining and he got over absolutely all right, now let's get scummy. DDT, July 9th at Funabashi Arena for the 750. Kenshin, all caps, went to a, a no contest with Kudo, all caps, in your opener. Handicap match, Shinya Hashimoto, Shichichimiya doing his Hashimoto gimmick, over Shoko and Cherry. Then Shoko Dino over Maneo Fujita. Three-way match, Giant over Fatoshi Miwa and Hiro, exclamation point, all caps. Mikami and Tanamasaku Toba over Tomiko Hachimoto and Seiya Morahashi. Well, excuse me. Yeah, it says they won, but it says no contest, too. Who knows? Who knows? And Poison Sawada Julie, Takashi Sasaki, and Nakuma Sintain Kumachari went to a no contest with President Senshiro Takagi, Ruji Ito, and Masa Takanashi. Wow, Masa Takanashi was around in 2004. That's incre- That's crazy. Oh, Yeah. That yeah. is wild. I did not think he went that far back. He's, yeah, he's that, young. That, that guy has had some bad liquid injuries over the years. He's I think he might be close to making a comeback now. Um, like the whole gimmick with, with Chris Brooks and DDT is the Chris Brooks won't join any of the units in DDT because he's loyal to Masa Takanashi and that's who he considers his partner. And until Masa Takanashi comes back, Brooks won't be in any of the existing units, so that's a cool little deal they have in DDT. But uh, Takanashi's like he's he's very much involved in I think the um, uh, Gato move, Choco Pro, all that kind of stuff with Emi Sakura, and yeah, he's he's an incredibly smart wrestler. Like some of the most dramatic title matches I've seen have been when he's gone for the KOD Openweight title. They they don't do it very often where they give him a title challenge, but he's just one of the best underdogs you could ever, you could ever ask for him and Sekimoto in, I think 2010 or 11 and him and Hashimoto. uh, Oh, (laughs) Arishima a couple of years back. Like those matches are absolutely epic. So I pulled up his Wikipedia real quick. He started at dragon gym didn't graduate. Yeah, he was he was Toru Mangai uh, Dojo, and then he debuted when he was twenty in '03. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, he's he's older than I thought. Yeah, he uh, yeah he's turned thirty eight this year. Yeah. Osaka Pro Osaka Festival Game on July 11th for a two seventeen. Dale Qual of Masada Matoba three way Paro over Gama and Miracle Man. Big Boss Magma over Tiger's Mask. Goa and Black Buffalo over Takaku Fuke and Yutaka, all caps, and Billy King Kid and Ebison over Super Delphin and Kenshimbo Common. So, uh, Osaka Pro there, random show. Yeah, a little bit of the a end- different kind of main event from usual, though. Uh, they they kind of had cha- were changing some groupings in that era. PWC, the indie. Oh, Pro- don't say that around me, Chris. Like the auditors, Jesus, the bane of my life. <laughs> <laughs> The indie PWC Pearl's Crusaders promotion ran what was billed as his final show on July 10th in Fukuoka at Hakata Star Lanes 
by having New Japan's two biggest 80s junior heavyweight stars team up for the one of the first times, if ever not the first time, as Mask of Tigers, Torsiyama team with the original Cobra, George Takano, to beat Masao Orihara and Koji Ishinriki. Oh, yeah. No other, no other results. Of heavyweights. Yeah, no other results of the show. Yeah. Uh, but PWC, so they lasted, what, about a decade, I guess? Yeah, pretty much. Very scummy promotion. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, You got your mummies, you got your Shinji Takano, you got your Shinji Takano as giant zebra. But that was in the early days. I mean, in this era, they weren't, I mean, they were only running shows. So no, I know. And But really, I think what they're most considered most notable for these days is being where we have the earliest footage of the Rev Pro guys from California. Because yeah. Because was it? It was Blitzkrieg, American Wild Child, maybe Super Dragon, and who was it? Like Mr. Excitement, maybe? Yeah. And over in, like, 96? Yeah. So that's the earliest footage you can find of those people. And that's kind of the trivia note, main trivia note with PwC, I guess would be the best way to put it. Speaking of IndieScom... Ryuma Go went to Calgary to get some talent for an upcoming indie show, which will include several wrestlers from that area, including Teddy Hart. And Dave believes Ross Hart's going for the show as well. I need to see the conversations that Teddy Hart had with Ryuma Go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I'm sure that was something else. Do you think he ever asked, you think he asked him if he ever had sex for money? <laughs> he might have. All right, now let's go back to Figure Four Weekly. Latest from Ultimo Dragon is they probably really will be returning to WWE this fall. Their idea is to have him come back unmasked and work as a Psy. Brian's trying to think of something that he could book that would be even dumber than this. But he's at a loss. He should try harder. But then they couldn't even have him come in for a few months and build to a muscular contra muscular match with Rey Mysterio Jr. is beyond Brian, but he's not booking. Apparently, Steph thinks he's a handsome Japanese man that shouldn't be covering himself up with a mask. Anyway, he's leaving the Torimon promotion he founded and taking a name with him. So the group, which will be run by Manum Tokyo, is being renamed Dragon's Gate Wrestling. Torimon will remain in Mexico, and he'll still be training guys there. Ultimo, Ultimo hottie. hottie. <laughs> <laughs> Me and Big sharing a brain. Does it ever Our... explain whether Just or not, itching though? to make the reference. I know, but did, did she actually call him Ultimo Hottie, or was that just a joke fans made? I don't remember. I feel like if... I feel like it's become something that's credited to her, the actual <laughs> phrase, but I don't think she it was something she actually said. Let let's not ruin it. Let's just let's let's let the urban legend grow. We 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 want it to be the case, so let's yeah. let it be. Now, <laughs> uh, the transition here, one of the things that Dave does not realize is that the reason they changed their name to Dragon Gate is that Torimon is Japanese for Dragon Gate. It was supposed to be as much continuity as they could have without, you know, what, excuse me, while becoming a new office, basically, was the idea. All right, Alan, you have uh, the lowdown on all this, so I'll throw it to you. Yeah, so um, how it was reported a lot at the time was in a way that essentially lets Ultimo save face and make it seem like Ultimo's leaving, he's taking his trademarks with him. In reality, 
Ultimo was being Ultimo whilst over in the U.S. in in late '03. I think he he got the rumbling, and I, I want to credit where it's due. Um, my good pals, Iron Mike, Iron Mike Spears, Case Low, um, these guys have done a great job over the years, just kind of getting the accuracy of all that went down with with this and all the old historic dragon gate toriumon stuff they are they are the guys to go to open the voice gate they've done a great job over the years and i hit up mike uh, over the last few days and just clarified a few things with him made sure my how i remember things was correct so credit where it is due but um like ultimo probably kind of got rumblings that things were going in um Maybe there might be a little bit of an ousting happening in in late '03, as far back as then, when he was still over in in the U.S. and um, he comes back to Japan, and there were things happening behind the scenes in terms of Magnum Tokyo, Shima, and of course President Okamura, who was someone that Ultimo would have come into contact with in war. Uh, they would have been part of the the war roster with uh, Takamura being one of the Buku Dojo guys, the Koji Katao karate guys, Mochizuki and, and the like. So Ultimo would have known him from then. And he, when Ultimo was in WCW and in Mexico, um, it would have been... Uh, Takamura, who would have been running things on the Japanese side in terms of setting up for the original Toriyaman Japan show and anything that kind of came after after that. So like if Ultimo was over in Mexico doing stuff with T2P, you had Takamura or Okamura, sorry, um, uh, running things in Japan. And with Ultimo away on a more permanent basis with the WWE deal, they were essentially looking to um, you know, go off on their on their own and and not have him involved. And and what their reasons for that were, like it's it's been very obvious for a long time. Like Ultimo Dragon, there's an ego there. So it might have just been a case of his ego is something they didn't want to deal with anymore. But these are guys with egos of their own. Shima has <laughs> there's one hell of an ego on that guy as as we've seen in recent years and his different business maneuverings Takamura or Okamura, I don't know why I keep saying Takamura uh, Okamura um, he, he that guy is a shady character as well from everything you hear and and uh, him being pretty much gone from, from Dragon Gate as it is now um, is something that a lot of people seem to be quite happy with. So, you know, it's it's a lot of egos involved. It's a lot of maneuverings involved. It's a lot of politics. And it was clearly happening well before the split actually happened. If you, the, the reports are that Magnum Tokyo was doing a lot of wheeling, dealing with sponsors and, and trademarking the Dragon Gate logo. Wait, wait, no, wait a second. When you say sponsors, do you mean actual sponsors or quote unquote sponsors? <laughs> I, I believe actual sponsors. But then again, you don't know if actual sponsors are <laughs> have links to sponsors. It's all very. Uh, yeah. Um, but uh, the um, the what would become the Dragon Gate logo um, appears as just a, a random thing on Naoki Tamazaki's surfboard months before 
Dragon Gate was launched. And Naoki Tanazaki is an interesting one because he was part of the Taiji Ishimori Toriumon X crew. And and that's that's one thing. So Ultimo basically, when he kind of got wind of the fact that he might be getting ousted, one of his strategies was to rush his Toriumon X guys from Mexico over to Japan. So they were doing Toriumon X shows in Japan well before those guys were ready. Uh, they hadn't really completed the full training in the the way that those that came before them had, and they were doing their shows. And he essentially kind of wanted to have that presence back in Japan to maybe make it harder for him to be ousted or whatever. Um, but Naoki Tanazaki was a guy who was pulled from Toriumon X and put on the Toriumon shows um, and put into do fixer and doing stuff with Magnum very like uh, very quickly. So they obviously saw him as like a guy that was like, okay, he, we want him on our side of things. So we're going to make sure he's moved over because these other guys we don't care about, they can go with Ultima. We want him. And he was very much linked to Magnum in his early days in Toriumon Japan. And then there was just coincidence thing with the uh, or quote coincidence with the Dragon Gate logo being on on a surfboard. Um, so that's an interesting one. Uh, the other the other really interesting one, which ties into something very current, is uh, Shingo Takagi. Um, so guys, Shingo Takagi is was very much pushed as the first graduate of the Dragon Gate Dojo. Um, he has no links to Toriumon. He is a Dragon Gate Dojo full graduate. Um, Shingo has his first match in, I think it's October uh, of 2004, three months after the split. Do you think three months is enough time for a guy to start training in a dojo and then become as good as Shingo was when he debuted in, in October 2004? Does that sound like it adds up? Um, it all depends. I mean, here's the thing. He was The other thing you got to think about is, yeah, he was a Dragon Gate Dojo guy, but he was also an Adam Gucci guy. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, But uh, the... They're, they're a different breed. The Adam Gucci trainees are, have more seasoning than others do what what the speculation is um this and the story that's done the rounds is that animal hamaguchi uh gave the heads up to whoever he gave the heads up to that he had this guy who was really good and this probably would have been i don't know late oh three because shingo was there in the hamaguchi dojo in in oh three so late oh three he gives the heads up um, Ultimo's coming back. Shima and Magnum Tokyo don't want Ultimo to know about Shingo. So essentially, Shingo's early training before the split was all done in Osaka by Shima and Magnum, I guess, a bit as well, in secret without Ultimo knowing about him. So. The Dragon Gate Dojo, obviously, like, I mean, Dragon Gate only becomes a thing in July 2004. So the dojo is only a thing in 
those months following that, B.B. Hulk comes in. It's really like a second half of 2004 thing. They bring B.B. Hulk in from the army or wherever he, whatever he was doing. Um, and Tozawa and Katsuo, those were kind of like the original guys. Um, but Shingo was the first to, to come out of it. And it was like he clearly had done it. There was a polish to Shingo that, you know, it just three months wouldn't have been enough time for him to hit. Like he was immediately put into like an open to triangle gate trios tournament. Like he's having open to dream gate matches the following year. Like he is right out of the holster, ready to go. And, and he's in a faction with Chima and you know he's 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 a really he's a really like it it just doesn't add up there that he would you know he would have had to have been part of the Toriumon system if he was you know there long enough so they it seems like Ultimo was kept away from Shingo so that's an interesting thing with that and um yeah they they do the transition here Toriumon has their anniversary show on January on July the 4th uh, Ultimo wrestles Nakajima on that show. He cuts a promo after talking about leaving. Then Shima wins the title. Um, uh, the whatever the the name of the Toriyama top title was escaping me at the moment, but uh, Shima wins that at the end of the show. Um, all of those guys, Magnum, everyone's in the ring. They're all kind of cutting a big promo. Ultimo's not out there at all. Um, and then Shima is, they do a press conference then. A couple of days later, Shima hands the belt back to Ultimo. It's all very kind of face-saving, everyone looking good face uh, press conference. Shima's got the crocodile tears going. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting how it was all handled. And they, Dragon Gate, have everything kind of, ready to kind of hit the ground running um, as soon as, like, it's like, all right, Ultimo, see you now off the stage at that press conference, and then they just get on with things. They set up shop in Odaiba, which is this, um, uh, basically this holiday theme park kind of area um, by the beach, and they do two months set up there for everyday pro wrestling. So they're running every day uh what it sounds like um, a couple of matches every day in this uh dragon gate arena that they'd set up as part of this thing um on the first tv show which i just watched um over the weekend the first tv that aired under the dragon gate banner uh they had all the footage of this press conference and then all the kind of fan gatherings and everything they were doing in Odaiba. They have this little beach Olympics where Yoshino just torches everyone in the sprints. Don Fuji is kicking ass in the sumo, all, all this great stuff. Um, but uh, Ultimo is, is completely whitewashed from there. And all those guys are, are moving onwards and upwards. And um, they, they base out of Odaiba for two months. Uh, they have it so that, like, they only do like two matches a day or whatever. So, like, if they want to go and do a show in Korokan, which they, they have, they do take shows in different parts of Japan during that period, but it's like they'll leave behind whatever they need to put on a few matches in Odaiba, and then the, the rest of the crew will go to Tokyo or wherever it might be and, and do their show. And then, um, unfortunately, then as in the sort of second uh, or the last quarter of the, the year, they lose a bunch of guys with whatever the, the situation was with the voodoo murders guys are would become voodoo murders they're aganisu so like yashi kondo etc um taru sua 
And then the start of 2005, they lose Milana Collection 80. So they take quite a hit with talent there, but um, they're able to to move guys up and, you know, get the get the wheels rolling in 2005 and, and it's onwards and upwards from that point forward. So very interesting times. Absolutely. Yeah. And All by right, the there. way, I do want to mention yeah, real quick, just because, you know, we were talking about, you know, that era and the name came up earlier. Boy, props to Jay for getting to the point of being one of the main Dragon Gate English commentators. Oh, he's 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 the main English commentator. You know what sure. I mean, like he's, but, well now, yeah, he's he's very much the the voice of, of that side of things, and he's um, yeah, he he does so much so much work for them, so much good work for them in terms of building the. The Western uh, well, shit, he's been doing it for over twenty years. <laughs> yeah, and now he's doing it in a whole new way officially, and it's um, it's it's really it's really good, good, good on him. Um, he yeah, he's uh, he and certainly no one knows a product like he knows that product. So and like he was he was very much I think in the early days of doing commentary, he was very upfront about the fact that he was not comfortable with. Uh, you know, doing commentary, just the actual like physical act of it. And it was something that he was going to struggle with. And he was like hoping people would be patient. He was very self-critical, very, um, but it became very clear after a few reps, he was, he was finding his feet and you just, you get it. It just starts to come easier to, you know, once you've done it a few times. And I'm a big believer in that commentary is easy. If you have the knowledge and you have the, um, confidence in your knowledge, and when you can lean on that, it, like if you've got if you've got thirty six pages of notes in front of you, and you're trying to, oh, which was this, and you're a page that I have this on. If you're doing all that when you're trying to commentate, it's mm. that's not what you want. That's not how commentary should go. Commentary should be, you should know the product you're talking about, and you should be able to lean on your own inherent knowledge. And no one's in a better position to do that than him with that product. So, yeah, absolutely good on and him. And also, bringing it back to 04, one of the things I remember vividly from this time period, and clearly with hindsight, Jay knew a lot of what was going on, but not able to report all of it. I mean, Chris, I'm sure, remembers, Jay had like this crisis of faith on the website about whether or not to keep covering it now that Tori Mon was dragging it. Yeah, it was a conflict. Yes. Yeah, the inner conflict. Because most people didn't realize, though, like, what, what what's the big deal? Now it's obvious that there was so much going on, and the guy was the main trainer, and the heart, and what it was named after was extricated and everything. So once you understand that, it makes a lot more sense. And then we should know, for those that aren't aware, 2019, Sheena's gone, Magnum Tokyo's long gone, Okamura's gone, and... uh you know, you're left with guys like Masato Yoshino kind of running the show and their pupils of Ultimo Dragon who they had no beef with him. They were they were indebted to the guy as breaking in there like, hey, we've got this anniversary going on. We'd really like you to be a part of it. And uh, I was very lucky to be in the building for Ultimo walking back out for the first time into Separados play and then Ultimo walking back out for the first time into a Dragon Gate ring. Yeah, and also yeah. that they had uh, 
that they were recognizing the creation of Dragon Gate as the creation of Torimon. Tor well, Torimon Japan. You know, that was that's that was a big gesture in and of itself. And now it's Shima that's basically Chris Benoit out of existence yeah. on uh <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. It's the uh, last year at the um, at the Kobe World Show. Uh, they did like um, video packages and stuff, and they had all the. They showed everyone. And they had no 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 Shima. Like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You messages from Shingo. You had Tozawa, and it's like <laughs> those are guys who don't have great relationships with Shima. Um, so yeah, it's. Uh, it's inter it's going to be interesting to see with the speed star finally Yoshino's retirement on August first. Um, if there's anything that's eyebrow raising that that comes of that in terms of you know appearances from people or anything like that, because yeah, um, it's a uh, uh, you'll note that um, when Shingo won the IWGP Heavyweight Title and pretty much the whole a dragon system community came out in congratulations of them from guys who are in WWE to guys who are in dragon gate now to all over they were all just so uh congratulatory for shingo so clearly proud of him don fuji was apparently he just immediately went and got drunk and then started calling everyone um <laughs> like susumu was like tweeting about how like he had all these missed messages on this voicemail from don fuji when he was like trying to sleep and and all this and uh um uh it, hours went by and like i guess everyone was like so is shima gonna say anything or strong hearts gonna say anything have they been like have they been told not to make any public comment whatsoever and then eventually shima just puts up this completely generic like congratulations thing um with uh yeah no um no kind of uh heart to it whatsoever but uh you, you know when um they did they were both on the same bola uh in 2018 um because uh, Shima and T-Hawk did Bola and Shingo did as well. And I guess like a bunch of people who were there kind of thought that they could kind of do things with, you know, Shima and Shingo together and stuff like that. And they'd be able to like round them up together to discuss things. And what. And it was like they were never in the same place at the same time. Like you could like one would walk into the room and the other would walk out. <laughs> I think they just wanted nothing to do with each other. <laughs> All right, the uh, open commemoration show took place during our week on July 10th at Chatan Park Indoor Gym in Okayama in front of 1,600 fans. As we have Masaki Mochizuki, Kinjiro Rai, Susumi Yokozuka, and Second Doi over Man in Tokyo, Dragon Kid, Genki Horiguchi, and Ryo Saido in the opener. Michael Iwasa and Daniel Mishima over Stalker Chikawa and Noki Tanazaki by DQ. Anthony W. Mori over Super Shisa. D4 Milano Collection. Saido, yes. Milano Collection 18 and Yoshino over Torowashi and Shogo Takagi. Shima, Don Fuji, and Taru over Shuji Kondo, Brother Yashi, and Takuya Shikawara. And a 24 man battle royal won by Super Shisa. So there you go. The beginning of Dragon Gate. Even though they had their like, first real show a week or so later. But there you go. Yeah. Um, I also, I know there's more going on in the Ultima stuff's also a cover story. I kind of do wonder if things go differently if WrestleMania is not going to be at the guard. Well, originally, before he, you know what I mean, because he left, he left for the U.S. and Mexico the prior year. But I wonder, I just wonder if 
Mania not being at the garden and not being part of fulfilling his dream changes anything. Uh, who knows? This is going to happen probably anyway. Probably. All right. Now let's get into Bix's part of the show. Joshi. Gaia ran on July 11th at Corken Hall and bombed, drawing only 500 fans. About only 500 fans. With Aja Kong and Amazing Kong keeping the AAAW tag titles beating Chigusa Nagaya and Chikaya Nagashima. Other results, we have Mako Sotomura and Akino over Yakahamada and Carlos Samano. Manami Toyota and Linus Asuka over Don Masami and Toshi Yamada. Ran Yu Yu went to a no contest with, with Sakura Hirota in 447. Linus Asuka, Sugusato, and Sakura Hirota over Mayubi Otsaki, Toshi Yamatsu, and Ran Yu Yu, which is what, why they had a short match. They had but six, per, six women tag, and then the main event, Double Kong, retained the titles over Nagayo and Nakashima. Okay, real quick. As good as the talent in the promotion still is, you can kind of see from looking at this lineup and these results here, they haven't freshened up as much in a while. And that was kind of one of the good things about Gaia for a while, that they they had enough, I don't know if a turnover would be the right term, but the roster was kept pretty fresh for a while, and now everything's starting to blend together a little bit more. Yeah. You have some newer additions like Akino and Toyota and uh, Amazing Kong, but they're not like as vital as some of the other like names who came in. Well, Toyota was, but you know what I mean. Yeah. All right. Now we have Jaguar Yokota running a doubleheader in Shinkiba First Ring. Afternoon show in front of 350 fans. This is the Jaguars Cup matches. Hikaru and Masai Genki over Hiroyo Muto and Saiki Mamura. Kayoko Horiyama and Sumi Sakai over Drake Morimatsu and Fang Suzuki. Tsubasa Kurakagi and Yuki Miyazaki over Aliyah and Kazuki. Kuriyanuyama and Megumi Yabashida over The Bloody and Yukashina. Those are first round matches. Then we had a Battle Royal, which is won by Kyoko Kimura. Bolshoi Kid over Tanny Mouse, Bix. And Esko Mita, Mariko Ishida, and Takako Inoue defeating Harley Saido, Jaguar Yokota, and Nario Tateno in the main event. Evening show in front of 420. That's probably what you needed to get through it. Uh, semifinals of the tournament. We have Karu MSI Genki over Keiko Hariyama and Sumi Sakai. Uh... Subasa Kurakaki and Yuki Miyazaki over Kariyama and Megumi Yabashida. Azumi Yuga over Nozomi Takasako. Yoshiko Tamura over Sachiabe. The finals of the tournament, Tsubasa Kurakaki and Yuki Miyazaki over Hikaru Masai Genki, Chikusa Nagaya Toshiyamata over Double Masami Manami Toyota, and then our main event, Aja Kong, Jaguar Yokota, and Kyoko Inoue went to a 20-minute draw with Yokamata, Kuro Ito, and Linus Asuka. Okay. Um, refresh my memory without looking it up. Is All Japan Women still open at the time? Yes. That's right, because it and Gaia both close in 05, right? I think all Japan maybe lasts a little longer. No, I think Gaia lasts longer, but not by much. But anyway, the th- thing I thought was kind of interesting looking at these results, like, and then I thought I saw a certain pattern, then still kind of did once I saw the main event. The Gaia and all Japan women talent are reserved for that special, for the tag matches on top, you know, the non-tournament matches, and the tournament is, and the, the other prelims, are basically just the all-stars of the women from the other promotions. 
And I wonder why that is. Like, is it a political thing that, that, that by this point, the women from the two bigger promotions it, don't want to do jobs to anyone from the smaller promotions? It's Japanese women's wrestling. There's always politics going on. Yeah. But it's also weird, too. Because, you know, there there is some good talent in that tournament. You know, you've got Sumi Sakai, you know, Tsubasa Kurkagi. There's, there are some talented women in that, not just the Neo crew. But we have Masai Genki working four times. I mean, come on now. Uh, <laughs> Yuki Miyazaki. Come on, Bix. The, the, the worst act ever committed in Shikiba first ring until Kikataro shot and killed Joey Janela. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, oh, and you said this segment wouldn't last hours. <laughs> it went on a high note, at least in my mind. Uh, it, well, I, I thank I you guys you can... for bearing with me for my uh, <laughs> my soliloquies. And you made that 420 joke, but it's Japan, so good luck. Wow. Yeah. Well, there's a will, there's a way. And on that note, after that very long segment that we finally got through, I guess it's time for halftime and the break and all that. Yeah, this is going to be a, uh, I guess we're going to do an Allen show and then uh, we'll have everything else together. So uh, anyway, it's halftime. So after some great 2004 commercials, we'll pivot to the halftime segment of the show. When we'll come back, talk about Patreon and uh, hit the plugs and all that good stuff. And then we'll come back and I want to rejoin us for some WWE action as uh, we'll talk about Vengeance and uh, Raw and SmackDown and all the other wild, wacky stuff going on in that company in 2004, including the Diva Search. All that more after the break. How do you make caramel even better? Put it into Hershey's Kisses. Introducing Hershey's Kisses filled with caramel. It's bliss inside and out. Dad. Dad, you know how you want to be everywhere I am? Now you can be. For a limited time, get Singular Family Talk for just $9.99 a line. And get a cool phone to keep track of your kids. I call it my, this is so much better, plan. $9.99 a line. Another reason Singular fits you best. Get a little closer. Eric keeps you dry. No odor, no shy, just dry. Eric is unsurpassed. It helps stop wetness so odor can't start. Eric keeps you dry. When does a movie become an event? A landmark, enthralling, funny, passionate, a must-see. Rated R, now playing. I'm sorry, but I can't find your bags. When did you check them? Oh, a, a Two day? days. A day, a day ago? and a half-ish. What room were you in? Um, that's something, isn't it? We never <laughs> officially, you know, in hotel terms. Right. <laughs> Is something telling Catwoman it's time to get a Jaguar? 
See your local Jaguar retailer during the Unleash a Jaguar sales event. See the Jaguar XJR in Catwoman and see her in theaters July 2004. I've met workers who've been out of work for two years. I've met steel workers and mine workers and auto workers who are now laid off workers. And some of them have told me what it's like to have to unbolt their own equipment, pack it up, put it in a crate, and send it to another country. Some have even told me what it's like to train their own replacement. That's wrong. And when I'm president, we're going to change that. I'm John Kerry, and I approve this message. You might think this is a 24-foot pool from Lighthouse, but actually, it's your new family vacation. Here comes the bubble monster! From $5.99 to $49.99, Lighthouse only carries pools you'll be proud to own. This is the life! The life she had was taken away. Now she's reborn. This person's very self-confident. To fight for what she believes. Catwoman, rated PG-13, starts July 23rd. A typical full-size pickup handles like this over rough terrain. With outboard-mounted shocks placed outside the frame rails, Ford F-150 handles like this. The advantage of being the only pickup with outboard shocks is easy to see. Only this truck earn the right to be the next Ford F-150. Tonight on Conan, CNBC's John McEnroe. You cannot be serious! Yeah. Oh, we are. Plus Sting and... Here's Johnny! This fall, these are the people who aren't just solving mysteries, they're saving lives. Someone had a big call. Medical Investigation, coming to NBC Fridays. All right, we're back. Hope you enjoyed those great 2004 commercials as we pivot to the halftime seven the show. We begin talking about Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets. And uh, we haven't started recording yet. We got to get on that. Uh, so we got the uh, next show coming up in uh, the end of the month. Maybe, who knows? Maybe sooner. It all depends on how fast we get recorded. Uh, the 10 year anniversary of Summer of Punk 2, the CM Punk pipe bomb promo and the aftermath. And World Wrestling Entertainment for 2011. And, uh, yeah, it's hard to believe it's been 10 years. But here we are. So uh, that should be quite the show, I'm sure. Yes. That. I, hopefully, unlike a certain podcast that was recorded during the time frame we're covering, this one will not be uh, lost and irreparably corrupted on the master file or whatever the hell happened. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yes, what a tragedy that was. That was the uh, Goodwill Wrestling Podcast with our buddy Will, good old Will, and Rob Naylor, and CM Punk, and Lars from Rancid. Lars Fredrickson, yes. So, yeah, <laughs> it's one of those holy grail shows that uh, got lost in the ether of the early days of recording podcasts. <laughs> yeah, um... I think technically it was supposed to be a Randy Savage tribute podcast. Yeah. That's, it, it, technically it is the operative word. It was supposed to be at the beginning. It didn't turn out that way. Yes. And then and then by the time, I believe it was actually uh, Alan who, who said he might be able to recover it. But by that time, Punk had realized he was resigning. So. <laughs> Do the math. Yeah. But anyway, so 
Yeah, we'll talk about that and a lot more. So be on the lookout for that. All right. Uh, you can get that for $5 a month at patreon.com slash between the sheets. That and all the other shows we've done in the near five complete years of our Patreon. So much content on so many different topics. Although half the shows we've done is on Paul Heyman. But hey, there's a lot of stuff evolving, Paul Heyman. And that's interesting. It's not half. It's only like 27% or so. <laughs> it just seems like half. So anyway, so much stuff there on patreon.com slash the sheets. So well worth your $5. Yes. Now, and we just had the anniversary of the ECW invasion angle too. As yes. we record this. Dollar month gets you access to the discord and thanks in this segment, which we'll do in just a minute. $25 allows you pick a show for the week, which we have this week. We're doing right now, this show. Now, uh, make sure you pick a show we haven't done already. And if we have done the show, make sure your echo toy is handy, just in case we you pick a show we've done or a week that's already been locked in on the calendar. So always be prepared with at least two choices. So, uh, yeah, do that. And then, uh, of course, get that information in before 30 days. Uh, follow the protocol on the Patreon website, Wednesday to Tuesday, 10-year rule, all the stuff that you already know. And if you have any questions, ask one of us, and we'll uh, try to do what we can do to uh, get you straightened out. $50 allows you to sit in for a segment of that show if you choose, and 100 for the whole show if you choose. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets. All right, Biggs, who this week is our new and or returning patrons? All right, we would like to thank... Brian Fowler. It's Brian. Rick Kobos. Thanks, Rick. Not sure if he's related to James. Well, he was a Kobo. That's right. Not he was Kobo, not Kobos. Yes. Uh, Frank Mullis. Thanks, Frank. And Sailorman79. Thanks, Sailorman79. Interesting name. So we thank all you new patrons, all you old patrons, all you patrons that have come along the way and joined us at patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right, Bix. Let's talk about IWTV. Now, we'll be recording the next Exile on Bad Street uh, this week as I record that. And I've been watching some Wild Side in preparation for the show. And, uh, I highly recommend you guys watching the uh, June 2001 Wildside Television and Freedom Fight 2001. I'll talk about more during Exile, but that stuff is fantastic. Fantastic television and and uh, Freedom Fight's a fantastic show. So everybody, please, if you haven't watched it and you want want to watch it, get on it. It's well worth it. But what has caught your eye this week on IWTV? Less busy than the ridiculous busy week that we had last week with IWTV. Well, I don't know. They had what was it? I saw that they had eight live streams this weekend. Eight. Well, that's a lot. But there was a lot of other stuff that went up last week too. Yeah, talk about in the archives. I talk about live streams. Yeah, right. And the, the latest action wrestling show went up as well. So everybody go oh. check that out. I haven't watched it yet. I'm trying to watch all this wild side. So um, I'll have to check it out after uh, I get through my wild side watching. But everybody go uh, watch the Action Russell show. Always, uh, always a good show. Yes. 
So let's see, we've got uh, Latest C4 Mixtape is Volume 63. And after a less eventful uh, series of releases, the one that just went up includes a Joss Alexander versus El Generico match. Okay. So that, that's a very interesting one on paper right there. Uh, what I believe is the first or one of the first shows back in front of fans from Limitless Wrestling uh, was a few weeks ago, and that went up. It's uh, Limitless Patience is a Virtue. So yeah, with, judging by the name, I'm guessing that's their first show in front of fans uh, since the pandemic, because, you know, they've been doing the ongoing series and stuff. So good to see them back. One of the better and more interesting independent wrestling success stories in the country, you know, to build up this kind of following in Maine. Mm-hmm. And that one is headlined by a match for their world title with Daniel Garcia defending against Jake something and some other interesting looking stuff on the card. And so let's see, what else do we have here? Uh, new paradigm shows. Is it me or does it feel like they're running just about every week? Hey, I mean, hey, if he can afford to do it, do it. Yeah, they had uh, two shows this weekend. Of course, ICW No Holds Bard had another couple shows this they're weekend. They're running like every week. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely, uh, it seems like every every time you do this segment, you're mentioning ICW. Certainly lately. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they ran, what, like half a dozen shows in the last ten days? Yeah, I mean, so, hey, again, if you can afford to do it, good for you. And I'm not sure if I saw what's on either of these. I Tank not was any... on one of them. I was going to say, that's why I was pulling it up, because I know Tank and uh, Dan Wells and, are and on, we'll talk... at least one. And we'll talk more about this on the Wild Side Show, but Tank makes his debut in the during the month of June 2001 in Wild Side. So everybody definitely needs to see oh. Tank when he debuted compared to Tank now. There is a difference. <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, July 10th No Holds Barred show, Volume 16, has... I don't know who one of these people are, but this is an intriguing match. So it's Casanova Valentine versus Satu Jin. I don't know who that is. Versus Danny DeManto versus Tank in a home run derby death match. Well, home run derby is coming up uh, as uh, we record this. It's on Monday. So I guess that's the theme. This is home run derby. I'll start with weekend. Yes, and uh, the other show from the ninth also has Satu Jin. Again, whoever that is versus Tank. Uh, what else was there here that caught my eye? Real quick? Oh, Daniel Garcia versus Matt Mikowski as well which is an intriguing match on paper and one of the not so deathmatchy things on those cards. So that looks like it's worth checking out. So, you know, plenty of archival stuff up as usual as well. Paradigm I see on one of their shows has Dana Garcia versus Cole Radrick. So a lot of, a lot of good wrestling looks like on IWTV this week. And if you have not signed up yet and you're going to anyway, please use coupon code. Well, I use coupon loosely code BTS pod when you're signing up because we will get our kickback even if they are not offering any kind of discount or anything to the end user for the time being. But it will help with us uh, at Between the Sheets, because we still get our referral. I know it's weird. <laughs> we know. Just It is what it is for now. I'm hoping something change. I don't know if they'll ever go back to the free trial thing, or it'll just be like a discounted first month, but, but hopefully there's something soon. Well, we'll see, I guess. Yes. All right, and Viper VPN real quick. Mention that, as always. You ain't got to go full plug, but at least... Yeah, 
tinyurl.com slash btsvpn. 60 bucks for three years is the best deal. Less than $1.67 a month if you do that. And, you know, works great for, you know, watching, streaming stuff from other countries that's region blocked, whether you're in the U.S. or elsewhere. Uh, great privacy features, good speeds, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just, it's the best deal. It's the best price of the bigger VPN services. So that's tinyurl.com slash btsvpn to get that deal. All right, plug time. Yes, uh, there will be a new Exile on Bad Street coming out uh, before this week's of WIV, hopefully, maybe during the weekend, maybe early next week. Well, it depends on how everything goes timeline-wise. So be on the lookout for that. But cover to cover dropped over the past couple of days. Everybody go listen to that as we discuss the December 1987 issue of The Wrestler, which Rob Naylor picked out. And I thought it was one of the best shows we've done. I, th- I really enjoyed doing that show. I thought we had a great flow and everything to it. So everybody listen to that. We talk about uh, Ric Flair and how they thought that he must defend the title against Dr. Steve Williams. We must have a unification match, which leads into a discussion about how that whole angle was booked one of my favorite what ifs in wrestling history so we'll talk about that we'll talk about the wf and their changing heel roster in 1987 their heel overhaul basically where they had a bunch of new heels in there and hogan has fresh new challengers one of the names listed is bam bam bigelow as a heel which that doesn't happen but we talk about how that could have been something and how different things would have been there well it kind of happens before he's on TV when he's working sea shows. Easy heel. He's not wrestling Hogan. No, but <laughs> that's what I'm saying. He's not wrestling Hogan on those shows. Sure. So, but anyway. Oh, I'm uh, sure Andre would have liked him even more if he was a heel. <laughs> well, he wouldn't have been going against him. So there is that. It would have been safer for Bigelow, I guess. One on one, yes, but he probably would have earned more of his ire if they were both heels. It's possible. But uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Kurt Henning and Jerry Lawler, if you know the AWA title, and uh, all the other columns and news and results and good conversation and everything. So really, really fun show, including Rob talking about his uh, watching Boy Tony and uh, <laughs> all that stuff. So everybody uh, definitely check that out as he's going through his Memphis rewatch through 1986. Yes. So, well, don't also forget his bitter hatred of studio wrestling. <laughs> yeah, kind of surprised. Well, Memphis Studio Wrestling in particular was kind of surprising, but I understand. But it kind of surprised me. So, yeah, we'll have that conversation as well. And so much more on cover to cover. So everybody check that out. Now, next week on Between the Sheets is the show that all you listeners have been, well, some of you listeners have been asking for. As Ed from Pod Van Dam will join us. To discuss the birth of do love in the World Wrestling Federation and a packed World Wrestling Federation section because we have two weeks of television to talk about two Raws and two Nitros. No, it's not. Well, it's it's not that bad, okay. but we'll make it through. Um, clip things we have to be careful with because there's a lot of stuff going on clip wise. But uh, so well, we have we'll have to play the dude at least. We got Do Love to talk about, plus uh, all the other insanity going on in 1997 WF, including uh, Sid Vicious being fired. So we'll have that and a lot more. Then, of course, we got all the international stuff. We got a packed ECW section. 
including the uh, the uh, new newsworthy Queen show, ECW Arena show with Rick Rude as a, a mystery partner, Tommy Dreamer the Sandman. Oh, that goes well. Yeah, and we'll have uh, all that stuff there, Memphis stuff, in other indie stuff. So we'll talk about that. And then we've got WCW, got two weeks of Nitro, and the aftermath of Dennis Robin working for WCW. So all that more next week on Between the Sheets. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-N-E-R. Show proper at BT Sheets Pod. Sports count at Old School Sports, O-L-S-K-O-O-L Sports. Bix at David Bix. And uh, Bix, anything going on this week in your world? Uh, irons in the fire. Irons in the fire. All right. Always good to hear. All right. Well, that is it for this segment. So uh, let's get back to the rest of the show, shall we? All right, let's go to World Wrestling Entertainment now, and we begin with Pro Wrestling Torch. One of the top concerns in WWE over the last several weeks is a record low house show attendance this summer. Most recent house shows have been drawn around 1,000 fans, sometimes a bit lower, and rarely more than 2,000. Some of the buildings WWE has booked has been small arenas since they knew attendance would be low, but in general, the tiny crowds mean low payoffs for wrestlers. There were even a handful of SmackDown house shows canceled in recent weeks. Wrestlers would rather work, but they prefer cancellations over working for nothing. And since their payoffs are based on attendance, and since they have to pay for their own hotel, food, rental car expenses, they're at risk of losing money at some recent events. In general, the morale among the Raw crew is better because they know they will get their fair share of the big arenas that draw well and because they have a stronger overall talent roster. On the SmackDown side, there's great concern because there's no sense that things will turn around. There is hope, but not expectations that the return of Kurt Angle in the big show will make a difference come fall. One bright side for the lower car wrestlers working in front of these small crowds is several top wrestlers have been skipping house shows, including Triple H, Ric Flair, Chris Jericho, Eddie Guerrero, and Kurt Angle. That means those wrestlers don't take a big cut of whatever talent money, talent payoff money is available. Although the extra pay-per-view could help some on the SmackDown crew, most of the ones who are hit the hardest aren't regular on pay-per-views, and they rely on house show payoffs the most. A small upside is that since so many wrestlers will only make them more than their downsides this year, They'd rather sit at home than have wear and tear on their body working every weekend in front of tiny crowds. This is a uh, an interesting dilemma, Bix. I'll go to you first on this one. Um, you got the guys that, yeah, they, they save the wear and tear on their body, but they're not making the money. So what do you value more, in a sense? I mean, where, where, do, you, where do you stand on all this? I think it's a very good example of how bullshit in a modern environment, even 17 years ago, having their pay be subject to how how show attendance, like, it's outdated by that point. They should not be putting themselves through this for that little money. Absolutely. And, Alan, I I mean, it's probably, it should have been a long time ago, and you know, it should be implemented more is that there's their contract should be, there should be, you know, I wouldn't say, I would say this, I mean, guarantee money, but you know, with the pandemic coming and no house shows and now we're about to start back having house shows again, possibly, but we're going to have TV tapings bouncing around. I mean, wouldn't it be nice for these guys and girls to just have a flat, rate you know they're getting paid a certain amount of money no matter what they work 
Absolutely, it makes all the sense in the world. Like as Big said, it's such an outdated model even then. But geez, if they try to bring, obviously they're they're going to try and bring house shows back to a degree. But I mean, if they're like, I don't know, are they going to be measuring uh, payoffs based on crowds at house shows? Like it seems like for like a, a company grossing the amount of revenue they're grossing and then to take this little small portion of money and like do this equation to see how you'll divide it up fair it's just it doesn't make any sense it's like 0.000001% of like the money they have coming in um one particular house show and then you're like doing maths to see okay well this guy was in the fourth match like ah uh, it just it's like they've made it so that the brand is the draw so like i mean guys should have like i could see maybe um people having a downside and then um you getting a bonus on top of that for if you work above a certain like you know with like say sports players it's like okay you've got your contract for for this amount but there's certain things built in like if you're a premier league footballer you might have a thing built in that if you score this many goals in the season you get this bonus if you um play and like it's a, something that happens a lot with like players who've had a history of injuries when they they, they might sign a one-year deal and it's hey we're going to pay this much but if you you know are able to contribute and play three quarters of the games in the season then we're going to give you this bonus so not necessarily tied to injuries or whatever but just a, a thing there that hey guys if you if we end up using you um, on more than this amount of shows or if you end up kind of working more than we're expecting, then there'll be a, a bonus coming your way and that will be determined and agreed in the signing of the contract. So there's no everyone's aware of what the situation is before it happens. And if you're a wrestler and you've got your downside and you're happy with that and that's what you've agreed to, and then for whatever reasons, whether it's a pandemic or an injury or whatever it might be, you're not able to get your bonus, then you're not able to get your bonus. Like that's that's okay, but the guarantee should be enough to make that not a disaster. And you know, I mean like if you're if you're maybe not being used as much and you don't hit your bonus, um, at least it's easier on your body than like you have to work more to get your bonus. So it's um, and obviously a lot of guys do want to work more. But I, I think having something tied in that's there as a bonus that's agreed beforehand it is probably the way to go. But the the downside should be the main thing and it should be enough that people are well rewarded for what they're giving towards a company that's doing as well as this company is so um yeah it's on it's on the wrestlers with the what they determine their worth in when they're negotiating their contracts and it's on the company to treat the rest wrestlers fairly in terms of what they're paying them considering how much money they're making so um yeah that's uh, having a model like they used to have just completely outdated now this there's a there's something I'm that Bix know as me and me and Bix have talked about this in private DMs. I could see this coming down the line and probably very soon. In that, with Nick Khan 
you know, get more and more power, being more and more I'm the president in the company, I see a day where there will be no more house shows. The only time they'll go on the road is to do pay-per-views, and all the TVs will be taped in a central location, kind of like what we've been doing, but it will be in Las Vegas. Um, what do you think? Because there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on there with Las Vegas, you know, that's simmering. There's a the new MSG building will be built over there in 2021. I mean, that's not. I don't think that's small enough for a residency. For it's, TV. But there's, but I think they're going to what they're going to do is they're going to do a residency in Las Vegas for TV. But that's what and, I'm saying. But that's a big one for that kind of thing. Well, <laughs> I mean, this W. But, I mean, two days a week, you know, I mean, two days a week, it's not, especially taping on a Monday or Tuesday or whatever, you know, those are two days that in Vegas you could do something like that in a building like that with and probably get reduced rates. But where I was going, where I was going real quick, though, is say they have a situation like that where they have a residency in Las Vegas where they're just taping TVs there and then – the, they have the pay-per-views on the road, wherever. That takes away a house show schedule. They line up the pay scale where you get paid no matter what. I mean, that would be like the perfect scenario for the talent, wouldn't you think? I think that works well. And I think it sounds very much like a summer of 96 WCW. But how much were they running house shows around that time wcw when they were say doing bash at the beach and then had all those all those nitros um in uh uh disney or universal universal right no that was disney i think it was a disney Disney. yeah yeah. sorry sorry. um they were running house shows very randomly um just looking right now just to go july 1996 for example they run uh, Nitro at Landover on the 1st. Then they have Bash at the Beach in Daytona. And then they don't do any other shows other than Orlando until the 19th in Rock Hill, South Carolina. They do the South Carolina Swing, 19th, 21st. They do Cincinnati, Charleston, and Muncie, and Dayton, 24th through 27th. That's it. Okay, so a little bit, but not that much. So yeah, it it does seem quite similar to that. And you know what you could do as well if you had that residency, which I think would be well worth doing because you'd have your two main TV tapings and those would obviously be the busiest in terms of fans checking it out. But you're there, you're set up. Big stars go home, whatever. They go do whatever they need to go do. Um, You could have a third date tacked on where your younger stars get to maybe it's like an afternoon thing where like it's cheaper to be there or whatever. And your younger guys get to, or less experienced guys, I should say, get to kind of, you know, wrestle in front of a crowd, just kind of, it's a house show, but it doesn't involve going on the road because everyone's already there. If, if, if you get me, I think there, there could definitely be positives to that. Well, what I could see with like the, the non top names is, them doing like the Florida thing, the Florida loop, like the NXT crew does. They could do something like that where 
they have a crew that would do just you know a run of shows in Florida, you know, based out of the you know Orlando area and whatever. And Flor- Florida, see that that loop though, from everything I kind of the vibe I get, it sounds so. Florida in general seems like really wheezing in terms of the amount of wrestling and. I don't know. I, I don't think many people really ever were going to those shows at the best of times, were they? Well, that's, I mean, it's NXT, you know, and, and, yeah. and I mean, that's another thing. I mean, if you have like some named WWE talent there on the shows, again, who knows? But I, I just see Nick Khan, you know, being somebody who will not, you know, embrace a house show type deal. Oh, for sure. why, why, do, why do we need to do this? this well, makes especially no- because, well, we should stress this. Before the pandemic, live events as a division had lost money for seven of the eight previous quarters. I thought yes. you were going to say seven of the eight previous years, and I wouldn't have been surprised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and the fact is that I, you know, for years I knew people that wouldn't. I mean, when they would come around here for house shows, nobody ever talked about wanting to go. They want if they were going to go to a WWE show, they were going to the TV. Imagine how much worse it would be if they didn't have those European tours. Take them out of the equation. That that those losses would have been way bigger, I'd imagine. So and see, um, I can see them doing stuff like that on occasion. Yeah, yeah, you, you absolutely. Keep, yeah, you could keep doing some. You could maybe do a thing where, like, at a, maybe the, if the residency was in like. If the agreement was, say, I don't know, 48 out of the 52 weeks of the year or something like that. And then in those other four weeks, maybe two halfway through and two at the end, you take those two weeks to go um, do shows from an international location. You know, special Raw and Smackdown from London or a special Raw and Smackdown from Australia. Uh, maybe tie in a pay-per-view with it or whatever, like you just to to really feed off your international um and like oh, at the same time like if they had like nxt uk as something like like i don't know what that's gonna look like when everything opens back up again properly and what their plans are for that i, I really don't know um but like if that was something that they just kind of kept going um as a uk operations and then that the main roster would come over and do their thing for a week or two weeks out of the year or something like that so it, yeah. it would present more options and it would be a lot more feasible and i think just pragmatic which is the things that nick Khan has been showing he's like the guy who came in and was like looked at WWE network and was like we're not an it company why are we doing all this um but that, that said i still am very confused about the fact that they surely are still having to do a lot of that stuff because like I still have the WWE network and everyone outside the US does. So I, I don't know how they've managed to outsource some of that or what, but obviously his grand plan is to completely get rid of them doing any of that in-house. So, Well, the technology yeah. was always outsourced, you know, first to, you know, MLB advanced media now to uh, Endeavor streaming, the former new lion. So yeah, that's not, I mean okay. that's not a change, but they were all, they were paying a pretty hefty percentage of each subscription for that. Gotcha, gotcha. So they're not because you know whatever it is two thirds of the. I mean we don't know because there was no automatic migration. But if let's just say everyone switched over, they're not paying two thirds of the subscription or whatever, 
excuse me, you know what I mean. They're not paying a percentage yeah. of two thirds of the subscriptions to uh, the streaming provider. I got you. All right, let's go back to 2004. The final show, the WWE experiment of three pay per views in six weeks, the July 11 Vengeance show from the Hartford Civic Center, was a two match show built around Chris and Walmart's Triple H for the world title, with Eugene in the middle, and Randy Orton versus Edge for the Intercontinental title. Both matches were more than 25 minutes and were strong bouts. Early indications are a lower than usual buy rate. Most fans are either happy or so so with the event and no disappointing live gate. The show drew about 7,000 fans, which is 6,000 paying $370,000. But much of the arena tarped off, and this is for a baby event in the company's northeastern home base, featuring a strong crew. The storyline made it evident that the world title would be decided upon by Eugene, who's being manipulated by Triple H, as well as he talked with as well as talking with Chris Benoit. A clear thing from the show is with Evolution dominating everything, combined with a babyface crew that lets cool charisma, like Benoit or Edge, or has been positioned as not being tippy-top guys, Jericho and far more Matt Hardy, that Evolution is becoming the big babyfaces in the brand. It was evident when probably the biggest babyface reactions on the show were to Ric Flair and Randy Orton, although Flair was put in the babyface position. It was a mixed night, large with Evolution's losers winning and winners losing. Triple H lost to Benoit when Eugene asked him with a chair. Eugene was struggling with Benoit over in 2904. Apparently, Triple H is now getting off the idea of long matches. Getting off on the idea of long matches. Because next night on television, it was pushed how he dominated Benoit for 38 minutes before Eugene screwing up cost in the match. It was a good main event, but between overbook finish and too much, Eugene, it was, if anything, a slight disappointment. Because Eugene got over so big the first time Rock did Diego with him. They fooled themselves into thinking he's super over. But his response to recent weeks has been lukewarm. And he and Triple H have become the focal point for the entire brand on television, even though he's a prelim act on the road. With Triple H portrayed as the guy running the show with the plan of our smarts debate face at every turn, you know, didn't work this time. He's about to become the most popular star on the brand. Uh, okay. Well, it feels like... Okay, it feels like Dave is ignoring... Well, actually, wait a second. No, he's not, because at this point, Eugene still thinks Triple H is his friend. It's not... Okay, so he hasn't been burying Eugene yet. That happens once they're feuding proper. But... Well, this is a program that eventually should have happened. The obvious goal from the point you establish that Triple H is Eugene's favorite wrestler in spite of him being a heel. That's the eventual program you do, of course. The character just started on TV. This is stupidly yeah. early, and I don't remember if we talked about it on the show before or not, that this might be the most obvious, blatant example of Paul Levesque, like, needlessly burying someone who was of no threat to him. He had no interest in being a babyface at this time. And no, he's still jealous of some guy getting turn. Right, and yet he's still jealous of... Nick Dinsmore getting over. Like, I don't think there's any other way to interpret how that whole storyline is. I don't is there? I mean, you're, 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 it's possible that way, but I was always kind of in the inclination that uh, it was more about he pro he hated the gimmick in real life. Triple H, he, 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 didn't, he didn't like the gimmick at all, and he's mm. going out of his way to bury it. <laughs> you know, and what and what are they going to do to him? They're going to punish him. <laughs> you know, 
I could easily see that being a thing where where he hated that gimmick, and he demanded or you know, it, you know, influenced them to put him in the program with him so he could kill it off. I can definitely see that. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, Regal's my buddy. I'm just trying to help out his storyline, get him over. I mean, because I'm, I, I can just see Paul Levesque in that type of gimmick, you know, just hating it with a passion. You know? Kind of. But would anyone have been surprised if a gimmick like Eugene had shown up on Paul Levesque's NXT of, like, the 2014-2015 era? I mean, it's possible. It's possible that we, because I mean, we had we had some interesting gimmicks, you know, in that era of NXT. But dancing Emma was kind of supposed to be a little. Well, that was more main roster, I guess, that she was presented as. Yeah, that's yeah. You can't use that. That's different. Yes. No, you're right. But still, like it. I don't think it's that far outside of his. Vision of it's that. not, but I just I can see him hating the gimmick more, and use it and wanting to get get the gimmick gone. But it, the thing, I mean, the thing is, is though, as Eugene did get over, the character did get over, and now he's less over because they're rushing the the biggest possible program you could do for him. Now let's talk about Orton real quick. Uh, is rivals Orton because Orton always cheats to win. Orton and Edge had an interesting mix. The crowd was split, but vociferous for their favorites. Orton seemed to have the support of the guys, and the Edge cheers were distinctly feminine. The two worked an excellent match, with the crowd gradually shifting to Edge, and great near falls in the closing minutes for Edge ended Orton's IC title reign that dated back to December 14, 2003, beating Rob Van Dam. The seven-month reign has been talked about as the longest run in seven years, although it really would not be quite that long. The last long reign went to, went to The Rock, the guy they were grooming Orton to be the new version of who was given the belt in December 8th, 1997, when in reality, also refused to do the job in the rainform and rock out until August 30th, 1998, when he lost the ladder match in Mass Square Garden Triple H, which was the night where it became obvious Rock was going to be a gigantic deal. And Billy Orton, who liked Rock on the night he lost the title, was steadily cheered. It's been both because Evolution are the coolest guys, but also because Orton has always foiled the Bayface hope. The idea is to get him credibility with win at the win, so they're grooming him for a major program with Triple H, probably at WrestleMania. And it's thought that many times the fans don't buy into Edge's current character at the level he's being pushed. Again, he's also being groomed for Triple H, which is why characters on Raw like Chris and Wah get the more focused buildup instead of the give up in a few weeks when it doesn't click immediately. This will become company trademark. You want to talk about rushing an angle? <laughs> Triple H, Randy Orton, everybody. I mean, Jesus Christ. I mean, why do that the night after SummerSlam? You know, it's just, it makes no, it makes no sense. It made no sense then. It, made, it makes no sense now. It's especially, way too early. Especially in hindsight when you see how well the slow simmering build of Batista worked in contrast. But, and, yeah. would, but would Triple H have been okay with that? if he wasn't trying to prove people that he could do the Orton storyline right after it was such an obvious bomb the way they did it before. But here's, you know, they, they and they did the Orton storyline wrong. Think about this. I, and Dave is kind of laying it out here. Orton wins a title at SummerSlam. 
as as the year goes along, Orton become becomes more of like the leader of Evolution. He's the world champion. He becomes the guy in Evolution. Triple H is like the second guy, and it leads to the friction there. And then you could do the deal where they they do the split, and you could even do it in the way where Triple H is the babyface in the whole thing, and it would have been totally believable. You know, this guy took over Evolution. He took my he took my group from me. You know, I mean, there's so many ways they could have gone with that that they didn't, and yeah, it was just ridiculous. The way it's ridiculous then, it's ridiculous now how that played out. But Triple H has to be the he had to be the heel. Yeah, I was just gonna say is like same as 2000 what was 2001 like Triple H had that momentum to turn face and he just he wasn't having it. No, he wanted, he had to be heel. Yeah, yeah. Um, the uh, we do you want to get into the Orton Edge match now or save it for? We'll save for it for the match. We'll save yeah. it for the, cool. for the match. All right, the rest of the show is just filler. Although Batista didn't help himself any, looking really green in his win over Chris Jericho. You're like a guy who had no business at this level. But seeing him redeem himself next night on Raw gets Edge. Well, let's talk about the show. Uh, the uh, pre-show match, Tyson Tomko or Val Venus in 252 after a high kick. Nidia came up with Venus to counteract Trish Stratus. Tomko looked bad. So bad that Jim Ross actually pointed out after he blown some spots that he was a powerhouse, but that his wrestling was raw. After he delivered the high kick, he stopped seeing the to be about to do another move when it hit him that this was the finish. That was weird. After the match, he was stalking Nidia, but Maven came out and made the save. Hasn't Travis Tomko been in their system for like four years at this point? Yes. He would improve, but yeah, when he first showed up on the main roster, he had some issues. Oh, absolutely. So had he been cut, though? Because I don't remember ever seeing him between his run as Tomahawk or whatever it was in 2000 in MCW and then when he shows up in OVW in like 03 or whatever. Well, he sh- he showed up. He was in OVW in 2002. That's when he started up there. So was he let go or was he maybe just injured? Well, I mean, he he was in OVW, you know, he, he was part of the side of the sin and all that stuff. And then he st- and then he went up to the main roster and was, you know, just working like dart matches and stuff before eventually getting in there. Well, no, you know, I mean, and becoming you know, between OVW and MCW, no! though. So between MCW. like 2000. He was in MCW. Yes, he was. No, nope. he, he was either Tomahawk or Travis Tomahawk. Not what I'm looking at. <laughs> not what I'm looking at. He's not. I'm even seeing a... MCW results on Cage Match that call him Tomko from 01. Although also as Tattoo. Yeah, his first match on Wrestling Data is June first, June of 2002. Cage Match has two MCW Travis from Banks. Spring 01. Again, UK Tri- I've I mean, Travis. The video. No, I've watched the video. It's, tra- it's definitely Travis Tomko. It's, it, it, his Wikipedia says 2002. Wrestling Data says 2002. <laughs> I agree. I No, here's the thing. I completely agree with you. I had None never of his heard of him. Has, no, I agree. Arma Tomko, Travis, Travis Bain, Travis Tomko, Tyson Tomko. And Trained I, by Danny Davis, Jim Cornette, Rip Rogers, Shawn Michaels. And a lot Michaels. of that stuff is often wrong. 
I'm just saying what it says. I'm, here's multiple, the thing. multiple things. Until that, like, one day, like, last year, whenever it was, where I was watching a bunch of MCW on YouTube. I had never heard of him being there. But uh, these might not even be on there anymore. But there were full, uh, various full MCW episodes up from 2000 where there is a heel named, it was either Tomahawk or Travis Tomahawk, that is very clearly Travis Tomko. Maybe he was working uh, Winnipeg for Apple Tomko. <laughs> Wait, I think I found one. Let's see. Tomahawk. Uh, There's a Tomahawk that worked Memphis Championship Wrestling. Okay, he's not listed on this one. Yeah, it's the YouTube search. I'll try to see if I can find anything, but let's move on for now. Yeah, there's actually there is a tomahawk that were February and April through April two thousand. So that that's who I'm talking about. But anyway, all right. Uh, to Jerry and Rhino beat Jonathan Coachman and Garrison Cade in our opening match on the show in seven thirty. Went to Jerry and Coachman after a high kick. Everyone willing to find this match set for Coachman, but he had more personality out there than the other three combined. Tajiri blew to miss to Cade. Rhino went to core Coachman, but he moved along Cade to take it. Tajiri looked good and made the match star and a half. Sounds delightful, doesn't it? Coach, Coach was, I'll be honest, and I don't like Coach. I have no affinity for Jonathan Coachman. I was shocked how, like, professional he was as a wrestler. Like, he his bumps looked fine and like he moved around the ring. It was all very natural. Like he wasn't a great worker. Don't get me wrong. And he was clearly the fourth best guy in the match, but he didn't seem like, you know, like a celebrity or an office or a, um, like a commentator working, uh, working a match. Like he, he seemed like he had been pretty well trained and that he was athletic enough and just enough of a a natural and probably tough enough because excuse the pun because you obviously have to be tough to be a, a pro wrestler and operate at that level and he, he yeah he he was taking bumps and they were good looking bumps and yeah i i, I was just genuinely surprised because i i had no memory of what he was like as a wrestler um and when he came out, I was like fully expecting just awkward mess of a performance. Um, but I was like, whoa, this guy, like, he's better than a lot of indie guys I see nowadays. So good on him. Yeah, Coach could always work a match, you know. And hey, did he need to work, be a, a worker? No, that's not his gimmick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he brought the the key thing was the personality, and he had that in spades. Exactly. He was, if you factor that into it, he was. It was probably Tajiri one, Coach two, Rhino three, Cade four in terms of just overall package performance in this match. Yeah. All right. Uh, second, uh, the Triple H Eugene show long storyline saw Eugene disappear. When Triple H found him, he was talking to Benoit. Benoit was telling Triple H was using him. All right, Alan, you watched all this stuff. Uh, what, caught, what caught your eye, if anything, about the Triple H Eugene saga on this show? Um, anything involving Benoit was, outside of obvious reasons, extremely awkward. Uh, it just, <laughs> just really unnatural in that kind of a storyline, in that kind of a situation where he's having to do, like, NXT-style melodrama, for lack of a better term. Um just Chris Benoit was not an actor. He was a 
professional wrestler between the bells, between the ropes, promos, executing angles in terms of like non-physical angles. Like that was just not him. And something like this was, it was really awkward um, seeing him doing it. And uh, I will say in this segment, Triple H was, he was his usual Triple H and everything I saw in terms of like, it was exactly what you'd expect in an angle like this. Um, No better, no worse than you'd expect. Uh, the, The most entertaining thing involving this angle on this night was the Flair Batista Orton interactions regarding Eugene and them basically moaning about that they start this segment um, backstage and they're together and Triple H isn't there and they're all giving out to each other and like questioning Triple H and being like what's he doing what is why is he bringing this guy into our group da, 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 da. Uh, and Flair's like I'm going to talk to him I'm going to talk to him and, uh, and then uh, Triple H comes in and Flair's buttering him up and he's like you know we love you but more importantly than that, we respect you. And Triple H has just been really kind of like, almost like more recent Triple H. than Because back then he was real serious, intense kind of guy. Now he's like the relaxed goofball ever since like sort of the 2006 DX run. So he was kind of showed glimpses of sort of relaxed goofball Triple H here. And he was like, what's the big deal? Eugene's going to be great for us. And he's like, guys, don't worry. I got a plan. And then, and then he goes, wait, where is Eugene? And uh, yeah, the three guys are all like, uh, Orton's like, I know Dave was supposed to be watching him, and Dave's like, you were supposed to be watching him. It's just, it's, it's, it's funny <laughs> stuff. And that, uh, that, that was the only thing I got a kick out of. And, and like they, they just happen to see Triple H opens a door ajar, and like there's a corridor behind the door, and Eugene and Benoit are talking in the corridor, and. Benoit's holding his title over his shoulder and oh it's like oh this is just lame and uh, it got even worse in the main event the actual performance in front of the crowd to get this angle over way worse than this backstage segment I kind of totally ruined the main event Triple H talks to him (laughs) yeah the the shirt the the tie's just barely hanging out from his shirt his bowl yeah and the knee the knee the knee pads down there down under his uh, his ankles yeah it was it was a look i love how also that's the reason why punk wore the austin shirt in the pipe bomb promo because he wanted to go out there in a shirt for some reason the only shirt of his they had was a few sizes too big and he didn't want to look like he wasn't wearing pants so the quickest shirt he was able to get that fit him in a way where you could see he was wearing his trunks was an Austin shirt. But anyway, so I skipped past the beginning of this skit, but let's see what uh, Paul has to say to young Eugene Dinsmore here. I I just talked to Chris Benoit. Really? Uh And what did Chris Benoit say? Let me guess, Eugene, let me guess. Chris Benoit said he doesn't want to fight you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Chris Benoit said that he... Full crotch shot of Triple H there. <laughs> let, me get, let me guess some other things. Did he, Benoit, He's man-spreading, did I, too. Manipulate you? Mm-hmm. Did he say I use you? Mm-hmm. That I'm just using you to get the championship back? Yeah. Yeah. God, Benoit's such a liar. 
I can't believe it. It makes me sick. God, next thing you're going to tell me is that he told you that, uh, that he wanted to be your friend. He told me that. He did? Uh-huh. Sure. Can you believe that? This is the same Chris Benoit that smashed you in the head with a steel chair, right? Yeah, and he wants to be your friend, huh? That's the same Chris Benoit that punched you last week. Yeah, he did that. <laughs> yeah. Chris Benoit's a liar, Eugene. Can you see that? He's lying to you. He's not wrong. Yeah, he's a liar. <laughs> but you know what? I'm going to put an end to Chris Benoit tonight. We are. We're going to put an end to Chris Benoit. Would you like that? That would be a great idea. Yeah, because he's a liar. Evolution's your friends, not Chris Benoit. But you know what, Eugene? Let's let's put all that lying, using stuff behind us. Let's forget all about Chris Benoit, and let's think about something happy, like like let's think about the big surprise that we have for Eugene. That's right. I have a huge surprise for you. As a matter of fact, we have a huge surprise for you. Rick, run and get Eugene surprised, would you? Triple H's hair is luxurious. Huge surprise you, and a nature boy went to go get it. Wait till you see this, because this is going to make you so happy. That, oh, would you look at that, Eugene, huh? For me? Look at that. The robe. Yeah, be careful with it, though. That's very expensive. The player's face. Look at that. Huh? Look at it. Let me see that. Nature boy. <laughs> Jesus, to think of what Conrad had to go through to get one then. Who loves you? Evolution. Yeah. Woo! That's right. <laughs> Evolution loves you, Eugene. That is the single greatest one-liner in Ric Flair's entire career. <laughs> Just flat, like, what have you done to me? <laughs> I'll say this, as ill-advised as doing this storyline so soon was, and as badly executed as it was once the feud part really gets going, Triple H is absolutely phenomenal as a performer in this storyline at the beginning. Well, it lets him it lets him cut loose again. He's not serious heel Triple H. He's not. I am the gamer. The gamer. Yeah, he's not doing that. He's, you know, being what you know, kind of the funny Triple H again. When was the last time he was kind of relaxed, Triple H? I'm trying to think. Would this have been? Oh uh, God, two uh, thousand. Yeah, like pre, probably pre. Oh, there was a little bit. Oh, there, there was a little bit with like the angle Trish Steph stuff in two thousand. That's probably yeah, yeah. <laughs> the thing that well, no, 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 no. Two thousand. No, when he's babyface, when he's babyface in the in the Steph feud with Jer- with the Jericho. Oh yes, of course, of course. Yeah, good, good point. Good point. Um, the thing that bothers me the most about the feud, there's a lot of storyline, there's a lot of wrong, there's a lot of things that are wrong about it, terrible about it. The one that irks me, just from a, a stupid logical point of view, is Triple H, and you really see it in the main event. He goes just so out 
get Eugene involved just so he can have him run interference in the main event and help him re- help him win matches. And it's like, wouldn't it just be a lot easier to get, I don't know, the dirtiest player in the game with 30 years experience, Ric Flair, to do that for you? Or perhaps or the up, animal up Batista. <laughs> yeah, the animal Batista with his power or uh, a smooth up-and-coming star with a, who's uh, is learning from the best, Randy Orton. All guys who are doing doing well and on the same page with you and you have no doubts about but no you're going to go out of your way to get Eugene who is like yes he's easily manipulated but he as you see in the main event he's not someone Triple H can just rely on to do his bidding and it goes terribly for him and it's like I don't know it it just that seems really forced to me yeah Oh, uh, and an update on the Tomahawk saga. Tomahawk was Hackmeyer's Jr., Bix. So he just <laughs> happened to look like Travis Tomko and have a name that you would expect someone in that territory to give to a man with the last name Tomko? He had a MySpace um, that was, uh, I guess, no longer in existence. But yeah, it was a guy working as Hackmeyer's Jr. He was a Hackmeyer's trainee. So there you go. And where did you find that he was Tomahawk of Memphis Championship Wrestling? Cage match. <laughs> Are you sure that's accurate, though? I just looked at it. But they mix guys up sometimes. I, I, I mean, I found a tweet thread where I, I was tweeting about it, and Mark Brevera, you know, was veteran indie worker, I believe, passed through Memphis around that time. He said it was Travis Tomko. Yeah, it's got uh, Tomahawk as uh, Hackmeyer's Jr. He also worked for uh, the Samoans in Pennsylvania for WXW as Tomahawk. So well, Let's be real. There are probably multiple indie wrestlers who have used the name Tomahawk. Maybe, but anyway. Well, so, that, so we have a cage match chiming in on that one. All right, Batista over Chris Jericho in twelve nineteen after a powerbomb. You know, Jericho got a foot on the roads. Batista looked the worst he's looked in a long time. He was even worse than Tomko. Much of it was Batista dominating with power, working on full Nelson. Jericho made a brief comeback late in the match. One star. Yeah, Batista, he had to uh, he had to work. Work on his skills. But props to him, he did. He kept, he, he kept improving as time went on. So. And he's... He's someone who, and you probably could have figured this out from watching which of his OVW matches were good. He's someone who needed to be on the main roster to sink or swim. Yeah, but his look and charisma, you know, you just couldn't stop that. So, no, no, but he he did improve greatly. Yeah, and that's the thing, you know, a guy like Batista. Uh, again, it goes back to old-school wrestling in that the guys that looked like Batista, they did not have to be great in-ring workers to be stars. I mean, some of those guys... But he turned the big, into one anyway. He turned into one anyway, but they didn't have to be because the gimmick and the look and everything, that's the money, you know, more than anything else. Yes. But he, I, he do it. I just realized something, though. I feel like, like all of the muscle guys who got really good in that system... Maybe body guys is the better way to put it. I don't know. 
when they got good, it was all on the main roster. It was not in developmental. Yeah. Batista, Braun Strowman, Mason Ryan, Chris Masters. I'm yeah. sure there are more I'm forgetting. Tom, Tom Coe, I think, was already pretty... Well, no, I mean, we just talked about it earlier, but he... Yeah, Tomko's another example then. What am I talking about? We just said that. <laughs> that Tomko got much better, you know, from being around Christian and stuff. So I think a big part of it is like um the the guys who are trainers in OVW uh, certainly great trainers in terms of taking a wrestler from scratch with athletic ability or what have you and, and teaching them the absolute basics but as we've seen with a lot of those guys in terms of how they conduct themselves publicly they don't value much else other than the absolute basics and you know when you're around a multitude of guys on the main roster with all kinds of different experience with different levels of enthusiasm for you know trying things or what have you um it's probably going to cause guys to grow a lot more as performers than seeing rip rogers every day you need you need the, the variety absolutely all right la resistance retained the tag titles being rick flair and eugene by dq and twelve thirty. not much for wrestling but it has moments of campy entertainment flair and eugene worked as baby faces you know they had teased if they wouldn't get along there were no signs of it during the match other than flair being pissed because eugene did all of his spots including the face first flop flair came in was probably the most popular wrestler on the show as he got a far bigger reaction than eugene he did a few trademark spots that sold a lot. They did the au revoir on Flair, but Eugene came in and went berserk, threw down referee Mike Kyoto for the DQ. He then gave a stunner to Grenier, rock bombed the Conway, and did the people's elbow of the Conway, star and three quarters. So there you go. Yeah, not much to say on, on Rito's last two matches. The only thing I did want to just quickly say was it was wild seeing Chris Jericho at this point just a complete nothing guy on the roster. Like he was obviously coming off a really good feud and storyline with Trish and Christian, but he had nothing going on here. He was cold as ice. This was maybe the Jesus one of the coldest I think he ever was in his really like full time mainstream career. Yeah, I mean, he yeah, he was like a Tito Santana basically at this one time. Yeah, and, that's uh, a great that's a great comparison, and he'd pretty much stay like that because he he stays face until when is it? I'm trying to remember he's, when relative. He's a face at the first the first the Money in the Bank in 2012 May or 2005 Mania. He's a face, and then I think he turns heel during that. 05 summer to set him up for the Cena program and then he goes yeah he because he I think he, he, he's heel like in 08 no no oh no, yeah no. yeah he, well so he that's after his sabbatical right, right, right he is but that's when he does the turn and with Michaels and everything yeah that's that's post sabbatical sh- short hair Jericho who did he turn on who did he turn on in 05 for that last run with Cena. Was it just a natural thing or was there an angle? He may have turned on Cena. I think he just turned on Cena, just like Vic said. I mean, yeah, maybe. Is, yeah, because Cena comes over and he, like Cena upstages him, right? Because he comes on Raw on the highlight. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Good. That's thinking. what it is. So Jericho was basically spent a year as Tito Santana babyface. 
Yeah. And that's what he said. He said in the Austin thing they did on the network a couple of months back, he said that it was that period that he realized I'm doing nothing. I'm leaving. That was his that was his mindset at the time. And he was he was he was done. He thought he was done for good at that, that point. Yeah. Okay, I found it. It's okay. It's oh the night after one night stand in June 05, he's teaming with Cena against Christian and Tomko, and he turns on uh, Cena there. Then they do the yeah. three-way with Christian as Christian's last pay-per-view before he leaves, and then they continue the feud through SummerSlam and right after. Yeah. All right, Matt Hardy pin Kane in 1034. The crowd heavily booed the promotional package of the Hardy Kane Lita soap opera. Hardy had the win because nobody believed in him a lick. They weren't how they should have worked it, but because of how much time has been spent on this angle, it had a little heat. Hardy hit Kane on the ring bell, he had a twist of fate, but Kane kicked out and sat up. Kane did a sloppy choke slam, then went to get the ring steps. Lita ready to protect Hardy. Hardy came in the ring with the steps, but Hardy clapped the steps of a chair, and Kane fell backwards and was pinned two and a quarter stars. So at this point, the storyline is what? Kane just won't stop beating up Hardy? Or have they introduced the because he wants to have sex with Lita part yet? I think I, I don't know what the timeline is. On well, that well she's she's pregnant and and um, Hardy says at one point. Uh, oh, they've already done all that by this point. Okay. Yeah, Hardy says in the post match interview he's giving out to her for having interfered because she's pregnant and he, and he's like. Um, if you get hurt, the, uh, the I don't want any that that baby which could be mine. So it is obviously doubt whether it was Kane or Matt Hardy's baby at, at that point. Yes, we should note for those who are not familiar with the storyline that um, by it's awful. No, but also because <laughs> it is law of many a jurisdiction. Like they didn't seem to realize this writing this, but like at a minimum, Kane sexually assaulted her. Un, you know, under a false pretense kind of thing, because he uh, sabotaged the condom as a reproductive abuser. That was the storyline. Yes. And then after... Gene Snitsky kills the baby. Yes, after she refused to sleep with him, but he kept beating up Matt Hardy, and then... And then, yes, and the Snitsky thing, where no one considered that that shouldn't just be a one-off guy taken out of developmental and sent back in that angle. So that also got Gene Snitsky called up for good. It's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible, but it's also very strange. I, I don't get it beyond that. Yeah, I'm assuming this is Vince's people, idea. People complain about WWE today. <laughs> Go back and watch the oh, That's a good point. As, SmackDown wasn't much better either. But as unwatchable <laughs> yeah. as a lot of the TV is right now, and you know, we'll see what they change with crowds in the next couple of weeks. No, they would not do this storyline today. They absolutely would not. I mean, just some of the stupid shit they did in, in the in the two thousands. I mean, it did, oh, oof, aging horribly. Oh, just that's so much shit. All right, Edge pinned Randy Orton to win the IC title in twenty six thirty six. Mixed reaction early, but lots of Let's Go Orton. Wish saw Let's Go Edge chance follow from his fans. Dave thought this was an excellent match with Orton showing the most poise and star charisma he's ever seen from him. Orton worked over Edge and Snack for a long time. He did the long cranking chin lock. To some, it was a never-ending wrestle, but to others, it was working the neck and using a unique angle. The timing and the spots were perfect. 
They got out and did one their fault or another, playing off all the or- Orton's previous cheating wins, and the crowd hit the finish was excellent. At one point, they traded a hard elbow and forearm ch- shots like they were in Noah. Orton rolled through on a cross body for near fall. He undid the turnbuckle padding. Edge used implant DT for near fall. Orton dropped the edge on the exposed metal. Used the ropes for near fall. Place was popping huge for near falls. Orton ended up whipping him into the exposed metal. Was hit with a spear for the pin and the title win. Four and a quarter stars. Dave's high on this match. Alan, what were your thoughts on it? Dave is underselling how much the crowd were pro-Orton and anti-Edge to start this match. They were, if they were in Canada, which they were at the SummerSlam a couple of months later, they would have gone fully in on the Bizarro World stuff because they're in Connecticut. They're obviously not going to do that. Um, This was really, like, the crowd were so into Orton. And you could tell... First of all, you could tell that these guys absolutely were following the same thought process of Triple H in terms of, you mentioned earlier, Triple H wanting to do long matches and uh, getting into a kick off that and old style work. Like Randy Orton was clearly reading off the same hymn sheet because this didn't feel like a match that was overly produced. There seemed to be a lot of... um reacting to the crowd and reacting to that crowd in the most um, successful way because they were able, like sometimes you'd take it and you would okay, we'll just go with the crowd here, give them what they want and, and change things so that they can they're going with Orton so we'll give them Orton, but these guys are part of a bigger story, there's stuff planned, they need to keep Orton heel at this point. They're wanting to keep Edge as a face. They're wanting Edge to get a big face title win. Five or six minutes into this match, I wouldn't have thought that was possible. But they, and particularly Randy Orton, do such a great job of turning this crowd that by the end, not only are the crowd popping huge for near falls and popping for Edge's win huge, Orton going up the ramp after the match is getting na-na-na-na, hey-hey, goodbye chance, and he's having a temper... He's having a um, a Hollywood John Tatum-style temper tantrum <laughs> on the uh, on the entrance ramp as the crowd are singing the goodbye song. And, like, 25 minutes earlier, this crowd were all chanting, let's go, Orton. I didn't hear any of the edge, pro-edge uh, contingent of the crowd that Dave seemingly heard. They were They were not noticeable to me. Um, but the the way Orton went about doing this was ballsy and then some because again I think Dave's underselling those side headlocks and those chin locks. I have I was shocked and I was stunned seeing a WWE pay per view match with two guys sitting in holds for this long and I know Orton became like the chin lock thing became a meme with Orton throughout his career. But, like, the amount of this match that was spent in that shit lock, and I was like, this is so boring. And, but it worked, because when they came out of that, the crowd was, and the crowd were chanting boring at times during it, but it caused them to rally behind Edge, and it caused them to get annoyed at Orton. And then in that closing stretch with the near falls, they were going more and more towards the edge side of thing as as Orton kind of 
his he was becoming foiled with the different things he was trying, like with the corner. It was just masterfully done. Like I give them so much credit. Uh, they did a great job. I ended up really as a whole package enjoying this a lot. And it just felt so different to a lot of wrestling nowadays, to be to be honest. It was it was a real throwback match, um, both in terms of being able to dictate um, to be able to dictate a crowd, um, kind of conduct that crowd like an orchestra and get them doing what you want to be doing, which is such a skill. And to be seeing that and to be seeing just the work style was very old school with the big the big cross body spot at the end. Like that's that's classic old school, old school stuff. So, yeah, really, really big thumbs up for me for this. And I think it 1000 percent outshone the main event that came after it. Biggs, any thoughts? I did eventually like the Orton Chin Locks. There was like a couple years where he like found ways to make them interesting. But yeah, don't really have much to add to that otherwise. Orton was, I mean, he was the guy here. I mean, he definitely was somebody who was standing out as this guy could be the next major star in the business. And he never really achieved that. He's had an amazing career, no doubt. But he never achieved what he could have achieved. And a lot of that's because of his own doing with his attitude. If Orton had stayed straight you know, in the 2000s and not had his issues. And he, and he said, and he knows this and he said it. They're not telling what he could have done. He's one of the big what ifs. And even though he's had, like I said, the major career and been, you know, been a top guy for all these years, but he didn't go to that next level that he could have went to, you know? So yeah, he's definitely, he's definitely got it. There's definitely could have been more. And just we just didn't get it, but still going strong. God bless him. It looks like he's having a time of his life in recent years too. So good for him. All right, Victoria over Molly Holly in six twenty. A match with the winner would be next in line for the title shot at the injured Trish Stratus, possibly SummerSlam. They had no chance whatsoever because of the previous match and just being in that spot on the card, the death slot. They probably couldn't have done much better as Holly always works well and Victoria looked great. She did a moonsault block and a plancha. She took a weird bump in the ring steps, which made her selling the shoulder so believable. Holly worked on the shoulder because of this. Victoria couldn't do her widow's peak, but still won with a super kick, two and a half stars. Well, it's another thing that we don't have to in, in Adobe anymore. The death slot. I, I was just going to say, it's in, it's a thing that's completely gone. Like, they kind of just build it to the most important matches kind of towards the end of the show. You, you don't get that death slot anymore. Yeah, and no more than not, it was the women that always had it. Yeah, yeah, and um, now you get with the women in the main events oftentimes, and yeah, it's uh, it's well deserved, and it's uh, unfortunate for the likes of Victoria and Molly, who would have been two of the stronger, more accomplished yeah. wrestlers of that era, who yeah had to take these scraps and make the best of them they could. I was, I was really taken aback because when I saw the next match coming up was Victoria versus Molly, I, I totally forgot about um, like the, the whole that feud and Molly being the heel with the, the getting the head shaved. I just completely forgot about all that. And I just saw on paper Victoria and Molly and I was like, Victoria heel, Molly baby face. And 
Molly came out with the wig and then Victoria I was still taken aback when Victoria came out after as like this preppy baby face, like spunky baby face Victoria. I was like just I was just expecting like two thousand two style heel Victoria. Oh she so had, this is uh I'm not the lady to mess with entering yeah, music Victoria. Yeah, not, I got uh, I got Victoria. so taken yeah, I was so taken aback by it. It's like, it's like, whoa, this is this is an entrance song right here. <laughs> yeah. So, man, Chris Benoit with Triple H at twenty nine oh four to keep the world title. Must have managed all Triple H working with Benoit for chest. They had to visit if Benoit suffered a sternum injury by running fast, running fast chest first to the turnbuckles. Triple H delivered what started as a vertical suplex, but kept dropping Benoit on the forward on his chest. As Triple H was using a double stretch with the usual Wilbur Snyder reference, Jim Ross mentioned he didn't know if Benoit had ever submitted. Wasn't that Kurt Angle match at the Royal Rumble just about the best company match in 2003, Dave asked? Benoit blocked the pedigree into a sharpshooter and held it for a long time before Triple H made the ropes. Benoit hit three German suplex combinations and did the tope. They mounted a rep bump here. Triple H then did a DDT. Triple H told Eugene to come out. He did, but Benoit got the crossface and there was no ref. Benoit told Eugene to get the referee, but Eugene refused to do so. The Triple H was tapping, of course. The ref stayed down forever, to the point this was stupid. Benoit did Eugene because he refused to get the referee. Crowd booed that. Triple H used a low blow and pedigree, and Eugene then got the ref. Benoit kicked out. Triple H told Eugene to get a chair. Eugene gave Triple H a chair, but stopped him from using it. Triple H shoved Eugene off the apron to the floor. Eugene then got the chair and teased he's going to hit Benoit. He didn't stop and teased he's going to hit Triple H. He stopped again. Benoit and Eugene then struggled over the chair until Benoit let go and Eugene pulled the chair away and accidentally hit Triple H with it. Eugene started crying about screwing up. Benoit scored the pin with the schoolboy three and three quarter stars. All right, Alan, you just watched this. Uh, overbooked Gen- a, little, a little much? Gener- generous three and three quarter stars. Overbooked finish. Like you're you're suffering through this long boring match, and then you get to just the most egregious overbooked finish with the the trope of Triple H actually like literally calling out Eugene, and Eugene slowly um, hesitantly walking down the ramp, and then they just do full on dog and pony show uh, uh, finishing stretch, and it's not exciting whatsoever, not particularly well executed it's executed fine but it not it's not in any like it's not exciting um close to the match like you can have a a match with interference and as i said the dog and pony show that's that's done well and it's exciting this was not it um lawler and and like for for such a boring long match you kind of would hope that maybe at least the commentary is uh interesting but lawler and ross just kind of bickering with each other with Ross especially having very little energy, like it was just this real, just kind of um, half-hearted bickering with Lawler, and he just didn't seem into it. It was just really unenjoyable. But I, I, I will say, I'll give Lawler credit for maybe one line, which was, I think, I, I can't ever recall Jerry Lawler offering up a piece of insightful, like physical wrestling analysis like this ever in his WWE WF run. Uh, he points out when Triple H hits a gourd buster, um, I believe it or not, which you didn't see Triple H do very often. Triple H hits a gourd buster and Lawler goes, that was really interesting. Um, 
he took him up for a, a, a soup, a vertical suplex, and Benoit would have been bracing himself to land on his back. But then Triple H, being so smart, he changed it up on him, dropped him down on his chest, which was already injured, and he did way more uh, damage to Benoit than if Benoit had been prepared for such a, a, a fall. So, uh, yeah, that was, I, I think, the most insightful Jerry Lawler line. I've ever heard in his commentary. That's the most notable thing to tell you about a match. Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, well, how did it make Benoit look? I mean, he's a babyface champion, and he's got all this Eugene stuff going on. I mean... It made him look like a third wheel. It made him look a joke, in a way. I mean, it, it, the fan, it making the fans boo him and other stuff, so it's, it, it's, it's could hard have to been. It could have been me or you in that role, Chris. It could have been anyone. Pick your random, faceless, generic OVW guy and put him in that role. Like, it was a complete waste of of Benoit's talents. Um, it just wasn't... Um, it wasn't where... How they should have been using him if they wanted to, to give him a main event run. It just it wasn't him. Um, it, it stripped away the things that made him enjoyable as a pro wrestler and was... Having him it be in a situation that accentuated his weaknesses. Big, any thoughts? The booking of this was also weird, but also again, it's all the Triple H stuff from this era because Benoit. I mean, the storyline was weird going into Mania, but the moment at the time worked. They do it well at the next pay per view, and then pretty much after Backlash. He he is not presented at the level of a champion at all. Yeah, he's not. That's for sure. And that makes you wonder if one uh, Paul Levesque probably was part of that too. So you know, Orton beats Benoit. You know, Benoit's kind of been brushed down. So it's maybe not as impressive as it would have been with uh, Benoit from earlier. So who knows? Anyway. Alright, so that's Vengeance. Is it Raw pay-per-view? So the next night we have Raw on the 12th from Manchester, New Hampshire. Which drew 6,000 fans. Another in the too much about Eugene shows. There's one thing when the guy was getting big pops. The crowd's got lukewarm towards him. And when Evolution destroyed him at the end of the show, which is a great heavy-duty angle, then one of the channels portrayed as if he meant nothing. Some parts of the show were good, but they had three diva search segments that brought the show to a halt. It sounded like the crowd booed all three contestants, although one of them was at least smartened up. And clearly, they were trying to push her as a star as compared to the other two. The pusher being a playmate of the year and kiss of the Vincent Man, say she wants to work for him. Crowd pop for the Playboy mention, but still didn't seem to want her around either. The rating for the special this week will be interesting because the company has pushed it incredibly hard. Dave thinks that when it comes down to the wire between the last two contestants, that'd be one of the higher ratings on Raw in a long time. But there will be some insufferable sadness over the next few months getting there. Oh boy, he just doesn't know. Show up on all members of Evolution wanting to beat up Eugene for screwing up. Triple H, the master of all, acted as like he wasn't mad at all. He said that people make mistakes with friends of friends. He told him Uncle Eric was really mad at him, though. Edge and Batista at 1509 with a schoolboy holding the ropes. This is so different than previous time for both guys. But once the crowd was totally in the edge, the others Batista looked like a wrestler. And they have a good match, far better than anyone could have expected. Again, working with guys like Edge, 
you know, helps Batista out. You know, that's what you got to do. Put him in with the workers. Eugene met with Uncle Eric, who said it was okay because he was proud of him for last week as GM showed creativity. And that's what happened in Vengeance. And that what happened in Vengeance was an honest mistake. He says giving Eugene a title shot of Benoit, but he made facial expressions while hugging that he really hated Eugene. The big setup. <laughs> you talk about Triple H. Bischoff was great, too, in this role, Bix. You mean Uncle Eric? Uncle Eric, yes. He was. He was always good in this role, in general. In he's he's able smarmy. Yes, all the smarm, exactly. <laughs> Eugene was Eric's sister's son, right? In storyline? Did they say sister's son, or did they just say nephew? I, th- I think they spe- specified, I should say, yeah. Yeah, but sister. didn't they say his last name was Bischoff? No, they did say it. No, uh, no it was the sister, because the last name's Dinsmore. Okay. They kept him as Dinsmore, even if they didn't uh, really acknowledge it past the beginning. I was going to ask, does Bischoff actually have a sister? I don't know. I don't know either. I, I just, I've started reading the, the Nitro book, and they literally oh, just had his, his, uh, some of the like early life Bischoff stuff in there, and I'm trying to think that they mention brothers and sisters, and I can't remember. I think, he, I think they did mention a brother, but... I yeah I don't know. Oh God! What a fuck it is. I just pulled yeah. up the WWE press release about the Diva Search special. I'm not reading the whole thing, but I have to read this part. Okay. It better not be. You better not be screwing up the ending of the show. Uh, let me make sure then, real quick. <laughs> so I got I got some at the end of the show about that. So don't screw up the end. I'm looking. God. I'm looking. I'm looking. Uh, so don't. No, it's not the same thing. It's not the same thing. Mm. Well, no, we had talked about that before recording last week, so that's not that's not a spoiler for me personally. I mean, um, okay, here's here's the part I just want to read because it reads amusingly. This group of twenty eight includes Playboy playmates, a former Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. Shouldn't say Dallas Cowboys cheerleader. And it can be either. Yeah. An Outback Jack star, and a set of twins who were called, quote, two of the most dynamic, p- positive personalities they have ever worked with by the creators of The Man Show. Despite their various ages and backgrounds, they all have one thing in common. It is their dream to be a WWE diva. Yeah, we'll have more on that you later can hear on. just Kevin Dunn all over that. Well, it'll ha- we'll have more from him later on. Mm-hmm. All right, first we had Candace Beckman of Milwaukee, using the name Candace the show, bringing the show to a halt. That's all Dave had to say about this that segment. Um, Alan, what were your thoughts on the uh, first Diva Search segment? I, I, I don't remember much. Um, well, I, I didn't watch this Raw. Um, you guys you guys wisely oh. warned, warned me not to. Uh, okay, well, so, never mind then. <laughs> yeah, no, I've... I have no real thoughts on the specific segments, but I just, in terms of the first Diva search, the only the only thing I really remember about that first one is um, just the Diva. The, I think I think uh, I think uh, yeah, just the Diva. I think a lot of the segments might have been cut off the Sky Sports broadcast. I want to say I don't recall, have a great memory of them. Um, in two thousand five, um, I remember the stuff more because figure four had launched and 
I was an early member of the figure four board and the idea of this wrestling audio, the early Brian and Phineas stuff, I was like, I was so into it. Like it was when I think of summer 2005, I just remember just loving all that stuff. And they did, they put up little audio updates as, as they called them. And they did an audio update after every raw where it was like their live running commentary of the diva search segments. And um, oh, yes, I just with Brian most... and Vinny yelling into a cheap, uh, portable recorder yeah Yeah, it was it was certainly not what it would become um in terms of audio quality for sure but uh yeah that was i have a stronger memory of that second one because of that than the first one but uh yes certainly some names that became things out of this candace beckman as you as you mentioned and uh uh carmella who didn't become much of a name in wrestling but oh christy henry obviously probably was the who was the bigger wrestling star, Christy Hemi or Candice Michelle? Who do we give that uh, illustrious uh, win to? Ooh, I don't know. But they're not the biggest stars of the group, That's, though, because Maria's wise, in there, too. Wrestling-wise, Candice of those two was the was the, the best wrestler of it. At least, yeah. But Christy Hemi had to stay in power. You know, she stayed in TNA for all those years, so... Was Maria not in the... Um... In the second one, she no, was in that first in one. one. Okay. God, look how skeezy Lawler looks with. Oh God. It Candace says, I mean, the boltons on her there just look, man. Well, I mean, there's like a ca- a cavern, a cavern in her chest. Ugh. So, good lord. Okay. All so right. Just real quick, just so we know the notable names that are in the first Diva search in terms of. Did they become a celebrity somewhere else later, or did they stay in wrestling, or did they make it far? Joy G- this is the season with Joy Giovanni, uh, Amy Weber, Karen McDougal. I don't think Karen McDougal made it to the final selection, though. Uh, Christy Hemme. She's famous for other reasons. No, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> Michelle McCool. I didn't. Alexander. I didn't know she was in that. Was she not like a way? Was she not like way above that at that you point? She was so. a plan in the year. She was Playman of the Year before that. Was in then. 97, 98? Oh, her Playman of the Year? Yeah. She was earlier than that. Because well, well, she was on the Howard Stern appearance on the Magic Hour, I remember. And she was already Playman of the Year her, by then, I think. And that was a when was year. her relationship with Trump? Let's see. Okay, she was. Okay, she would have been Playman of the Year in 98. So you're right. She was the runner-up for sexiest playmate of the nineties. Okay, uh, Trump was oh six oh seven. It says so after this. So yeah. Yes, uh, Michelle McCool Alexander, uh, Carmelo De Caesar, Maria Canellis, and those are the main like names. Yeah. All right. Flair did a promo about his book. Then Hurricane came out and asked for an autograph. Flair turned him down. Hurricane then lost his temper and said all sorts of stupid things. It's been a week for that. Flair told him his name is Gregory Helms. Can't be stealing the son of the boss's first name. And he should be concentrating on wrestling rather than being a clown. He said he wanted to make fans happy. He said Flair's book wasn't as good as Hogan's, Rock's, or China's book. Dave was wanting to deck him at that point. He said it wasn't number one like Foley's book. Flair decked him for that one. Rhino then beat Rob Conway in 305 with a gore so Jerry stopped Grenier from interfering. This is a run up to Jerry as tag title challenges probably next week. Tonka pin Maven in a grudge match, cut off the pay-per-view at 223. 
Nidia came out with Maven wearing this top that across the chest read sexy. Well, Trish's top said babe. And she's like, it read sex. Although God only knows what Nidia, although God only knows Nidia's chest is large enough for four letters. <laughs> Good night, everybody. And I think Trish was wearing a bebe, not babe on the shirt. I could be wrong. Tonka looked much better tonight. Jer- and so there's that. Jericho did the highlight reel with Kane and Lita. Lita did the best promo of her life. Wow, they showed Guts giving her that many lines in a live audience. But she pulled through way better than expected. She told Kane off in no uncertain terms, saying she's not going to be the victim and Kane wasn't going to do anything to her. She said Matt could fight us on battle, so she thinks Matt's a father because he's far more of a man. Kane went berserk and he tried to destroy the highlight reel set. Jericho tried to stop but got thrown over the top. Kane left. Jericho then got on the mic and started insulting Kane, talking about him being premature. Being a diva, having no balls. Finally, Kane came back and they had a match. Jericho won by DQ in 738 with a cheap low blow finish. They had a good match. In the post match, Kane took slam referee Chris K and Jericho at the same time. That's always a good big man spot. Oh, Jericho. What happened to Chris K? Who knows? When was the last time we heard that name? Years. Did he just get laid off and completely disappear? I guess so. Huh. Okay. Yeah, that was a blast from the past right there. So also Another wait, wait, I'm trying to figure out where does Nydia fit into the storylines in two thousand four though? I don't remember. That she's with Maven in two thousand four. Well, she was with uh Venus on the show before. But this is post knowable, right? Yes. As she's not in her jean shorts, yes. Well, they weren't tough enough, so I guess they're tough enough compadres. I so there's that. Yes, yeah. And God, look at Maven. Alan, that's another one. Um, imagine if Maven, you know, doesn't get hurt and has a, has a career that he could have had. I mean, that guy could have been something in the business. Um, he was starting to show some real good heel personality uh, around even when he was doing stuff with Simon Dean, right? Which that would have been before. No, that was after this. Um, he, yeah, he was, he was starting to come along nicely. Wasn't he one of the guys that they had given consideration to for evolution? Yeah. Well, he was or- one of Orton's running buddies. That's probably why he went in evolution. Because <laughs> Triple H <laughs> is trying to get rid of that element. Yeah. Orton, Maven, and Mark Jindrak. Uh, they they're leg- they were legends in that era <laughs> uh, for stuff they uh, stuff they did and uh, yeah we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> if they were a babyface group in southeastern in the early to mid eighties, what would their name have been? Um oh, they were a party patrol in many ways. <laughs> absolutely, oh, uh, absolutely. Looks like your right. shirt says uh, "ass kicking babe." It's a WWE shirt. Yeah. Okay, it was. Okay, I didn't even remember that. Also, this is is this before or after the broken nose? I don't know. She's got her hand all taped up. Because she looks different. Don't know, but she's got her hand taped up, so there's that. Alright, another diva, Nina Harden of Carson, California, but built from Chicago for some reason came out and did a stripper dance. Oh, I didn't take care at all. Flair B Hurricane seven seventeen with a figure four. Good match with Flair, even doing his Ray Stevens flip. This is the knife for Stevens mentions as Ross compared Eugene's instinctive wrestling ability to Ray Stevens. Flair's clawed flower of his ear started bleeding really bad at the bump, and it's nothing serious. 
well, next to a neck that probably needs surgery and still working like this at his age, it was nothing serious. Then Carmella De Cesar, who was clearly being put in position and fed lines to where they wanted her to win, came out next. Nobody cared until she said she was Playmate of the Year. By the time it was over, you could see they were tro- totally trying to manipulate the contest. Oh, absolutely. They, it, that was the handpicked one they wanted to win. Absolutely. Then she won. No, she didn't. didn't she didn't win, though. Didn't Christy win? She... No. Didn't it come down to her and Christy? Hold on. Carmella won, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, let's see. Or am I wrong? I'm looking right now. Your winner is... Was it her? Uh, okay. Finalist. Yeah, Christy won. You're right. Christy won. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. right. But Carmella was running. Your order of elimination is Julia Costello, Camille Anderson, Chandra Costello, Michelle McCool, Tracy Wright, Maria Canellis, Amy Weber, Joy Giovanni, Carmella DeCease, or Christy Hemme. So, yeah. The, all of that said, like, I get it. She's the playmate of the year. She's the more conventional beauty than, in some ways. But she had no personality, and she clearly didn't want to be there and thought she was above it. She looked like she'd be, as we say in Ireland, absolute shit crack. <laughs> no fun to hang out with, basically, is what that means. She's one of, I mean, she was one of the, you know, those types of, of women that, you know, were full of themselves, so to speak. And, hey, you know, she's playing of the year. She, you know, had her, uh, Thing with Jeff Garcia, so uh, she had a reason to be, I guess. So, but yeah, they definitely want her to win. They that, that's a no brainer on that one. But Christy Hemme overcame it, so there you go. All right, um, Eugene went to a no contest with Benoit 741. Eugene out rusted most of the way, he used German suplex and a crossface on Benoit. We had to get to the ropes for a break. He's rock bottom on Benoit, got this foot on the, foot on the ropes. Evolution came out and just did a major number on Benoit and Eugene at this point. Triple H gave the pedigree to Benoit. Regal didn't run in, but they beat him down as well. Orton gave him an RKO. Eugene just had limbs beaten down and got a pedigree. The whole focus is on Eugene getting destroyed by everyone. That show went off the air. They even taped Eugene going out on a stretcher. It was an old, old school hardcore heel angle that came off well. Just that the champ was made to look insignificant. Again, <laughs> you know. I get, we didn't need it this early. It's too early. It's the theme of this whole deal here. Rushing through angles. Now, let me ask you this, and I'm curious what both of you think about this. Given the political landscape, should they have not given Eugene the character trait of Triple H being his favorite wrestler? Or do you think all of this happens regardless? It happens regardless. Okay. Because that's yeah, a small part of him getting over, much. and it's more that he had a ready wit made way to enter the angle. Yeah. But still, just silly, silly stuff. All right. I'll say, I'll say this about it. I, after watching a bit of it for this show and talking about it with you guys, and obviously, as always, I enjoy talking with you guys about anything, but I have less than zero desire to ever go back and watch anything else from this angle ever again. Oh, God. No, <laughs> believe I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Don't, don't worry. You're not alone. 
Raw on July 12th to a 3.67 rating, 3.0 first hour, 3.90 second hour, 4.53 million viewers. And, and, and think about this, Alan. People that I used, I used to talk to wrestling with all the time, that used to come to my house, watch pay-per-views, they look at this era as a great era. So <laughs> they don't watch wrestling today. They could care less. They say, they're like, why can't wrestling be like it was, you know, when evolution was around and stuff like that. And, and at the time, those of us who had been watching for longer before that, this was a down era. Like, it had been going steadily down from where it was at in 98, 99, you know, yeah. in, terms, in terms of business. So it's like, and then in versus 2000, 2001, it had gone down in terms of quality. So, like, and you had you had your kind of things you could cling to in 2002 and a bit in 2003 but 2004 really after the build to mania and mania and backlash really the rest of 2004 is on both brands pretty dull to bad in a lot of ways and they're still doing great business compared to nowadays but at that time they were on a down they were like on a on stepping back and looking kind of year on year, it was pretty much like a continuous downward line right to where we're at right now. Yeah. Uh, but 4.53 million viewers. Edge yeah. Matisse had, had a strong early growth of 586,000 viewers. Ronald and Conway gained 426, although that also included Flair at Hurricane Angle. Maven and Tonka lost 130. Just terrible considering this fall on the show, but hardly unexpected given who was involved. Jericho's highlight reel gained 572, which is tremendous, hitting the 4.01 mark. Jericho just, just to say on, the, on that figure, it just jumps out to me because I know, Chris, you're someone who I, I know things are all very different nowadays, but you're someone who does like to point out that like the ratings nowadays and the ratings war, it's so it's so nothing compared to what these numbers were back in the day. And you look at that 572 Jericho highlight reel with Kane and Lita gained 572,000 viewers. It essentially gained the whole audience of those recent episodes of Dynamite. Yeah. And again, and it's a non wrestling segment. <laughs> again, this is non wrestling. And uh, Jericho and Kane at the break, the match lost 182,000 viewers which is normal for that slot. Flair and Hurricane lost 258,000 viewers, which is also normal for that point in the show. The main event with the Evolution Brutal Run-In was the biggest rating success of any segment perhaps all year, gaining 1.367 million viewers and peaking at a 4.56 and 5.9 million viewers. Wow. Think about that. (laughs) So who are we attributing that to? It's the in the bra. I mean, that, that, that's what happens. Oh, but still, the, it's, the it's, it's a bigger gain than usual. That's part of it, but that's the. I mean, that's a huge gain, though. You know, and it's. Yeah. Well, there's something else going on here, though. This is what? week two of Joe Schmo season two being moved to Monday after Raw. There's part of that too, but still, it's the night of the pay per view. The fans, the, the fans know what the end of the show is going to be, so they they turn away and came back. So I, I knew a lot of them that did that. They knew when to turn and when not to turn. They knew how the show was structured. Raw was structured in a way where you knew, basically, when you needed to watch and when you didn't need to watch if you just cared about the major players. And that's what a lot of people did anyway. They just care about the major players. Back when there were major players. <laughs> now, now there's not such a thing as major players in wrestling anymore. So there you go. 
right, SmackDown notes from the July 8th TV. Before, which is, again, this is split brand, so it really doesn't matter. It's before the pay-per-view. Show was decent, though. So bushly that Renee Dupree comes out with a different dog every week, and they pretend it's the same dog. <laughs> That's Dave and, uh, and Bix having the same type of uh, mindset there. So it's like I see you saying that, Bix. Uh, RVD pin the Charisma I Challenge. I care about whether or not it's a different dog. Oh, I'm sure you would have. RVD pin the Charisma Challenge Mark Jindrak. Michael Cole said that Jindrak and Teddy Long have had an amicable parting of the ways, which is carny for a writing staff that doesn't worry about details involving prelim guides. As soon as it sounds, Dave believes the story was there. It was a problem getting Teddy Long into Canada. And since he wasn't there, they decided just to drop them as an act. Then the decision appears to have been changed again. Because the weekend house shows long managed Jindrak. At least he got on the mic to acknowledge it by saying, not to believe anything you saw on SmackDown. The problem is, Dave doesn't think anybody does. But the house shows it didn't even tease problems between the two. Hopefully they'll give along a different protege so they don't waste his talking ability. Then again, they have Paul Heyman haven't even come up with a protege for him either. Jericho threw a hell of a standing drop kick. He seems to have actually gotten worse over the past three years. It's been that long since he and Sean O'Hare were tag champs in WCW and looked to have a great future. Dave thinks it's all about confidence. When you're told you're great and pushed like you're great, you're called to working. When you're tore down and told you work and wrong and you hesitate on everything, it's affection. Dave, I mean, Jindrak was a guy who, boy, he had to get away. And he did and became a major, major star in Mexico. So good for him. Good for him. Paul Lennon and Billy Kidman won the tag titles from the Dudleys in a good match. It was positioned as a fluke win, just a big upset. London shoved Devon off the top rope, and then London did the what's up on Bubba. London also super kicked Bubba, leading the Kidman, using a shooting star press for the pin in 807. They had a post-match celebration, which was good, because usually they blow off title wins like they're nothing. It was all the guys that don't get a push in the celebration. They didn't know the FBI, who London and Kidman were babyfaces. It's really bad when someone who actually cares a lot doesn't know things like this. Dudley's came out and teased the fight, but said shook hands with London and Kidman. That was weird enough. Okay. Um, the prob- well, okay. The problem with the London and Kidman team, I think it's twofold. One, they kind of threw them together and pushed them to this title win very quickly. They would never do such a thing like that. But it just didn't click. And then the other thing was the way that their gear was made to look and haircuts and everything it screamed like young stallions type prelim tag team and i think that hurt them now obviously brian kendrick was in a much better position to be in a team with paul london and they thrived but yeah, london london kidman had no chemistry they didn't seem like they got along whatsoever, no. and then it came out in the shoot interviews afterwards that, at least on London's side, he didn't think particularly highly of, of Kidman. No, and then they do that weird, weird, help, weird heel turn stemming from Kidman nearly killing Chavo with the shooting star press. And when I say nearly killing, I'm not exaggerating. Because that's when he got, a, I believe, a subarachnoid brain hemorrhage. Yeesh. Not good. Yeah, and then they they made it like this thing where he's hesitant to do it, but then he becomes a heel who does the shooting star press and hurts people. And look, obviously he didn't deliberately injure the guy, but this is a case where you really do, I feel like, have to give someone some fault because, well, assign some fault. Two things. One, he already had a bad enough track record of not being able to land the shooting star press well. 
And it had become increasingly clear since he started mysteriously putting on muscle that it was not helping him land that correctly. All right. Um, Cena came out for a promo. Ken Suzuki interrupted it. This segment turned out fine, but they were tempting fate. Or what when they? Uh, but they were were they tempted fate or what when they put the segment where Cena and Suzuki would brawl and Luther Reigns would take out Cena with his reverse netbreaker? The stars must have been aligned on this one. JBL versus El Grande Luchador. The totally forgotten Shannon Moore under a mask, which uh, which was one of the writers' ribs on Mexican wrestlers. JBL laughed at him for being small and they had him do the exaggerated poses like the old timers do in Lucha Libre. Switch thing was good when Eddie replaced him, but when it was over, it felt so much like a mid-card angle, so a main event angle. Well, this well, sounds fantastic. What this is, though, it's to set up angle coming back from the injury. Because they do the thing where they keep having El Gran Luchador run in, and eventually he... Like, I think he helps... I don't know if it's JBL or someone else. He helps someone beat Eddie and then has unmasked his angle. So that's what they're setting up here. This is another type of angle they would do again in the, in, in the future, just in a different way. Well, actually, they, they, when they did, well, when they did it with Mickey with the Mickey James thing, wasn't she called La Gran Luchadora or something like that? Or just... I think she was La Luchadora. That's it. Okay, no uh, modifier. Yeah. Best thing on the show was the Jamie Noble, Chavo, and Akio win over Rey Mysterio, Spike, and Sky Too Hotty. Good ass for starting to finish a hot crowd. Crowd was strong for most of the show, but seemed to peak here. Noble pin Spike clean, which seemed part of some sort of storyline where the Dudleys keep offering Spike help, but he keeps turning them down and keeps losing. Paul Heyman did his promo apologizing to Undertaker for blaming everything on the Dudleys. He said he was all alone and begged Undertaker to have mercy on him and left, him, left the urn in the ring. Booker versus John Cena was okay. Cardano at one point hit Cena with his cane in the neck, which Luther Reigns had given the netbreaker to earlier. Cena came out the clothesline Booker, who moved, and he had angle and then hit Reigns with a cane. As Cena had given Booker the FU, Reigns ran after the DQ. Angle announced Cena was stripped of the title, and Reigns took the belt. Looks like Cena versus Reigns said Cena versus Suzuki is the program. Well, the interviews will be good if they let them talk. They should have just had a debate instead of a match. Ooh, SmackDown's rough. <laughs> Oh, my goodness gracious. You see why they need to get John Cena off that show. Oh, my God. It was one thing when Eddie was champ and all that. Even if they had kind of sabotaged him. Well, am I saying kind of? They had. But it got even worse. This is a bad show. And it doesn't even have the mildly amusing things that elevated the previous, like, bad SmackDown periods in the previous couple of years. Like, yeah, and the Al Wilson stuff is bad, but it was weirdly entertaining. Yeah, it's just, oof. my goodness. I'm glad I wasn't watching SmackDown this time. My God. SmackDown did a 3.06 rating on July 8th. 3.56 realistic, estimated 4.65 million viewers. You can use the WWE's the first new rating system. In Los Angeles, did not produce the results of New York or Boston. Where SmackDown numbers had declined. L.A. did a 4.4. Saw they built a 4.13 average the previous month in that city. New York, however, continued their bad numbers with a 3.9. Chicago did a 3.1. Philadelphia did a 2.9. San Francisco did a 3.6. Boston did a 2.7. Dallas, 3.5. D.C. a 2.4. Atlanta, 2.9. And Houston, a 5.4. Yes, Houston was the number one city asking for SmackDown this era. And probably that's called Eddie. And Ray. So, 
Yeah, big time rating in Houston. Segment by segment, London and Kidman's win over the Dudley's gained 273,000 viewers. Plus, match celebration handshake. Kenzo segment gained 266. The Cena deal with Reigns gained 595. Six straight week where Cena and Kenzo has been a big hit. Dave, guess we can go out of the limb and say a Cena. And it is. JBL and Eddie gained 162, which Dave guesses is why I felt like a mid-card angle doing that at the top of the hour. The six-man did a uh, two hundred seventy lost 274,000 viewers, which also had a Demon Search video. Heyman's promo gained 17,000, and Booker and Cena gained 291 to a 3.39 Pete rating. We're going to take a note there. Both of the highest segments of the show were John Cena. Yep. I got to say, I, I don't know if I trust the Nielsen sample to reflect a swing of 17,000 viewers. <laughs> 17,000. Uh, let's go to the torch. Kurt Angle's been pitching the idea of leading the no, stable. Seriously, though, like, wouldn't that be like three people from the actual from the sample? I don't know how that breaks down. Okay. Kurt Angle's been pitching the idea of leading a stable of heel wrestlers upon his return to the ring. He's wrestled people the wrong way by saying that SmackDown needs an unbeatable heel, similar to the way Triple H was trading on Raw. Of course, he feels he needs to be the unbeatable heel, but observers say he beats around the bush when making that point. Some wrestlers feel worked by Angle. They point to the fact that Angle managed to work through WrestleMania, then took time away from the ring doing, during the worst time of the year for house show payoffs. They also note that he's returning just in time for SummerSlam. While some wrestlers acknowledge that it could be a, a coincidence, others feel that he's milked his injury to get the schedule he wanted. It's one thing to work the office, another one observer. Everybody does that, but Angle worked the boys. He's full of shit. He's playing games. He's picking his spots. The source went on to predict that Angle will stick around to SummerSlam because he would be tipping his hand if he weren't a show. Collected a big payoff and then took more time off. Thanks, Chris Jericho. Um. <laughs> considering considering the state that he was in in 2006, I think it seems a little harsh to be saying Kurt Angle at any stage in the years leading up to that was working injuries or yeah. milking injuries. <laughs> I would say, if strange. anything, the fact that the fact that the man was going to work at any point during some of those things he was working through and pain killing his way through, uh, he was doing the opposite of milking injuries. He should have been resting and recuperating. And uh, yeah, absolutely. That's um, that's definitely old school wrestler locker room mentality. I'm sure at play there. Hadn't he just gotten another neck surgery? I think so, because this was this random time he was doing the wheelchair stuff right, and general yeah. manager. Yeah, it's. Um, I think this, this is like was the this was the third uh, Doctor Joe surgery. Yeah, this was a, a kind of a weak period for for Angle, kind of like Jericho. He kind of falls into. Uh, um, I don't know if Jericho's Tito, his Angle, Greg Valentine. I'm I'm not sure, but. Uh, Angle kicks things back into gear with the Michaels feud uh, at the start of or for Mania the following year. Yeah. And I'm joking it's Chris Jericho goes to Torch, but who knows? Somebody's... Oh, I, I just picked up on you. But I, yeah. <laughs> Somebody's clued in to somebody. Let's put it that way. Well, was, right. I wonder, was Jericho still uh, on the outs with Wade because of that 2002 uh, King of the Ring star rating? It's possible. We know we know Jericho takes his star ratings very seriously now. He oh was, gosh, he was and bringing them up at the time, dynamite last week. <laughs> if if Wade was not holding a grudge over that, then I have no idea what he was doing. 
All right, back to the day for a moment. The current U.S. title plans it will somehow crown a new champion over the next few weeks. Din Cena will show up with his own U.S. belt, claiming to be the real champion, setting up a match probably at SummerSlam to unify the titles. Great. <laughs> Is that the debut hey, of the spinner? Yeah. So we're going back to the IC title of Cena in 1994. Foley ended up getting knee surgery after all on a... July 7th, surge went well, and he did a public appearance on July 10th at the Class A minor league baseball game near Poughkeepsie on crutches, where he threw out the first pitch. The story that Foley hasn't talked with anyone in the company of late because of the Flair book isn't the case. He's had contact with the company this past week. Flair was all over the place this past week plugging the book. He was on Fox and Friends. And the question of steroids was brought up. He said he did then to enhance his appearance and not to enhance his ring performance. He also said they do make you more prone to injuries. He's not lying on that. <laughs> Flair, Flair, guess. That's what they Rick Flair did not need to improve his ring performance. Yeah, it's funny though, because like I don't know, your appearance is part like this isn't a competitive sport in terms of ring performance. So like your appearance is part of the package. So it's part of your performance. So uh, diff- separating those two things, you know, it's not like I don't know, a UFC fighter saying, Oh yeah, I was doing steroids not because I wanted to be a better fighter. It was because I was, I was I mean, that self-conscious happened, about that was, it. that was what Tim Sylvia said when he tested. It was right, wasn't it? Yeah, which <laughs> is ridiculous. Wait, Tim and Sylvia I remember Meltzer being like, "But you're a competitive athlete. If you're taking <laughs> enough of the steroids to make your physique better, <laughs> it's also going to offer you an athletic advantage." <laughs> Oh dear, Tim Sylvia. I well, don't think said, Tim Sylvia was ever the smartest tool in the shed. No, but that said, I think for wrestlers it primarily was uh, physique and injury recovery. Yeah, uh, but that's all, that's all part of the package. Yeah, Flair. Though, I mean, when he took when he took the roids, it was all to give him that muscle. You know, it was not about improving himself. That's for damn sure. And you, you could see the errors where Flair was definitely uh, taking stuff. <laughs> if Flair's doing a double yeah, bicep, yeah. then he's, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. yeah just, <laughs> I watched him do that uh, the other day on a 1986 uh, TV where he's really muscled up. I'm like, look at Flair here. Look at Jacked. So, oh, yeah, he went, you knew when he was on it. All right, back to the torch. Several wrestlers from Raw, SmackDown, even TNA locker rooms were telling one uh, one another how happy they were that Ric Flair used his book to take shots at Eric Bischoff and Diamond House Page. <laughs> now, that's funny. There's talk of, of a major makeover Edge, including a haircut, a new overall look, and a new attitude. One friend of his says Edge is portraying his character in ways he personally disagrees with, and it's frustrating him. Some of the things he's doing aren't what he wouldn't be doing on his own, says the friend. For the torch, I wonder who that friend is. Hmm. Maybe that's Chris Jericho. The Chris Chris Jericho who at this time had cut his hair. Never got the short hair, Chris Jericho. Yep, it it was a shorter cut. But it's probably for the best that Edge didn't change his look. Would y'all agree? Oh yeah. He didn't need to change it at this point in time. It's funny speaking of um, speaking of bodies and uh, steroids and whatnot, like. Edge, like a couple of months later, he gets absolutely yoked when he turns heel. But then when he really kind of gets momentum as like 
as a heel character, like him and Lita together in mid 2006, he's so much smaller and more natural looking. Well, than... there's a reason for that, even though we later learn he's still on stuff. But but was he it, trying it, to have kids or? Well, no, I wasn't saying that, but it's, you know, it. He got more natural looking. He's clearly taking less in the, you know, the aftermath of Eddie's death and then the. Oh, yeah, of course. Eddie and, yeah, yeah, 0506. Yeah. That, yeah, that's what's happening there. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, obviously. I mean, one of the things I found interesting, though, when that signature pharmacy stuff came out and it was revealed that he was still on stuff, it kind of shocked the other wrestlers who had looked to him as kind of this example you could point to of someone who, once they instituted drug testing, did the right thing. Because he, I mean, he looked natural. He did. But whether it was for the recovery benefits or whatever, he's still doing stuff. Yeah. Alright, speaking of Edge, he was a promotional work for Vengeance in England on July 8th. It was on Talk Sports Jim Wales show. Get ready, folks. Edge said all the injuries have forced the company to go away from the previous more is better attitude. When asked about problems with painkillers due to the injuries, Edge said the current wrestlers weren't going to follow in the direction of the previous generation. Uh-huh. He said he would never do another TLC match because his neck couldn't handle it. Uh-huh. When asked about working as a heel in Manchester, England, he said he had to do it because Ric Flair was cheered so much. It was easier to be the bad guy. He called Flair the Babe Ruth of Wrestling. When asked if websites were giving away SmackDown spoilers was the right thing to do, he said the industry's changed, and people who are big enough fans to read spoilers are likely watching the show anyway. There you go. Yep, and that's the absolute correct answer. Yeah. He said, from a style standpoint, he's doing less flying. And said, you shouldn't come off the top rope without a good reason. Huh. Take that, <laughs> all you uh, fans of high spots. He said his book was coming out in November and hit the future program with Triple H. When asked about the plan program that fell through with Chris Benoit, he said that would be great. He was asked about a surgery under Dr. Lloyd Youngblood as compared to Kurt Angles under Dr. Heijong Jo. He said at first he felt screwed by having to be out for a year while Angles back in two months. He said that he was told the surgeon Angle had isn't advisable for people who land on their heads for a living and now thinks he took the right surgery, saying he's fine with while Angle has had continued neck problems. And the son, he said he was bothered because he was bothered because of sudden injury last year. He was attacked by a mystery guy. When he came back, it was never acknowledged. He said Vincent Man told him, let's just move on and forget about it because there have been so many guys out with injuries who've come back to get their attacker that's been overdone. Edge disagreed, saying it made no sense to do it that way and leave a hole in the storyline. He said Vince didn't even want to be acknowledged when he returned on television. He'd been even been injured. <laughs> I actually think of... Vince is coming from one not doing the revenge thing, though. Now, yeah. it's their own fault for doing those angles. Yeah. But it looks like he's actually trying to course correct. Yeah. He thought the original storyline was, was meant to have been the mystery guy who had laid out both he and Rhino. He thinks his return could have helped SmackDown more than Raw because he could have headlined against Eddie. And so without doubt, Raw's a stronger brand. He said, Vince and the writers, read that Triple H telling Stephanie, made the decision to send him to Raw. He said he can't take any more power drivers. He's careful with DDTs and chair shots to the head. He said any moves that compress the spine is a no-no for him. He said he thought about Venus because he had neck problems maybe the next knee fusion surgery. When asked about the decision to have babyfaces no longer announced from Canada... He said, first I thought it was silly. 
He's having still being announced as hell for Toronto. He said in the match at Dublin, Ireland, when he wrestled Flair, the agents told him if the crowd goes for Flair to turn heel and change finish to Flair winning. He said Flair fought at tooth and nail. He said Flair was supposed to kick out of the spear. He was afraid Flair was going to kick out. Or Hulk Hogan, he said, you hear horror stories, but Hulk Hogan lived up to all my expectations. He's a super guy, and he accepted me as his peer. He put the ball in my hands, trusted me to do it, and even called me his son. He said they bumped into each other since both live in Tampa and are hockey fans fairly often. He introduces him to people as my son, Edge. He said his childhood goals for the team with Hogan, which he's done. Wrestle Ric Flair, Bret Hart, which he did at Bret's house, and Shawn Michaels, which he hasn't done. He says he sometimes regrets he even did the TLC match because they changed the industry, not in a good way. And thinks in the long run they set the business back. He said he booked a TLC as a once-a-year blow-off to a great few, but not more than that. And one should never be put on free television. Thoughts? Alan, go to you first. Honestly, the, the, the first thing that comes to my mind when I, I heard that was uh, the mention of the Dublin House show. I was trying to think if that was the show I was at or the next day. They originally were only going to do one show in Dublin, um, but because it was their first time there in 10 years, the previous show that I was also at was 94, and uh, it was their first time back in a decade, and the demand was so out, just so crazy that all the tickets went straight away the, the, the morning they went on sale. And I remember I was in school and we were trying to get the, the tickets that morning or have our parents get them or whatever. And then uh, we weren't able to get them. And then by the evening, it was put like on the news, on the radio, because like everyone was calling into the radio stations about this. So it was on the news, on the radio that... Uh, they were going to do a second show the next day and tickets would go on sale, I don't know, a week later or whatever for that one. And uh, so, yeah, I was able to go to one of those two shows. And I think this was probably the one I wasn't at because I think I saw Flair in a tag. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah, Edge, Edge and Flair around that kind of time on a house show. Endlessly entertaining, I would I would imagine, if you got to see them. Bix, what are, you, what are your thoughts about some of these uh, lines by Edge here? Um, and the first thing that came to mind when you talk about the book coming out soon was thinking about how uh, he said some not-so-nice things about some friends of ours in there. <laughs> Don't necessarily appreciate that. But, you know, he, he you know gave a fair answer about the spoilers thing. The neck injury stuff is very interesting because... What a parade of necks in that era. We're not done with that either. I know. <laughs> because the next thing on my list was tests. Saw Dr. Lloyd Youngblood this past week and recommend he get neck fusion surgery. So maybe after a year plus. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah, Ugh. it seems like it's everybody's having neck problems. Oh, and then the ki- Do you guys remember what the kicker was with test? What? He's the one who got released while recovering from surgery. That's right, yeah. Which, I don't remember them doing anywhere close to this before, and I don't think they've done again since, have they? Somebody that's out recovering from surgery? No. I think think they did release somebody who was out for some some of the reasons. Yeah, it wasn't... Yeah. Someone someone who had been out because of an injury, but by the time they were released had been cleared. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, but I don't think I don't I don't have any recollection of them doing this since. Like 
Do we think they had a reason we don't know about? Or do we think they learned from the backlash and realized that it's pointless to do this? That it's not worth it? Yeah. Like, I don't know which that which it is. It's just crazy to think about some of these injury issues back then. Man. And you know what? It probably, for the guys who were not thinking of as... T- either taking really big bumps or, you know, in some cases doing spears because that seemed to be an issue as well. I got to think it's just some of the stupider shit they did, like, as one-offs to some degree. Like um, the thing from the 2001 show a few weeks ago with the elbow onto Rhino that's so badly conceived. Like, I wonder if it's more stuff like that. Because Tess does not strike you as someone, like, he doesn't fit the criteria the other people who got the fusion did. And really neither does Valvinus. Yep. All right. Uh, Gail Kim's out of action because she needs one of her relatively new implants repaired because it was leaking, which Dave believes was an injury from a match last week. A lot of wrestling women in Dave can recall China, Sable, Tammy, and Missy off the top of his head who have had problems with implants puncturing or leaking. Yeah, Oof. that's that's not good. Um, remember when Sable included that in her lawsuit? Yeah. They didn't exercise proper care with her, like, to prevent her from... I'd have to read it. It was something like, she. what if she... T- like, I don't think it was over anything specific. Wasn't it more like if she took a forward fall, she could rupture an implant? Something like that. Weird. It was very weird. Um... That whole lawsuit is weird because she it's obviously supposed to be a sexual harassment lawsuit for the most part with some other stuff, you know, like about hostile work environment or whatever mixed in. But she never claimed sexual harassment. She didn't file with the EOC to make it, you know, get the ruling you need to actually be a sexual harassment case. It's very bizarre. Um, And then there's also stuff like that mixed in. So, like, granted, I believe most of what she's saying, but. It's still very oddly formatted, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yeah. The Dudleys were scolded by agents past weekend for spending too much time yelling the crowd as heels. They went back to a lot of the old ECW stuff they could get away with, obviously with cleaner language. Yeah, obviously. You couldn't use some of the stuff they used in ECW and WWE shows. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we have a mother who taught her daughter how to kiss boys. <laughs> oh man company policy is used to not allow talent to work indies but they did allow Rosie to work for Alpha well it's family and Alpha is practically family events on July 9th for a show in Allentown Batista was also working the show but was limited to doing a babyface run in to end the show Batista was originally trained by Alpha why does Vince yeah. consider them family anyway in a way he doesn't with other people <sighs> loyalty Better to have them on your side than not. <laughs> loyalty, loyal, loyalty. I mean, had his back in the courtroom that day. Yeah. I mean, it's just yeah. I mean, it's just it's a, it's a, it's a loyalty thing and it's respect. You know. I mean, I wouldn't want to get on the bad side of someone who killed a dude over a parking spot. I think I think I think maybe the catalyst for all that was, I mean. When they went back at the in, in late eighty two, I mean they left 
Georgia Championship Wrestling as a national tag team champions being pushed just quit with no notice. Oh, so you think that's one of Vince Jr.'s first moves? It's definitely one of them. Because it's them and Morocco are the two that quit with no notice and just leave only high and dry. So I think that's that's a thing that they were loyal to Vince and stuff like that. You know, it's just it's just the history, you know? And it goes back to high GP and my view. So yeah, I just think it, it's it's all it's all a, a you know, a, you know it's a, it's a mixture of everything to all together. More than anything else. All right, to the tours. Bob Holly and Bart, Billy Gunn don't appear to be on the bubble when it comes to losing their jobs, as some have speculated. If they were, they'd probably be a party in the locker room as they remain two of the least popular rest in the dressing room. They're the most miserable fuckers on the roster. Said one side down source. That's the difference between complaining and saying the business owes me more than this. They're your typical bitchers and whiners. Says another source, they're definitely two guys with the worst morale on the roster that otherwise gets along really well. They definitely talk about how much more they deserve than they're getting. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay, I can kind of see that with Hardcore Holly, but isn't it wild with current Billy Gunn how like happy, positive he is, how everyone speaks so highly of him? Isn't it so weird to hear that about him? Well, strikes yeah. me as he has influence now. You know? Yeah, but he, he seems like a very giving guy from everything. He seems like you someone hear. who changed at some point. And his son's in a business, so, you know? Yeah, he... he yeah, because you, you never heard much good stuff about him, really. Or, until, and then, until the NXT run, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those, yeah you I think awesome. it got to the point... I think it got to the point, Alan, where he knew that I'm at that point of my career where, you know, I'm in a spot and that's the spot I have. I, I was, I, this could have nothing to do with it. Um, it's a personal thing for him, but um, I it came up last week because there was that thing his current wife posted um, about him. Oh, he did some good deed with someone who broke down. or something. I, I, I can't remember what it was near where they live or something like that and uh, his wife was putting him over online and um yeah it was like uh, uh, there was an article about like when they when they got married or whatever and it was like it was recent enough that you're like okay maybe or maybe that's kind of the moment that maybe her coming into his life was a big change in his personality like we've seen that happen that happens with loads of people like randy orton obviously is a is a good wrestling example of, of, of someone for that so um yeah it's uh it, it could be that as well with billy gunn but yeah he he's definitely a guy that's taught very highly of nowadays yeah he was helping out some stranded motorists apparently and bob holly is yeah. a guy who people really like to on the you know on the indie scene so but Bob guys lightened up, but not as much as Billy. Well, you don't go too far. You kill your gimmick. Uh, <laughs> Chuck Palumbo's had another makeover, although it's not resulting in a push. He was on a heat match this week with his hair back, bleach blonde, like in the Billy Chut days. And boy, his career turned since that gimmick ended. Wearing khaki pants and a white beater. He then lost to Val Venus. This was the beginning of what became the motorcycle mechanic gimmick? Yeah, because he grows his hair back. Yeah, this is 
This is when he's going to get into the FBI, right? Oh, no, no, FBI was before this. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Remember the story from a few weeks ago about the well-respected soap opera writer who was interviewed regarding being added to the writing team and being in charge of continuity of the stories, among other things, who knew nothing about wrestling? Well, as one as only can be predicted, his name is Tom Childress, and he was offered the job. He went in the middle of Stanford. He has a family. So this, so as of midweek, he had not accepted the offer. One of the things he noted is that the previous people in the position haven't had a lot of longevity. One of them was Paul Guay, who was a long, lifelong wrestling fan. is best known for being one of the writers of the movie Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey. Well, isn't this interesting, coming off of the what we just happened a couple weeks ago? You know what, though? If the job is specifically someone to be like the continuities are, I think that is something you offer to like a soap opera writing veteran. Here's the thing about the whole thing, about the, the, the writer that was fired a couple weeks ago because she didn't know about wrestling. I think we're in a position now with wrestling and it might be a good thing to have people in that in the type of creative position that might not know about wrestling so they can give a unique vision of what wrestling could yes. be. Now that said <laughs> she was clearly fired for going and doing the podcast and talking about WWE period. That's why she was fired. Absolutely. They're yes, not absolutely. firing her she over the internet backlash. No. No, no, no. She was fired because she did something that that W writers don't do, and that's go public while they're still employed. After they're gone, different story. But when they're still employed, that yeah, don't do that. Oh no, it's like you know I, I tweeted out the uh, the gif of uh, Tyler Durden and Fight Club. First rule about Fight Club: don't talk about Fight Club. You know, she violated the rules. Like, when have you seen a, a sitting employed W writer or a hired and about to be onboarded <laughs> do an interview like that? No. You know? No, exactly. I, I thought John and Way had a good point about all this on post wrestling about how in regular TV, there are so many shows now where you have showrunners doing official podcasts where they go into the, like, the, storytelling process and stuff and also thinking about how you do have tony khan being pretty open with his booking process when he does interviews even if it was a bit of a work this is me saying this part not them like it probably would behoove them just for like an audience on an audience engagement level to do something like that because also that way you're controlling the message and blah 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 well here's the thing that that's totally a vince thing Oh yeah, I'm sure. That's totally a Vince thing. That's that. I mean, I, I could, I, I see Vince making the call to get rid of her. Absolutely. Vince and Kevin Dunn, you know, making that call. So I don't think Nick Khan gives a shit. But yes. you know, those. Yeah, I could see those two being. Yeah, no way. And now, do you guys agree with me though that of the jobs you could give someone who doesn't really know wrestling? on the writing team, I feel like respected soap opera writer specifically being in charge of continuity is a perfectly fine hiring. Well, I mean, here's the thing. I, as someone who has watched quite a bit of soap operas in his lifetime, 
Um, soap operas aren't always known for their continuity either. Not always, but a lot of it. But, 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 but. Oh my god. <laughs> but even when they're not the best at it, soaps still are designed to reward long-term viewers. More often than not. Because, good lord, I've seen ooh, a lot of issues over the years on Days of Our Lives of uh, issues, like I said, where uh, things get going and all of a sudden switch midstream and get dropped completely onto something else. It's a, a lot like wrestling in that regard. All right, let's close it out. Dave thought the TNA got the award on July 7th for the most unintentionally hilarious line of the year. The pay line where Larry Zabisco talks about how he supports Vince Russo because Russo stands up for wrestling tradition came an even better line the next day in the AP story on the Diva Search. It's easy to go lowbrow, said Kevin Dunn. That's not where we're going with our product in general, the search. We'll be finding our image for 50 years because there's 50 years tradition before us, and we understand that. Yeah, nothing lowbrow about the current product. Nothing low-brow about what they're looking for, even though the contestants with the experience posting news seem to have the best chance of making it. Nothing low-brow about whatever it is they're doing with a special this week involving Moulin May Young. Among those in the final 28 are 1998 Playboy Playman of the Year Karen McDougal, who admitted having no interest in wrestling. 2004 Playman of the Year Carmella Desazar. Julia and Sandra Ch- Chandra Costello, the Juggies from the Man Show. Amy Weber, a model for Guys magazines. And Yesenia Jesse Camacho from Survivor Africa. There are a few others with acting credentials. Dave's not saying there's anything wrong with that, but Kevin Dunn's quote is priceless considering they picked several strippers and nude magazine models. Thoughts? I mean, what? You didn't think that the come sucking gutter slut challenge was classy? <laughs> yeah, we ain't got to that yet. <laughs> Did we do that week? No, I'm talking about we haven't got to that in the timeline of that, where we're at. That's what I'm saying. I know. Yeah, but... Dave, Dave, Dave hasn't got there. So I don't. I know they were told to really go at each other. I'll say this: I don't think Kevin Dunn expected that segment to go where it did. I don't think anybody did. Oh my god! Okay, for those who are not familiar with this, because I'm sure many of you are not paying attention to 2004 WWE. On the August 30th Raw, there is a segment called Dis the Diva, where they are all in bikinis and basically told to insult each other, and they really do it, especially towards Carmella de Caesar. And, okay, so who was it? Was it Christy Hemme? Was it Amy Weber? Who was it that said that? Amy Weber was gone. It was, it was Christy. Yeah, it's Christy Hemme. At one point, and it's bleeped, calls Carmilla a cum-sucking gutter slut. <laughs> um, Wasn't it guzzling? <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I think it was sucking. <laughs> no, people weren't sure. No, it was guzzling. Be- no, 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 it was sucking because people, I think they only, I believe they only bleeped the first word, so people weren't sure because they did hear sucking and then it was confirmed by people who were in the arena that uh she said the well i guess three or four letter word not the four letter word <laughs> you're a burping gutter slut oh it was burping 
come burping. Come down on all or slurping. Of you. Maybe she did say slurping then. I think she said slurping. Well, we should also consider yeah, this is the international. If this appears to be ripped from the network, so it's the international version of Raw, which means they may have tweaked the bleeps from what we saw on uh, Spike TV. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that that uh, yeah, and, she, and then Christy punctuates it by doing a split. <laughs> it's tremendous. <sighs> yeah. All right. Hybrid Hi, stuff. You could see that at the uh, in St. Louis. Sam Mushnick was booking that kind of stuff for the Chase back in the day. <laughs> Oh, oh my god. Man. Okay. Oh god. I just I was good in, well, in Google. Well, no. I I found a Bruce Pritchard. I'm not summer. gonna make I'm not gonna make the cum guzzler joke about the Central States locker room at that time. That's a whole other story. But go ahead. <laughs> Obviously, I don't want to make this longer than it needs to be. But <laughs> one of the quotes I'm reading in the 411 summary is Bruce Pritchard saying about Carmella, "I couldn't pick her out of the lineup." And I assume that she was the cum burping slut that Christy referred to in an impromptu <laughs> live promo segment on Monday Night Raw that we had to have a little chat with everybody about. <laughs> oh, hilarious. Oh, and on, right. on Christy's thing, she sure did say that at the same time. She said it so fucking quick. I think everybody was kind of looking at themselves saying, did she just say cum burping gutter slut? Can we say slut on TV? I think the comment part is okay. Behind, behind the scenes scoop for Between the Sheets for you listeners here. About two hours ago, Bix in the chat said, we need to move this along, guys. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, we are. This is the end of the show. That wasn't too hours. <laughs> so, Alan. <laughs> Alan, go ahead and plug whatever you got going on, my man. Oh, well, thank you guys, as always, for having me on, especially uh, for such an incredible week of, of stuff in Japan. It really, it was great to revisit a lot of those old memories and dig into some stuff and, and rewatch that Noah show. It was a lot of fun. So, yeah, thank you for having me on. Thank you for anyone that uh, that has listened and, and listened to the Japan segment. Uh, I hope it was enjoyable. And uh, if you like uh, that kind of thing from me, uh, there's... A lot of kind of discussion about old classic wrestling, along with some stuff from modern wrestling when it uh, when it catches my eye and when it uh, impresses me. Over at the Pro Rest Paradise on PW Torch VIP, PW Torch subscription gets you so much stuff, as the guys here will testify to. There is just a treasure trove of incredible archival content, written audio everything on the torch i always plug the uh, old pro wrestling focus shows from like 92 and 93 they're old school radio shows um wade was the host he'd have all kinds of great guests on they're awesome i listen to at least one every week i, I love them so much and uh, all the great content and analysis with the current writers that uh, oh, are over there at the torch um you got the everything rich fan show that wade appears on the fix with todd martin sean radican shows got all kinds of great stuff zach haydorn is the He's he's doing a lot of big things now with the newsletter, the Torch newsletter. He's uh, become one of the main guys involved with that. Um, it's it's a great team at the Torch, and just, I think you'll really get bang for your buck if you sign up and join. And uh, yeah, that's 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 a big hard plug. You can find me on Twitter at Alad4L, and uh, yeah, that's everything. Well, and you forgot to mention oh. too, also. 
now the home to, I believe, one issue added every week, the Archives of Wrestling Forum. Oh, was that the thing? That was the thing Rovert was putting up yesterday, wasn't it? Yes. Oh, my God, the stuff that was written in that. Oh, just tremendous. <laughs> this, the stuff he had in his screen caps, I was howling at. So I'm looking forward to digging into some of those. I, I go back and, and read some of the really early Torch newsletters that Wade put up their scans. Like So it's it's a real nostalgia trip to 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 read that kind of stuff and yeah and the drawings the art everything in there it's, it's really cool to take a look at the the newsletters of those days oh yeah absolutely all right next week on between the sheets another patreon request well not really no, no, not, no patreon not patreon request a listener requested well, show by multitudes of. of listeners as uh, next week, Ed from Pod Van Dam will join us as we go back to 1997 for a pretty loaded week. As we have two Raws and Nitros to talk about, as we have uh, 10 days worth to uh, discuss. So we'll begin with WCW first, where, of course, we have two Nitros. The aftermath of the Bash at the Beach show. We'll talk about that and talk about. Uh, Press covers of Dennis Romming at WCW. We'll have news on the Orlando tapings afterwards. We got the Ross, Nitros. We got all kind of stuff. Just who was backstage at Nitro. Interesting names. And uh, WCW changing their TV schedule. So we'll talk about that. We have um, the indie results to talk about. We got all that stuff there, including uh, what's going on in the USWA with their new boss, Mr. Selker. But not the, this, not the first name. <laughs> it's a different first name than what we know. We'll talk more about that as we go along. We have uh, it's all kinds of random in this indie stuff. Then we have an ECW section, which is crazy. We got ECW Arena and Queens on the same weekend. Lots of stuff going on there um, involving Insane Clown Posse, Howard Stern. This craziness in ECW Arena uh pretty wild show pretty wild show as uh we have rob van dam sabu and jerry lawler against tommy dreamers sandman and rick rude so we'll talk about that on the show plus other things then we got uh, a threat of a lawsuit involving ecw and wcw to talk about what else is and yet and yes bix we have some universal superstars of america results in our show next oh, week do we have bodyguard for hire probably all right, we got uh, other um, lucha results. We got Canada with some young young names that you may know from current wrestling competing, really young. We got some Joshi news, including Asha Kong announcing she's leaving all Japan women and uh, going on her own. So we'll talk about that. We got an update on the Hickson Gracie Nobuka Takata match that's coming up. We got all kinds of. Um, Independent results. We got Great Sasuke get, doing his farewell to Michinoku Pro Wrestling. <laughs> then we got Masio Chono getting injured at those WCW Universal tapings. Yoshiro Takayama debuting for All Japan. We'll talk about that. But we have the WWF. And the reason why we're doing this show The Birth of Dude Love. Yes, and Ed will definitely be uh, talking a lot about that. But that's just a. Now, it's not even the tip of what they're doing during our week. We've got two Raws. 
Plus, we got news on Raw changing their taping schedule, changing the way they're doing television. So we'll have news on that. And Vince McMahon spotlighting Icon Magazine with quotes from Vince McMahon, Eric Bischoff, Kevin Nash, and many more. Very, very interesting stuff. All that more next week on Between the Sheets. Alan, thanks as always. You are amazing. We definitely thank you, guys. Bix, thank you as always. You're the rock of the show. It's Chris said so long from the Peach State of Georgia.